<laughs> oh, I have so many questions. Like I have like okay, I this is, okay, just give you a rundown. Um there's a very real possibility this beats the shining. There's a very real possibility this recording beats the shining. I mean, when I subtract the time from my flag from cuz I record before we start the episode the episode recording so far is at three twelve. <laughs> yeah, this is gonna be the shining. This is good. This is gonna Woo! be a, a new topper. Because Mike, I have a nine eleven. Because I have a big thing about that. Yes, we have to talk about nine um, eleven. Robin Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. I'm Ben. And I had to beat an old lady with a stick to get these cranberries. <laughs> Probably my favorite line from all three of these movies, but there's actually some pretty good lines. We are here with a new month, a new series, and I think the best way to say right off the bat, because everybody who's listening to this, you know, they've seen the title of this episode. Anybody who's listened to last week's episode, uh, we gave a hint that we were going into this Spider-Man series, but I think the best place to start is that, yes... For the first time in two years, we will not be doing fans giving. But this should make some sense. I kind of think we've been phasing this out for a while. The first year of this podcast, we didn't even do fans giving. That was November. Zach and I discussed documentaries about movies that were never made. But then, in the second year, we didn't even do a full Fansgiving. We did some fan request episodes. But then one of our November slots, Zach, went to Dr. Sleep. In the third year... Oh, that, when, that bit us in the ass. Exactly. That, that was our, our fault. In the third year, when, when Ben, you were around, we did even less Fansgiving in the third year because one of our November spots went to the episode we did with Jimmy Custis. And then one of the Fansgiving spots last year was Titanic, which Zach counted as a Fansgiving request because someone somewhere wrote the word Titanic in an email. Now we're just not doing Fansgiving at all. And so it's we called as, a Patreon. Exactly. See, Zach is even on top of this more than than uh, or faster than uh, Ben and I are. But now we are fully removing fans giving because we have Spider-Man series and not only the Spider-Man series, we have the Patreon. So, Ben, I would like to throw it over to you. Where can our fans make requests if they want us to hear hear us talk about something specific? Can you enlighten our listeners? Uh, they can go to patreon.com slash whatever you need to put here to make it a regular Patreon link slash cinemodities. I, I believe. I think that's correct. And uh, and they can join at the $10 a month membership level. Is that yep. right? At least $10. At, yes. at least $10 a month <laughs> membership level. And then they can make requests there. And uh, so far, we haven't really limited the amount of requests that we'll do for a person per month because we've not been flooded with requests uh but eventually you know logistically we'll just we'll have to release them as we have time to yep. but get in now if you want to hear all your all your requests talked about uh you know within the next couple months because we got 
we, we got time in that schedule. Yeah, absolutely. So check out the Patreon. Uh, if, if Ben's directions were not clear, I'll put the link in the show notes. And it's good fun. You get some bonus content, you support the podcast, and you get to make requests. Zach, do you have any thoughts on the Patreon? <laughs> Request Titanic stuff, folks, if you want to hear me oh on there. Oh my God. Titan- remember, no- November is going to be Titanic's November. Remember that, Rob? Oh, that was an idea. Zach wanted to do all Titanic Titanic's stuff. giving. Yeah. Titanic's fort decade. What Zach meant to say was that he will never be on the Patreon. <laughs> Until you nominate a Titanic film. No, no, he will never be on the Patreon until we run out of the movies that he has blocked the main feed with. <laughs> that, that's when Zach gets to be on the Patreon. When Ben gets to pick a main feed movie again, Zach gets to be on the Patreon. That's It's kind of like when the Angels win the World Cup or whatever. That's, that's where we're at. I think that's a great segue, Ben, uh, to you saying, because I think it's become a running thing, of course, as we talk about how, you know, Zach shows the Fort Year and all that stuff. And then I had my Henry Selleck series, Monsto, oh, where Ben was not around for. Um, but I do have to say, Ben, I, I, like we said, a good segue into Spider-Man. This was an idea of Zach's, the, this whole Spider-Man series, and you had no problem with it. Is that fair to say? Oh, I love me some Spider-Man. Yes. And that, that's yes. that's true. At this point, Zach has earned at least one half of an episode of Patreon time <laughs> by, by picking something I liked, despite the fact that he picked it, not me. Um, and, and I do love me some Spider-Man. Yes, which I want to dive into about, you know, your love for Spider-Man. Zach's weird interest in Spider-Man that I've said for a while has been Stockholm Syndrome of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But I guess the next best thing to say is, Zach, how did we end up here doing Spider-Man movies and, and grouping them so, you know, like strongly? We're doing three movies this episode, folks. I don't even know how I'm going to put this in a title have ever, yet. <laughs> have we ever done that before, three in one episode? I, I don't think... Ever like stated? I think we've only ever stated two, but there's definitely been movies that I've watched more than three. Like I'm thinking of the Hannibal episode. I watched all uh-huh. five Hannibal lectures, but I think this might be the first time we're actually going to be discussing three whole movies, distinct I, movies. I, I'm curious, Rob. When you watched Womb Raider, oh, did that break three movies? That that was four because I did the two oh. Tomb Raiders, I did Womb Raider, and I did the the revamped Tomb Raider. <laughs> okay. So so three is big for the, the main feed, but it's not the biggest that I've got to talk about. But so, so Zach, Spider-Man, what was the impetus? Is it really Stockholm Syndrome for you? Because you've been telling me about how they're bringing all the Spider-Man back together. This, this, well, okay. Too many Spider-Man. Well, I, I will <laughs> gladly concede my still allegiance to the MCU is Stockholm Syndrome. As someone who saw Shang-Chi, any how many rings, Rob? I... I think it's somewhere between 9 and 11. Is that true? Okay, good. Somewhere okay. between 9 and 11. Well, at least we can agree about that. Ben, do you know um, how I, many rings Shang-Chi has? 9.3? Nine, ooh, okay, okay. Ooh. I thought it was like 10.7. <laughs> okay. On the Blu-ray cover, apparently he has only uh, less than 7. Oh. oh. He must have lost some of them in the fight with uh, Cthulhu. There's <laughs> 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 a good bit of rings, though. But okay, yeah. So Zach has Stockholm Syndrome for the MCU. How does but, that get us to all Shang-Chi's of these Shang-Chi's actually movies? good, just gonna say. I did not see it. Zach, I know you saw it. Do you have any comment on I, 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 I'm gonna let you know what? I enjoyed Shang-Chi. I was surprised that it, like, it at least attempted to tell a, no- a novel story relative to the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
Um, but this goes back to the kind of the inception point of this series. It's the idea that allegedly, as of now, November or God, October 2021, we're going to get Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire, along with Tom Holland in this movie that's going to be released a little over two and a half months from now. And so how I pitched this to Rob and obviously uh, Ben being, as we'll find out, a major fan of Spider-Man. And that's kind of what kind of like greased the skids of Rob just kind of going with the flow with this and not pushing back. Because I'm pretty sure it weren't for Ben, Rob would have been like, no. Like oh, you had yeah. your Avengers game experiment. No. If we didn't have you, Zach, from the, the uh, industry filmmaking perspective, we didn't have Ben from, you know, a, a fan perspective, I am – I I would be so against discussing these movies. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's what's going to make this conversation interesting because, like, I want – we discussed this a little bit in the pre-show recording. I did, like, in the, like God, a Rob's level of research on this movie. I've consumed so much context about it between just, like, podcasts, YouTube videos, professional reviews, my own just history with this franchise for almost 20 years now. Um, I like I said, I I am genuinely just waiting to hear what Ben has to say because I know Rob has. Again, I'm not sure if you know Ben, but like Rob has alluded to you being like a super fan, so I'm genuinely excited to like delve into this with you. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the thing is like the idea of like del with No Way Home. Like we'll definitely cover that like roughly two months from now. It's the idea of Hollywood delving into nostalgia of the early 2000s, which is something they. God, like, we haven't really had, like, nostalgia of the 2000s. I know, like, in a couple I, – I forget what episode it was, Rob. We talked about, like, I love, like, what was it, from VH1, I love the 90s. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love the 80s. And the last thing they ever did was, like, I love the 2007s. <laughs> um, and, and we talked about the idea that just culturally speaking, like, cult, pop culture became so splintered at that point. You can never do another one of those specials because – Everybody has their own specific flavor of nostalgia. So the idea that like No Way Home is really kind of like – I don't want to say it's the first because it's not because we have other things in the culture that are trying to delve into that. But just Tobey Maguire Spider-Man being one of the last like few points of – God, everybody was able to swarm around it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the exception of the MCU, like just kind of excluding that for the sake of a nostalgic like conversation. Um, I felt like it was just something novel to talk about. And like I said, Ben really being the catalyst. I cannot overstate, folks, Ben's importance in getting this, like, over the goal line. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I think it's the whole idea of just, like, delving into this the idea of nostalgia. I know Rob makes fun of me for my Stockholm Syndrome with the uh, Disney and Marvel. Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, I think, is its own beast. It's something that I think Rob can agree with. It's something that really was well before Disney got its fingers into all this. Oh, sure. sure. And it's a beast unto its own. So, no, I am, like, for the same reason why I can't wait to go on a major diatribe at least a couple times in this discussion, I cannot wait to hear Ben's. And for the most part, I hope Ben just kind of, like, just drowns Rob out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I like I said, because of you guys, I look forward to this. Um, these movies are fine. Before I throw it over to you, Ben, there's something, one other administrative topic we have to cover. What is the name of this month's series? So, of course, we name all our series. Sometimes they're they're quick and easy, like the Henry Selleck series or, you know, Henry Selleck Directs or whatever we called that one. Uh, the, the 2001 Fort Year, you know, that type of thing. We always didn't have a name for these. I know last week, Zach was very excited about calling this Into the Spider Cast. 
which I absolutely hate because it is referencing our uh, demonic Favorite twin podcast of all time. I was going to say demonic twin podcast. So my my uh, retort because I had no retort last week. I think I wanted to say like I was like into the spider month. I like that you said, but then you changed it. I would like to pitch that we call this the Spider Month colon too many Spider Men, and the reason I pitch that is because it is a direct reference to Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and I know Zach will hate that I'm making that reference. Ben, do you remember when um what, what's his name Titus or whatever in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is trying out for Spider Men Two Too Many Spider Men on Broadway? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Zach is trying to name this this series something from what I hate, and I know Zach hates Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Tina Fey in general, so I'm going to pull from what Zach hates. So those are the two pitches. Ben, what do you think? What do you think the name of this series should be? I think this is the first time that we're asking you this since you did you picked the Rock series, which you called very nicely, The Rock Set Shit Straight, because <laughs> that's what he does in those movies. What do you think about this one, Ben? What's your thought on name for the series? Do you like either of the ones we've put forward? Do you have your own idea? What do you think? So in, I don't. I don't guess I don't know what Zach is referencing with Into the Spider Cast. So I, so the the I, podcast that we that I hate that Zach I don't know <laughs> might not hate completely. Okay, okay. Well, we have to explain this to Ben. There's <laughs> another. We, we, I can no, we point, don't. Another... I can just say that every time they take they take a title and put cast in it or podcast. Okay, in but it. Ro- okay, but this is the thing. Ben needs to know the context of this. Whether Ben agrees with it or not is that. Well, I pitched Rob this podcast because, again, Cinemodies is Rob's idea as in the name. But I'm like, Rob, we, like, there's a voice message somewhere, right, Rob? Where I'm like, we should do a podcast on cinematic oddities. Sure. <laughs> and the impetus was there's this, pod check, uh, pod check. there's this podcast called Blank Check that talks about uh, movie filmmakers who have like a figurative blank check where like the studio basically gives them kind of carte blanche on the budget. They can do whatever they want and they delve into a director's filmography. As much as Rob hates them, they're the reason why, like, after listening to them for months, I was like, Rob, we should do a – like, after Rob showed his affinity for the Star Wars podcast, I pitched him, like, we should do a a podcast on just either peculiar movies or looking at, oh, God, mainstream movies under the lens of just them being particularly odd or bizarre. And Rob's like, that's a fascinating concept. I should listen to this podcast. What's it called? Rob listened to like one and a half episodes. As Rob has infamously said a dozen plus times on here, he got halfway through the Big Fish episode and was like, fuck this. Fuck that. Yeah. They are bad. The Big Fish episode is a war crime. (laughs) And that's the thing. But like there's a part of this podcast where like even like Rob mentioned it, I think, in the pre-show recording where they did an episode on 1978's Halloween where their guest goes into like a 30-minute just dissertation about the origins of the horror genre. And I like I told Rob, I'm like someone clearly listens to this podcast that's involved with blank check because it's just it was too eerily similar because anyone who's listened to this podcast knows for years now I've wanted to do a series on the origins of horror where at one point I pitch it to Rob and Rob's like Zach that's like 36 episodes (laughs) I'm like it's okay Rob I can narrow it down to 32 if I have to and that's where it comes from, Ben. There's this fa- – God, like what? As much as you hate Blank Check, Rob, they are a popular like, movie oh, yeah. podcast, I mean, yes, they, right? They are very popular. Um, that's where it comes from. Whether you like it or not, that's where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. So first question, Ben. Zach said you needed that context. What do you think? Did you need that context? <laughs> I don't think that helped, that helped me understand the, the cast part of the name at all. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
I'm cutting all this out. We don't need to talk about blank check ever again. Zach is trying to emulate the way they name their series by calling this into the Spider Cast. That's all it needed to be said, Zach. Jesus, Ben, does that help a little? <laughs> okay, so it, I, I want Zach's take on this. Is is it true that you're just trying to emulate their name, or are you going with into the Spider Cast because we're talking about multiple different people playing Spider Man? Uh, is there a third option where it's called "It's Fun to Jab Rob"? <laughs> Is there, is there okay, I so think that's the this first is, option. This is just poking the bear. Yes. Um, it, okay. it, it, I'm prodding him. Which so is why say. my retort was, oh, like, I, I can't stand blank check. I don't want to do what they do, they've done. I know Zach doesn't like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So I'm going to reference whoa, something from whoa, Tina Fey. Whoa, whoa. I want on record that I went either way because at one point when I was still editing Cinemati's recordings, Rob said Unbreakable, and I did what they did where they insert the Unbreakable. And I don't think Rob, I forget what episode it was, but it showed up at some point in one of our discussions. And I don't think this day Rob ever fought me on the fact that I had a blank check reference in like the musical sting. Well, one, I don't know if I recall you or me knowing that you did that, or if I did, I didn't have a problem with it because I might not have known it was a blank check thing Two, That is not a blank check thing. When Ben and I were literally watching Kimmy Schmidt together, we would constantly say unbreakable to each other. Like that theme song was catchy, right? (laughs) But when they talk, they did Shyamalan, which was, I think one of their first directors and obviously unbreakable. The film came up in conversation. They would always insert that. It was kind of like our version of annihilation. Um, I'm, this I was conversation about to, is disappointing me. <laughs> That's um, what I'm saying. I'm Ben. I'm on your I side. I think this is irrelevant. <laughs> I don't care oh, about blank check. I've never heard of blank check. Okay. And I'm as far cutting, as I'm concerned, I don't copy anybody. Uh, I'm, I'm cutting all this out. Me. Ben, we're going back. We're, we're cutting out the last three minutes. My question to you, Ben, was <laughs> what do you think the title of this series should be? <laughs> ben, make up That's your all own name. we needed to ask. Make up your own name, Ben. Prove us both wrong. <laughs> I might need until the end of this episode to come That's up with That's fine. We'll, okay. we'll give him okay. the time. We're probably going to be arguing about this for the entirety of the Spider-Man series. Damn straight we are. So, okay, with that <laughs> out of the way, Ben is right. That was ridiculous, Zach. You're a crazy person. Let's get into the meat of it. <laughs> I have a question for you, Ben, and this is, gonna, this is where I want to get your context because as Zach has set up, you know, you're the Spider-Man fan out of the three of us. When I say this question, I'm not saying it in, like, a negative way. I really want to know. What is the appeal of Spider-Man? Like, why is Spider-Man such a, a big superhero to you type of thing? Okay, uh, I, I will address that, but I, I just thought of the dumbest name that we shouldn't <laughs> okay. use, but I can't not say it. Okay. Which is, it's Spider-Man. He's like a spider, but he's a man. Um <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean that's not the worst thing. I mean it's better than Into the Spider Cast. <laughs> so that that's just like a, a thing that I say whenever I like switch words out for other words. Um I'll be like, it's like this, but it's that. So anyway, that's um so that's some dumb shit that we don't have to use. Um why why do I like Spider Man? That's God, I mean that goes back to being a kid and watching Spider Man the animated series on television. I just, I guess I was enthralled at the idea of this person who was intelligent, um, and that was really his only defining characteristic, that he was intelligent slash nerdy before he got superpowers, and then, like, him getting superpowers and kind of struggling with, how do I 
how do I stay true to myself and not abuse these powers to like get vengeance on the people that were that wronged me when I was a, just a nerd? And that's obviously not a huge part of the Spider-Man story, but that's that's like you know kind of the beginning part of of the Spider-Man tale. And then beyond that, I think I I just like love his powers, like the fact that he can you know shoot webs at people and grab them and pull them into the air and then like just kick them or something you know like something so it's like it's it blends like a little bit of needing to know how to fight with also being super whereas heroes like iron man so like it's probably in that way it's it's quite quite a bit why i like batman as well is like batman actually knows martial arts and actually fights people uh whereas like iron man or superman or the hulk or any of those others they're just like ungodly strong it's like they they are never actually fighting uh they are you know they they are using their ridiculous strength to throw things into buildings Mm -hmm. whereas when spider-man comes up against a foe like the rhino that is actually on the same level of strength and also significantly heavier than spider-man he has to rely on on like his wit and intelligence to figure out how to bring the rhino down um and i i i guess i kind of always connected with that Beyond that, I mean, he's, he's uh, depending on, on which versions of Spider-Man you look at, he's kind of a jackass. And I also love that as well. Like, he's he just talks shit to people while he's beating them up, which I think is funny as fuck. Like, that is, there's a good portion of, of my early life that was spent just mastering my ability to talk shit to people. <laughs> and, nice. and, and part of that is I was overweight as a kid, so so people attempted to uh to make fun of me and and i always made fun of them so hard that their friends told them that they needed to stop like this conversation is not good for you it doesn't it's not making you look good you need to you need to back the fuck up because you're just you're just digging yourself into a hole you know and that that i think i also connect with spider-man about is that he's like quippy he's just like yeah uh, i remember like a one of the earliest games i ever saw spider-man in which i'm certain is not the first spider-man game uh, or the first game Spider-Man ever appeared in. It was actually an X-Men um, kind of like Tekken-style fighting game. And Spider-Man was an unlockable character. And he, he would say things like, you got to hit me to beat me, like as you were play- you know, in, in the game fighting. And it's just, like, I always just love that he's just like talking shit. Even when he's getting beat, like there are plenty of situations in which Spider-Man is definitely getting bested. And he's still just like talking shit, you know, trying to unnerve his opponent. Um and, and probably even use that against them to some degree to, to kind of push them off their like their mental game uh, yeah. long enough to, to actually in, interfere with with what they're doing uh, in terms of fighting. And so I, I guess there, there's like a number of reasons that I really connect with Spider-Man. But um, I, yeah, I mean, his ability, like it, the fact that he actually tries to mess with people's mental state while he's fighting them, it's like that's amazing. Like you don't. Like Thor doesn't do that. Thor hits people and throws hammers at them, and you know you got lightning and shit. And Captain America doesn't do that. Captain America's just—he's—he's he's a great fighter, but he's like way stronger than everybody he ever fights. Whereas Spider-Man, like I feel like he's when he's in a situation where he might actually lose, it feels like the stakes are real because Spider-Man could actually lose. Okay, where I feel like enough. a lot of other superheroes can't. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know what you're saying, and there there is a level of, I guess, uh, humanity to Spider-Man, especially in, you know, these first three movies we're going to discuss in just the Spider-Man story in general, is that, you know, he's balancing being a superhero with, you know, 
being a regular person. Like, you know, like the, the whole second movie, Spider-Man 2 with Tobey Maguire, they get into that a lot. But I get what you're saying, Ben, where it's like Tony Stark isn't a real person. He's a rich person. Thor isn't a real person. He's a god, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> right. Right. The closest the closest other superhero, which isn't Marvel, I would have to say is Batman. Sure. Because Batman, well, and, and maybe Green Arrow, because they're both doing that living the secret life kind of thing. Yeah. And, and balancing it. But they, they also have means like they're rich and that's probably another aspect i connected with spider-man about his family's poor like they're not destitute but they're not well off and they only have social security checks from aunt may to survive on essentially like they don't have means Mm -hmm. so he is not only trying to live the double life but he's actually trying to live the double life and probably work two jobs yes and yes so so it's you know that much harder, whereas Batman and, and Oliver or Bruce Wayne and Oliver Queen get get the free pass of the well they're already rich. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely probably connected with that some too because I, uh, you know, growing up I was I was the kid who as soon as I could I got a job because my family didn't have extra money. Would you say that Spider Man is your favorite superhero? Ooh, damn near. If not. If he's not my favorite superhero, my favorite superhero is one of the X-Men. Uh, okay. I really loved Wolverine as a kid, but I these days probably it's it's Spider-Man is probably edging out Wolverine. Right on, right on. So that that's good to know, Ben, that you have this, this history with Spider-Man or this a- attraction to Spider-Man because I think as we get into these movies, get into the rest of this month, there's going to be a lot of, you know, how is – as pretentious as the, the, the question it always is, is, you know, like, which one plays the best Peter Parker? Which one plays the best Spider-Man? I'm sure we're going to have to get into something like that. So that's good that you have this information. Um, my uh, history is boring. I've said it before. I played Yu-Gi-Oh! for years, professionally. Put me in a lot of comic book shops. I know a lot about comic book lore just through that osmosis and reading, like, books on the shelves, that type of stuff. But now I can't stand superheroes. They're not interesting to me. That's the thing. It's not that I, like, hate them or anything. It's that I don't find any of this interesting. So that's my context. But, Zach, now to you, since you're the uh, the curator of the series. What do you think about Spider-Man? What's your history? Are you uh, as big of a fan of Spider-Man in the superhero genre? Um, or, you know, is he one of your mid-tier to lower tiers? I don't know. What's your history with Spider-Man? Uh, my context is it's – oh, God, Rob's going to – Rob's going to eat this up. Um I, I I have it's funny because Rob knows this personally when he came out to New York that like I was having numerous yard sales yeah. trying to liquidate as much kind of crap out of my house as I could. Oh so yeah, I guess we all should also say uh, Babu Frick is no longer allowed on episodes. He was a terrible guest. Um, but Zach also did give me a wishbone stuffed animal. But wishbone doesn't talk, so wishbone can't be on the show. But that's what I got from Zach's yard sale. <laughs> yes, 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 he did, folks. Um, no, so like this, like it's I, I don't know where my origins of Spider Man begin because I have toys from the '90s series. I have a Spider Man. I have like Wendy's toys of like Spider Man and Doc Ock. I have a car of like Spider Man of uh, driving a car for some reason. Um, even it's funny. Even this morning, I was going through my Instagram feed and I saw like Disney toy box, Disney's like own toy line, has like a Spider-Man playset where he's like driving a car. And I'm like, I don't know what the fascination is of having Spider-Man drive a car. Apparently, like 25 plus years later, like as a toy, kids love seeing Spider-Man. But like Ben said, has all these like kind of like interesting powers. Um, seeing him do something as mundane as driving a car is just fun to kids. I don't know why. 
That but was the I, thing when we were kids too. They they put every superhero in their own car in some toy line. <laughs> exactly. But it's all things like even but it's funny like even today you do not so see whole, you don't see Wolverine driving a car. It's always Spider-Man driving a car or riding a motorcycle. Yeah. Um, I'm just tick, I'm, I'm tickled by that. I'd love to know what the uh, consumer like science behind that is. Um, but no, so like clearly it's one of those things that like as like even before I can even remember, I found it endearing. Um, I watched the 90s series to some point before I saw the movies. But this is the part where I think Rob's going to be tickled by it. Um, in the spring of 2002, this film came out the first weekend of May. The, like one of the first instances of Marvel just commanding the beginning of the summer movie blockbuster season. In April 2002, I was in fourth grade. I know Rob was. I don't know if Ben was at that time. Um, was fifth grade. Okay, so Ben, ben was – was even cooler than we were um <laughs> i remember everybody in that spring of 2002 talking about how like oh wow this movie looks so cool i can't wait to see it and as Rob's probably guessing with this me being a little contrarian i was was like no attack of the clones is gonna be so much better than this yep yep <laughs> and i remember just pushing a back against like all these kids being like no and obviously this came out like two weeks before attack of the clones everyone's just raving about it and me just having no idea what, like, any of this was at, like, nine years old, being like, this is stupid. I remember even getting, like, a Spider-Man, like, like memory foam keychain and deliberately, like, smashing his head in because I'm like, Spider-Man is stupid. <laughs> um, and then, this is the fun part of the story, was um, in July of 2002, uh, Men in Black 2 came out. And I enjoyed that film for what it was. I haven't watched it in forever, but I enjoyed it for what it was as a nine-year-old. And then my father wanted to see it in August of 2002, and we went to the, the movie theater when we still live in Florida. It was uh, Regal Hollywood 18, and we found out that they were doing – because they were both Sony films. They were doing a double feature of both. Uh, the top of the double feature was Men in Black, and the bottom, I believe, was Spider-Man. And we saw both. And I can remember like in line calling my mother because my father told me to be like, they call her on the cell phone. And tell her that, like, we're, we're going to be home late. Like, and so I did that and I saw Spider-Man and my life was fundamentally changed after that. Like, I was just blown away by how much I enjoyed this movie. Um, like, like, little old nine-year-old me had to eat so much crow. And after that, I, I pretty much got, like, I, this is really not important, but, like, my uncle got married. So we flew up to New York and my grandmother, I think we mentioned this in the Yellow Submarine episode, there was a James Way. If anybody doesn't know what that is, it was kind of like Kmart at the time, discount retail chain. And they had all this Spider-Man like merchandise like for pennies on the dollar. So I got like, oh God, like my favorite toy at the time was Norman Osborne in his like giant ornate chair where if you sat him down on it, there was the green goblin mask and it talked and it lit up. And like 10 year old me at that time, I was 10, thought it was the coolest thing ever because it's just Willem Dafoe yelling at him and shit. And I think it was just so funny as a toy. I have to um, say, I'd probably buy a Willem Dafoe yelling action figure from any movie right now. <laughs> it, exactly. Um, but no, like I bought all the merchandise. Like even I'm, I'm looking at it right now as we speak. I have a Norman Osborn, Willem Dafoe, Green Goblin figure. I have Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man to this. Like, he's he's still there. I have him battle damaged. Um, with his like half of his mask missing from the first film. Um, no, I fell in love with this character. Um, I fell in love with everything. So like when the 
uh, Spider-Man 2 came out in 2004, and on ABC Family, they did reruns every morning from 8 to 9 of the 90 series. I watched it religiously, um, and I once again, I fell in love with the character again. I bought as much of the toys as I could. I bought another Spider-Man toy. I had, two, I had at least... And I had a Doc Ock figure. It was really stupid because his sun his sunglasses weren't glued to his face, so they constantly fell off. Um, one of the more goofy toy designs, and we'll definitely get into the toys with this because I think that was kind of the reason why they they, they fast tracked this film as much as they did in the late nineties. Um, then even with uh, Spider Man three. I was so excited at that point. I was a teenager, but I remember like literally just religiously checking online sites. One of my first times of like checking gossip sites. And I, I loved Spider-Man 3 when I walked out of it in 2007. I thought it was so cool. Um, I really wasn't aware of any of this stuff on like a on the level that we look at it now. Um, but I, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I had the video games for all three films. I just – I couldn't digest this stuff fast enough. And then I'm not sure if Rob remembers this. I remember in 2010 when Spider-Man 4 was canceled – and talking to Rob about it in one of those many times where I would go meet him at his mother's classroom and we walked around the building. And I remember telling Rob, I'm like, this is a travesty. I can't believe that they canceled Spider-Man 4 and Thor took its spot in the release calendar. <laughs> um, well, maybe one of the earliest versions of a pre-recording Cinemonides discussion. Um, but no, I, I don't think I'm at Ben's level where like I, I, I looked at this character that level. I just kind of adored it as a form of pop culture media. Um, but it definitely like again, but it's truly the bedrock of my fascination with the superhero genre, which I don't think is exclusive to me. No, I mean we'll talk about the first Spider-Man and how it you know is probably one of the most influential movies we've talked about on Cinemodities. But okay, I'm I'm glad we got that background and and I, yeah, I'm, I do I, want to mention one thing about the uh, about the the first Spider-Man movie when it was in theaters. That was the the same summer that I graduated from Dare, and they gave us this card that let us go to the movies for free, <laughs> as much as we wanted. Nice, nice. And I cool. saw Spider Man in theaters like fifty times. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, ben, do you know off the top of your head what Dare stands for? Drug abuse resistance education. Holy shit. <laughs> I've been asking that people that question for years because someone gave me a really funny answer once, but Ben, you're the first person I think since like I was since this movie came out, you know, that has actually <laughs> known what that is. My favorite answer is I asked that to someone once and they said, uh, drugs are really evil. <laughs> <laughs> and I was um, like, I don't even know. I'm like, I don't care. That's what it is will be to me forever now. <laughs> Uh, there's this is a tangent, but there's a um, I th I think it's a Flowbot song. Oh no! So it's Johnny Five plus Yak. So it's it's Johnny Five is from Flowbots, mm -hmm. um, where there there's a verse where the first letter of every word spells dare repeatedly throughout the verse, uh, and and the first line is dare drugs are really expensive. <laughs> okay, nice. Well, that, uh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Drug availability reflects extensive dependence, and real educated descendants are able to respect even deadbeats' amendments. Like it's just, it's insane. Right on, right on. Uh, so Ben knows that drugs are really evil. That's good. <laughs> so no, I, I know that drugs are really expensive. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yes. I know that that's evil. Dare drugs are really expensive. Drug availability reflects extensive dependence, and real educated descendants are able to respect even deadbeats' amendments. Yes. 
That's where the evil comes from. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, out of all three of us, we've all seen all of these movies before, right? This is, this was, there was none of these that were a fresh watch for any of us? Is that the case? No, okay, yeah. I'm expecting that's from most of our audience. I think that's from most of the world. I mean, if you haven't even seen Spider-Man 3, you've seen 90% of it through memes these days type of thing. <laughs> I, I did not see the first or the second in the theaters. I don't know if Zach remembers this. Zach, Spider-Man 2 was a PSP watch for me. I own that for the PSP. <laughs> oh, God. And yeah. I still well, have it. It makes sense. It I, makes yeah. sense concerning that, like, Sony uses as their goddamn logo forever, like, it, their font yes. logo forever. Exactly. Yeah. So the first time I ever saw this movie was on PSP. I was, once again, just like with Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, another movie I own on PSP. I was tempted to watch it on the handheld device, but I did not because I don't know how to be able to work watching it on a handheld device and taking notes easily. So if anybody in the audience has never seen any of these movies, the Sam Raimi's Spider-Mans, the three Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, I have to give you a shout-out because these movies are so ubiquitous. So my question is, Zach, how do you want to break this down? Are there some top-line items you have about the existence of this trilogy? Are we oh, going to do it movie God. by movie? I know we can't do, like, movie by movie and, and different scenes because we're gonna, we would be here forever. But did you have a thought, Zach, when we've grouped them this way, well, about oh, how you okay. want to go through it? I, I I have thought about this. I don't I, – I, 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 like I said, part of me really wants to defer to Ben when it comes to just kind of structure for this. Um, but I do want to put a notion out there because uh, – God, I, I, I knew – Rob texted me at some point and Rob's just like, this is the Ben and Zach series. Like <laughs> I don't care. Um, but like like I said, structure-wise, I don't know. I think this is going to be one of those ones where we just kind of go with the flow because there's so much just like uh, – Okay, this is how I want to preface this. I, like I said, I adored these movies growing up. And then I, this is the first time I think I've rewatched any of them since I've been, like, it's Rob's talked a couple times on this podcast, like, putting your critical thinking cap on. And as I was watching these, this notion kind of hit me. These movies aren't particularly great, maybe not even good. They're just very quaint and cozy because of what filmmaking and especially the superhero genre has become in the last decade plus. Sure. Okay. Um, I I kind of equate, I looked at these, after thinking about these movies for the last few days, I kind of equate them to like the Statue of Liberty. And bear with me here for a second. Like Statue of Liberty is donated to, not donated, but gifted to the US by the French. And it's a copper statue, or at least it has that, veneer to it mm -hmm. and then over time it oxidizes into this green color that it's known it's it's ubiquitously known as that's how i see these movies these movies came out in a time where there was nothing quite else like it and then over time it just became this other thing that we now associate with which it wasn't its intent sure sure i, I like that analogy yeah and that's how i looked at these because like as i was watching these like again anybody can tell you Oh, the Raimi trilogy is held up. Not, it, there's this weird thing happening with Spider-Man 3 where it's it's that Star Wars prequel thing where people are reevaluating it, which, funny enough, I was one of those prior to rewatching it. Now I look at that film and I'd say it's almost on the same level as like Josh Trank, Fan Forstick, where I think it's almost incomprehensible because there's just so much nonsense shoved into it. Mm -hmm. I, I think the first two films are so quaint 
in that just between how the characters interact, and I'm deliberately keeping this very stripped down because I, I want to kind of wait where how Rob and Ben go at this, and then I'll kind of adjust how I want to attack it. Um, but I think these films are the first two films are so steeped in the character interactions that the superhero flair is more of a second priority because, like I said, I did an insane amount of research for this. And in every single single interview I watch where Sam Raimi is talking about these films, especially the first two, he's like, characters, characters, characters. Is the guy in the suit what gets people into seats? Yes. But it's the characters is what people are going to remember. And I think 20 years later, he was absolutely right because that's why everybody's excited about No Way Home. Nobody cares about Andrew Garfield coming back. They want to see Tobey Maguire back in the suit it's very similar to the luke skywalker force awakens thing they want to see the clint eastwood unforgiven they want to see the man back in the saddle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and that's kind of where i just want to leave this for right now is it, it's that notion of i just don't know what these films like they are so unique Compared to everything that would follow, it's weirdly enough, considering how much the culture has crapped on Spider-Man 3, that seems to be what all the other superhero films of the last 15 years have decided to pull from. Sure. Despite the fact that that was the film that was considered the worst and the one that should be, oh God, banished. The one that got memed the the most also. (laughs) Exactly. Um, yeah, and that's that's where I'm leaving this right now. But no, I, I am dying to see what you two have to say. So I, I think you bring up something in the the idea in there, Zach, that is is the nugget of of you know why I was so interested when when you pitched this, especially with since we are grouping these episodes by director and not just director by performances. You know, we're gonna do the Tobey Maguire like. In this episode, our Peter Parker is Tobey Maguire. Our Mary Jane is uh, Kirsten Dunst. You know, our Harry Osborn is James Franco. We get all these continuous performances in all these episodes. The thing that's always interested me the most about superheroes, and I, I, I guess I'm saying comic book superheroes, is that they are so well known throughout you know our culture and the world that everybody has their own kind of vision of it. Like you hear people, like I said before, you know, we're going to talk about the, you know, Peter Parker versus Spider-Man, but that comes up so often in the Batman movies. Like who's the best Bruce Wayne and then who's the best Batman? There's there's this great discussion about comic book superheroes because everybody has their own perception of them. You know, it's like my, what I think Spider-Man should be is probably different from what Ben and Zach think Spider-Man should be. My version of Silver Surfer is not the Silver Surfer they put into the second Tim Story Fantastic Four movie. So I guess I wanted to start there, or at least, you know, jump off from that point, Zach. Ben, with you being the fan, in these movies, all three, and maybe if you have certain, you know, ideas about how the character changes from movie to movie... Is this your Spider-Man? Is this your Peter Parker? What do you think about Tobey Maguire as a as a Spider-Man in these movies? Short answer, no. Okay. Long answer. So um, you've been you've been tweeting hashtag not my Spider-Man, and nobody understands why because nobody's rewatching these movies but us. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Yeah. To- hashtag Tobey Maguire is not my Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. Main. I mean, my answer can be boiled down to essentially he takes himself too seriously. Okay. And and that I think the, you know in terms of of s- supplying evidence for that, just look at the opening monologue in the first movie. If if somebody told you I was just a regular guy with not a care in the world, somebody lied. Like that's not Spider Man. That's so fucking like 
I don't, showy, I guess. Mm-hmm. He's like almost bragging about how difficult things are because he's Spider-Man. And that's not Spider-Man to me. Spider-Man is quippy. Spider-Man does not take too much shit seriously, no matter who dies. And in this case, it's just Norman. It's not even Mary Jane. Mary Jane doesn't even die. He would not be that somber about it. Like, that's not... They, they probably went the, the route of trying to make him a little more realistic. And not to say that the car, that the animated Spider-Man didn't have emotions and stuff, because he did. But he just takes himself too seriously. And I, like, I, I think that's really what all of my... Uh, complaints aren't exactly the right word, but like the the like where he deviates from what I want Spider-Man to be. Sure, sure. Do you think that comes across more in in the Spider-Man performance, in the Peter Parker performance? Or are you just kind of blending them together right now? Uh, it definitely comes across more in the in the Peter Parker. Performance. OK, OK. Well, um, I'm, I'm so I'm so glad Ben said this, because as I was rewatching these. I'm like, man, Tobey Maguire is the most stoic performance in these movies. Like, to a level that I would think is, like, oh, God, my memory is so tainted with nostalgia. He is so stoic. Like, he, the only emotion he shows is crying. Yeah. And he does that, like, and that's all he does. He either is just monotone or he cries. And like Ben, like, I don't have a Spider-Man. Like, I cannot point to any incarnation of Spider-Man and be like, okay. Like, whereas, like, with James Bond, I can point to Pierce Brosnan and be like, that's my Bond. I mean, if I don't like everything he did, that when I think of Bond, that's the image it conjures up. And with this, Tobey Maguire, like, I, and that's the thing. Like, in a lot of my research for this, I couldn't find anything that would lead me to believe that like he was told to perform this way okay. because in all the interviews that I saw with him, like, like not just with him, but like with Sam Raimi, uh, Kirsten Dunst, Willem Dafoe, it seems like Tobey Maguire was kind of allowed to, as long as he followed the script, he was able to emote any way he saw fit. So I, I will say that I think that the script takes uh, Spider-Man too seriously as well. And I think that's evidenced by that opening monologue as as well. Sure. Which is just like, who am I? The story of my life's not for the faint of heart. Like, he's not saying, well, and that's to be fair, I, I could say that like it's kind of funny. He does not. So maybe it is mostly Tobey Maguire and not, I, I don't know. That's that's honestly where, where I'm going to lean on Robin Zack a little more. Because when it comes to writing versus directing, I'm not always the best at kind of just, you know, dissecting them apart so i don't know i guess i just want to pitch that out there do you think that the writing is part at least partially responsible for to- the way Tobey Maguire played the character i i think that there i think that's a confluence of of things i mean sure the writing you know that this this was something very specific I, i'm sure zach will want to get into you know this basically this movie takes 18 years to make because of the the history of who was going to be spider-man who's directing it what are they even going to do in the movie um, it, it's such a long story process, but I think you're right, Ben, in that the writing is to blame at some point in the first movie, because the first movie is so indebted to the Spider-Man tale. Like there is the, the movie is the first movie. I was kind of shocked by how like it just starts and it's going like this movie is just breakneck speed, giving you Spider-Man, giving you Green Goblin, setting up everything it needs to. Like the first scene that I thought was bullshit in the first Spider-Man movie came at like an hour and five minutes in. Like the first hour, I was just on board, and I think since it's so like tied to the Spider-Man lore, that Tobey Maguire might be seeing it kind of in the way that I formed the question to you is that you know. 
who is your Spider-Man? Maybe this is what Tobey Maguire sees as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man, and he just stuck to it because it was so, you know, kind of tied to the, the, the story, the origin story that everybody knows. I kind of thought of it almost some sense of what we talked about when we did Watchmen, Zack, where Zack Snyder was so indebted and tied to the source material that it kind of stripped away any elements that could make the movie a little bit more fun, if that makes sense. Um, like, th- that's the weird thing about this, is that, like, I, I I don't know if I can argue any of this, because we we don't know, in the sense of, if you look at where Spider-Man comics were in the 90s, like, that was what, Todd McFarlane was just kind of coming to an end, mm-hmm. um, Spider, not that Spider-Man's been overly pulpy, but he, like Ben said, he is a lively character, like, you would never, de- like, if you looked, if you read Spider-Man comics, you would never describe him as stoic, you would yes. never describe yeah. him that way. And if you look at like I, that's one thing I did. I I, fought, I look back at Tobey Maguire's filmography, Sam Raimi's filmography, and like again, as we all know, and as Rob begrudgingly holds against me, the fact that I pulled Evil Dead out of the Monstoba rotation at the last minute. Those are good Sam um, Raimi movies. <laughs> well, I re- I regret it now, Rob. You won. You won, Rob. <laughs> I don't regret malignant, but I regret pulling Evil Dead out of the rotation. Tobey Maguire, much like many other actors in Hollywood, has one note. If you look at all of his movies prior to this, whether it be things like The Cider House Rules, he plays stoic gentleman. Yes, yes. Not gentleman, gentle man, two separate words. Yeah, what's the Ang Lee movie he's in? Is it Ride with the Devil? The Civil War? Is uh, that Civil War? The Ice House. The, no, the, the Ice Storm? The Ice Storm. Is it the Ice Storm? I think I thought that was the Elijah. I think it's right. Okay, whatever. But yeah, he's stoic. I'm agreeing with you, Zach. <laughs> That's, and I think, and I think, if you go, like I said, it's funny. Even like I forgot about this character. But we talked about him. God, what was it? Three Novembers ago, Avi Arad during the uh, Roger Corman Fantastic Four. Yep. Um, Avi Arad was part of that whole like kind of like I don't want to say hostile takeover of Marvel, but when Marvel was like in bankruptcy in the '90s, he and like. Ike Perlmutter came in as White Knights and saved the company. And they were mostly, I don't want to say exclusively toy people, but they came from more of a merchandising thing where you try to keep things not bland, oh, yeah. but yeah. you want to keep things as accessible as possible. And I, I guess it, and even in my – maybe Rob and Ben, you know better. In my research for this, I couldn't even find like another short list of actors they had in mind. Um, they talk about how – like Tobey Maguire talks about in the interviews for this that he had to audition a couple of times. But you never hear of other actors that were in contention for this. Like seriously, there's always a few names floating out in the ether. But like even when it came to Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin, like you hear stories like, oh, they wanted John Malkovich, um, which was clearly someone that Raimi wanted because he was always the alleged uh, vulture for Spider-Man 4 that never got off the ground. Um, but you never hear who else they had in mind for to- for a Spider-Man, Peter Parker. Ah. And I think they just – I think the reason why – and this is where I don't know if it's uh, Tobey Maguire or if it's the producers. Um, I'm not blaming Sam Raimi for this because we all know Sam Raimi loves his camp and schlock. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I think for the most part he, he is weirdly the hero of this franchise because he also had the state of mind back in like 2010 to say, I want no more parts of this. Yeah. It's there, yours. there were moments now. in each of these three movies where I'm watching it and I go, oh, yeah, oh, that's right. I am watching a Sam Raimi movie. Like the Green Goblin straight up turning people into skeletons in the first movie. 
um, the mechanical arms waking up and Dr. Octopus in the second movie. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is Sam Raimi. <laughs> exactly. His his footprint is very visible throughout all of these movies. Um, but I think the reason why Tobey Maguire was cast – and again, I do, again, this is my conjecture – I think they want a blank slate. They they want that like just blank canvas. Yeah. They wanted to Bella Swan this, so anybody could project themselves onto the Spider-Man character. Because how would you even describe? Oh God, Spider-Man Peter Parker in in this movie, just the 2002 movie. It's like he's he's intelligent because we're told he is. We don't really ever yeah. see him do anything smart. Um, okay, I'm, not... I'm glad you bring this up because this was a big thing I had with all three movies is because, you know, once again, like we talked about, people have their version of superheroes. I've always known that like Spider-Man, he, I, my thought is he's quippy, he's fast, and he's smart. Like that, those were the three things. In all three of these movies, they talk about how he's smart. Does it ever actually matter? Does he actually mm. do anything with his intelligence? Like, I think the second movie, this stood out to me the most because they do the whole thing like, oh, you know, they introduce Dr. Connors, who's supposed to be the lizard eventually. I guess they would have done that in, like, Spider-Man 6 or something if Sam Raimi kept it on. But, like, Dr. Connors is like, oh, Peter, you're brilliant, but you're, you're not responsible because he's doing his Spider-Man stuff. And then it's like, oh, I'm the biggest fan of Dr. Otto Octavius. I've read all of his papers, and I've understood them. And then at the end of Spider-Man 2, when he needs to shut down the machine, he's like, I don't know how to shut this down. I need Dr. Otto Octavius to do it. And I'm like, aren't you supposed to be a genius? Like, aren't you supposed to be the only other person on the planet that understands this technology? I want to get your guys' thoughts on that. The smartness of Spider-Man seems to be a line of dialogue in these movies and not a character trait. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's really uh, well evidenced in the second movie when he's shutting down the machine the first time. He resorts to <laughs> yes. pulling on the wires. Um, I love that there's like a close-up shot of like wires plugged in to indicate that Spider-Man has seen them and knows he needs to unplug them. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that it's it's almost even like throwaway dialogue. Like he they, they do not they do not lean on him being intelligent uh, in this and. I, I, again, that's that's part of why he's not my Spider-Man. Yeah, he's yeah. Um, like it, and and I, and I know that there are people who are going to say like the, the newer cartoons are like a little more woke or whatever than than they're happy with, but in even the new cartoon that's streaming on Disney Plus, like you get evidence that Spider-Man is not only intelligent but but works with other intelligent people, and like he at times their intelligence is the only reason that they're able to get out of whatever situations they're in. And that's not evidenced at all in these movies. To to continue on, on the, the Spider-Man thing with you, Ben, uh, just because it popped in my head, because I want to get back to Tobey Maguire's performance and Tobey Maguire in general, but Ben, are you a fan of the natural web shooters or the mechanical invented oh, web shooters? Oh, boy. Uh, like, which one, which one is, I don't, is, or is okay. that not something that comes into play with your Spider-Man? Not to interrupt Ben, but may I interject, and it's not going to affect Ben's statement. We're going down the levels. <laughs> We're not going down the levels. I, I, this is my opinion. I, who cares? It's, it's, a, it's a device for him to swing. Well, that, I think that's kind of where I stand, and that's why I asked And at the end, Ben. I said, you know, I, does I, that I even play Let a ben role? Let Ben continue. Forgive me, Ben. Um, okay, so from, from living in this world where he – developed spider-like traits from being bit by a spider 
I don't hate the idea of him naturally generating webs on his own. Mm-hmm. But not many, if any, spiders shoot their webs. They attach their webs and then move sure. and pull their webs with them. So it is never – and not only that, they also typically come out of the rear of the body. And I think there's even like a Fairly Odd Parents episode yes, that makes fun of yes, this. Yeah, where yeah. where um, I, maybe Timmy Turner is dressed like Spider-Man and he has a web coming out of his butt. So I think from the standpoint of having these webs be things that are actually useful, the cartridges makes way more sense. And then later, going on to Spider-Man where he manipulates the web so that he can like shock people with them or, or, or do different things, uh, that is obviously just more accessible if you have the cartridge shooters as opposed to organic Sure, okay, shooters. okay. And so I think that... Also, the cartridges just kind of they they lend themselves as like a a suspense mechanism in in the stories because you know you'll get things where he's like I'm in the middle of this fight but I just fought somebody else before this and I'm running low on web mm. and so I have to use the fact that I or I have to, I have to not use but I have to like deal with the fact that I don't have as much web as I'm used to having and I might run out of web during this fight and I have to fight around that piece of information. Um, and I think that that is that's something you just can't have in the organic situation. Okay, Got, you know that that makes perfect sense, and I'm I'm sure that the the natural or organic versus you know invented web shooters will come up next week when we discuss the Andrew Garfield movies. But Zach, so you you said before about Tobey Maguire that he's stoic, and that is such the right word for it because I didn't ha- have that thought as I was watching these movies. But you're absolutely right. My thought is that he's playing. Definitely in the first one, lesser so in the, in the next two because, you know, his, he goes through this character growth and then the whole Venom thing in the third. But in the first movie, Tobey Maguire is playing Peter Parker as, like, so downtrodden and timid. Like, when he is, before he's Spider-Man, when he's just talking to people, he really comes across to me as, like, he's doing, like, what Michael Sarah would do for the rest of his career. Like, almost sad, soft whispers. And you're right, though, that it's stoic, that he's playing it completely seriously. And it's just, it's just a weird kind of thing to watch, is, is seeing someone do something so reserved. But then, once he becomes Spider-Man, he's still stoic. I mean, he has some quippy one-liners throughout this trilogy, but... I'm also thinking of, like, all the faces he makes when he's straining to hold the train back in the second one or to lift up a, a, a wall or something like that. It, it's an interesting thought, but, yeah, Tobey Maguire's a weird actor. I don't know. Do you guys like Tobey Maguire in general? I no. find it strange that somebody <laughs> with just a says face— no. <laughs> uh, that somebody with a face that goofy can d- have himself described as stoic by anybody. <laughs> like— like, don't get me wrong. He is The performance stoic. is goofy, not his face. I'm no, sorry, his face. The performance is, is stoic, not his face. Okay, yes. His his performance is stoic, but his face is goofy as shit. And I'm just like, I, I get this, like, weird, um, like, dissonance while I'm looking at him. Did either of you guys read the behind-the-scenes thing that apparently during this trilogy, James Franco once said to Tobey Maguire, you have a face like a frog, and Tobey Maguire hates James Franco now? (laughs) 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 I was reading about that, and I'm like, like, okay, that's pretty cool. (laughs) 
He's not entirely wrong. Yeah, that that's what it made me think of. So, oh, okay, that's interesting. So, I mean, Tobey Maguire is not something, not somebody, an actor. I've seen a lot of his stuff. Well, okay, may I may I give my own like weird like context for Tobey Maguire? Not personally, but just my understanding of him. Right before you do that, I have to say, it turns out he was in both The Ice Storm and Ride with the Devil. We were both correct, Zach. He's in there two Ang Lee movies. I did not know that. <laughs> This is the thing. Remember, like again, if you remember your Tobey Maguire history, he was part of the Pussy Posse. Oh yes, with DiCaprio. Yep, yep. And so, like, if you're looking at this film, like when he was cast in like 2000, he was a quasi form of Hollywood like royalty, not mm-hmm. royalty, but just like he was the it like posse. Yes, yes. And so I would imagine that like they wanted an up, they want a. Tony McGuire wasn't ubiquitous. This is the film that made him ubiquitous. I think they wanted someone that was recognizable, and I think they left him alone. I think this is like – it's weird to think of it this way, but like – this is a little bit – it's funny. I, I texted Rob like, oh, Rob, can we talk about Jimmy C. like Spider-Man? And Rob's response was <laughs> eye roll. Like yes. he didn't write that out. He didn't send an emoji, but I could sense it through just like the subtext of the text message I got. Um, but like – the Spider-Man right situation from like the 80s all the way up until this film, the 2002 film, was a jumbled mess. And I think the powers that be, that being Sony, were just so thrilled that this was finally coming together. They really didn't have any like major notes. I think they were just so happy they had a star attached to this. Mm-hmm. They were like, okay, we're going to allow everybody within reason to do what they think is best. And the, and I would imagine, Rob, you you probably read about this. I don't know. Ben's like, hit, like, like hardcore understanding of this franchise. But Sam Raimi was apparently a huge Spider-Man fil- uh, yes. fan. Yeah. To the point where like he made a big point like in the press tour in 2002 saying like, oh, when I was a kid, my parents paid a local artist $30 to paint a Spider-Man mural on my like childhood room, like bedroom wall. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I figured Ben didn't know that he would approve. That's where it was. Where like they trust, they trusted their their partners, their their yeah. schools. Whereas now that's not a thing. The studio has unilateral control. They're going to just bully anybody on any decision, no matter how small or large it is. And I think they left everything alone because, again, Rob, I think you'll eat this up if you don't know it already, that apparently on the set of the first film when they weren't shooting, James Franco would read James Joyce in the corner. <laughs> I did not know that, but I love it. Uh, I would love to know which James Joyce he was reading, but sure. <laughs> and, and and that's the thing is that, like, I, I don't think they micromanaged any of this. I think they kind of said, okay – and again, this is also in the era where Avi Arad was the golden child of yeah. Marvel. Yeah. Where he had unilateral control. And if Avi Arad signed off on something, it got the, like, the unilateral thumbs up across the board with the studio. And he was the one that kind of torpedoed, so to speak, Spider-Man 3 because he was the one who shoved Venom down the throats of everybody involved. Which yeah. Which we can't blame him because, ironically, 20 years later, Venom is a bigger character than he's ever been. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's something I knew we'd have to get to with the um, with Spider-Man 3 and Venom currently. Um, I'm glad you brought up the pussy pussy. 
I was trying to think of how to work that into this discussion with Tobey Maguire. But yeah, it's not like he is an unknown when this movie get cast. I mean, what's it? Uh, the two Ang Lee movies we said were before this. And then he, what? He's big in the Cider House Rules, I think. Yeah, Cider House Rules was like the one that was like, oh, like everybody took that was. Yeah, everybody took yeah. notice to him at that. Point. That I mean, I I don't know my timeline, but Pleasantville, of course, people know him from. Um, he has the one great scene in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas before this, but then he's always known as Spider-Man. I mean, even when, you know, Zach, you and I saw him in The Great Gatsby, it's like, it's Spider-Man, you know, that type it's the of same, thing. It's, it's funny, it's funny, I was thinking about that so much while watching these films, I'm like, oh, he has no range. Like you said, it's that's that Michael Sarah thing of, I have one note, and I'm going to play it very hard. And, and that's the thing, like, what's the difference between Nick and Peter Parker like between 2015 and then 2002, four and seven, you gotta give at the very least give him credit that he looks the same. He hasn't. He's aged rather gracefully. Yes, but as an actor, he is just he he just is he's stoic man. Yeah, and I think that's why my personal favorite performance from Tobey Maguire is in the TV show The Spoils of Babylon because I think he's actually making fun of how stoic he is. There's a a wildly hilarious moment in the spoils of Babylon where Tobey Maguire is like kneeling or sitting in front of a grave. And he just, he just like is silently shaking his head and he starts looking angrier and angrier. And then I think one of the other characters comes out and says like, Oh, you know, what are you doing? Whatever his name is in that show. Like Toby, what are you doing? And he's like, he gives some monologue and it's very stoic and it's very like played, you know, straight, but this is a comedy show. And then at the end of the monologue, he goes, this will not stand. This will not stand, and he does like the on the knees, like shaking at the at the at the sky type of thing. Like it's make, he's making fun of that stoicism. Cynthia, oh, oh, you tried to warn me. You did. It was Winston, wasn't it? Please, Devin. He is but a boy. A boy. A boy. A man. A, a child. An infant. A fetus. A girl. An eagle. A vegetable. What does it matter? There's a clear difference between right and wrong. Am I right, Cynthia? Oh, it seems we don't have anything to say to each other. What about the beach? Did that mean nothing to you? It meant everything. I love you, Cynthia. I will always love you. But this will not stand. No. This will not stand! I also want to shout out, when we, as we finish up Tobey Maguire, he is the other gay priest in the fake trailer with Robert Downey Jr. at the start of Tropic, Tropic Thunder. Thunder. <laughs> oh. Another great performance from uh, Tobey Maguire where he has to say, no, I don't think he has any lines of dialogue. He just has to hold Robert Downey Jr.'s hand. <laughs> so... The, there's a lot of interesting things. I want to kind of transi- transition from our hero to the villains. Ben, do you have an affinity, just like you have with Spider-Man as the superhero, do you have an affinity with his villains? You know, like people love the Joker or people love, you know, people have their villains. Do you have any of that kind of um, affinity for any of the ones we get in this trilogy? So that'd be what, Venom, Doc Ock, Green Goblin, Green Goblin um, Redux, I guess, <laughs> Sandman. <laughs> I, I kind of like Hobgoblin, but I definitely think Venom was probably, um, out, of, out of the ones in this series, Venom was maybe my favorite. Okay. Uh, but I, I think 
overall, like my favorite are uh, Doctor Connor as as the lizard, mm-hmm. and um, I don't even know if he quite counts as a uh, as a villain. But uh, is it Morbius? Is that oh, his name? The, the, uh, vampire? the vampire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah Morbius, living vampire. Yeah. Um, and like that was in the in the nineteen nineties cartoon. That's when you get like a Blade Spider Man crossover thing. That was pretty dope. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like yeah, so they, I, they didn't really they didn't really hit my uh, favorite villains too much. But Venom, out of all of them, is probably my favorite. For, okay, for these. okay. Because that that's something that I I think you know everybody here knows and our cinema audience knows. I attach to the villains a lot more in these stories, especially when I was rewatching these three, where I'm like, I know the origin story of Spider Man. I've seen these movies before. I kind of wanted to put more of a um, a lens from my viewing, at least on the villains. I don't think this is a hot take or anything. I think this is actually common from what I was reading. Alfred Molina as Doc Ock is wonderful. I loved him in the second movie. But I think my favorite villain and probably also, like, favorite, like, arc or sequences in the movie all relate to Sandman. Like, I think Thomas Hayden Church's Sandman is amazing. And I was, like, almost awestruck re-watching his origin scene. Like, when he rebuilds himself out of sand, I was like, this is great. I'm like... I'm like, I know everybody memes the emo Peter Parker dancing and doing finger guns, but I'm like, wh- where has this been? Why isn't this clip on the internet? This is awesome. So I love Doc Ock and Sandman. I don't know, Sandman in the third movie was probably the only thing about it that truly clicked with me. <laughs> uh, so even even given that I, that I do like Venom as a character, I am more partial to Symbiote Spidey than I am to Venom, which is, of course, Spider-Man with the symbiote on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, as kind of cool as the black Spider-Man costume looked, I hated that they left the web markings on it. Like, Ooh. they made it look like a black version of Spider-Man's costume, yeah, and yeah, that is it, not what the symbiote Spidey it basically looked like. The third the movie implies that, you know, the, the Venom symbiote has dyed one of his Spider-Man suits a different color. <laughs> Essentially, whereas yeah. <laughs> in in the original cartoons, uh, and and I, and this is something I, I may get lambasted for. I I never did read comics as a kid. I, I never really could afford them, and and that just wasn't what I was into at the time. Despite the fact that I did like all of these comic book shows in in the '90s Spider-Man, like that's the symbiote Spidey that I love, which is where he's basically solid black with the white spider symbol. Oh, okay. And you know, it, it also kind of goes towards the explanation uh, to some degree as to why Venom has Spider-Man-like powers because he learned them from Spider-Man. Yes. Whereas, yes. Uh, and and I think, I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit. We'll, we'll get into that in the Venom series. Um, but yeah, so, so even though they did Venom and they did Symbiote Spidey, and Symbiote Spidey is one of my favorite costume changes of Spidey ever, I, and even though I do like the way the suit looks, it's not symbiote Spidey, and I mm. don't like that. Yeah, that that's fair. That's fair. I I, I think um, you know Ben and Zach. No, I have not yet seen the either Venom movie, but I can't wait to check it out. Venom's not one I knew too much about. Um, you know, when I was younger. But but Zach, what do you think? Did you have like a, a good villain? In like, did you have like? What do you think about the Sandman sequences? The Venom use of Venom. Well, Topher Grace is Venom. The, you know. <laughs> oh God, Topher Grace. There's Eric Foreman. Okay, I guess I guess maybe to kick this this discussion off as we talk about villains, I was kind of just bamboozled by the fact that in Spider-Man Three, a movie that I had only ever seen once prior, I think the year it came out, I, I saw that one in theaters. I'm pretty sure I had no recollection of what happened in this movie other than the memes. 
I even thought Pizza Time was from Spider-Man 3, but it turns out that's from Spider-Man 2. How crazy is it that in the third act of Spider-Man 3, Eddie Brock goes to a church and prays for Spider-Man to die? <laughs> oh, I saw yeah, that and I was like, shit. I was like, this, I'm like, they're really doing this. <laughs> it's Brock, sir. Edward Brock Jr. I come before you today humbled and humiliated to ask you for one thing. I want you to kill Peter Parker. Yeah. But this is, but, but okay, but this, that's a great point. Um, but like, this is the problem is that Spider-Man three movie. Like I've said, I think it's practically unwatchable. I think that third movie, like you, Rob, I went into that. I'm like, Oh, I remember Thomas Hayden church being so like God, like his performance as the Sandman Flint Marco. I'm like, wow. Like it's like a one-to-one translation, like jumping off the page. And then you watch the movie and he has outside of that one moment, um, maybe, maybe two moments, maybe one and a half moments, the part where he like sneaks into his like apartment when it's his wife and daughter. And then at the end where he's talking to, uh, Tobey Maguire, he has nothing to do. He's just a CGI character. Like we see him rob. And that's the thing that makes me so frustrated is that like he, Thomas Hayden church is trying where you can kind of claim Tobey Maguire is sleepwalking through all this. He's at least trying. And I just, I just don't know what to make of it. Like, that's the thing where I don't know how much of it is. And this goes back to your comment about Topher Grace Venom, like praying for God to kill somebody. It's a wild scene. Yeah, (laughs) it is. But I just don't know how much of that is intentional camp. And, or how much is it is unintentional camp? And I genuinely can't tell. I I, I cannot separate, like, oh, I, I just don't know. If that moment were in either Spider-Man 1 or 2, I'd be like, this is Sam Raimi, like, playing into his just try-and-true formula of camp. In Spider-Man 3, I'm like, I, I don't know. I just, I can't tell. I can't separate what's, what's goofy from intentional. I think, I, I just want to track this down. So you... Are you? Did you say that you think Spider-Man Three is unwatchable? Is that what you said? I, I think it's fan four stick level. I think there's so much oh, nonsense wow. just happening. Um, I I would I, Rob you again. I don't know how much Ben knows about my fascination with Josh Trank's Fantastic Four. Um, I think it's closer to that than probably any other superhero movie. Like, not counting like the Roger Corman Fantastic Four because that was technically well, a never released film. Yeah. Um, and I'm not counting like the oh god the uh, Captain America film from like what the late '80s early '90s where the he, like, one he where steals. he steals a motorcycle right yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> so, oh god what's his name um J D Salinger's son yeah that who it is that's right I was I was about to say I'm not going to remember it is but it's yeah it's J D Salinger's son but okay I'm so, not counting I mean major blockbuster superhero well films. sure I, I, think I think it's almost unwatchable I think I there's think... just so you're, much random nonsense. You're coming in with a lot of this this other industry information that I I was not you know ready with because I was just watching these three movies, trying to remove my my distaste for the superhero genre genre, just trying to watch them to be able to have this discussion. I think three is the only one that has anything mildly interesting going on. One and two are fine. I might even be tempted to say Spider Man Two is a good movie, but three was the only one where I'm like, oh, finally something I can latch on to. Type of thing. I don't think I didn't think it was unwatchable at all. I, I th- well, I, I okay. 
I don't mean unwatchable. Okay, this is where again, this is going to go back into me and Rob having the philosophical debate of men, women, and children and malignant. Spider Man Three felt the shortest out of all of them. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, and it's well, the longest. Uh, well, maybe it's because you're not familiar with this. Like I know every single mo- one of these movies like the back of my hand. Okay, yeah, I did not. Um, I, I this was almost like watching them all for the first time again. <laughs> okay, so, so that's where I think you and I are looking at this from two different lenses or through two different lenses because. Not that you can't watch Spider-Man 3. I just see so many seams. I can tell this is a Frankenstein's monster. And but I can't isn't that, the, that. Isn't Doesn't that make it the best? Because it's a big, crazy blockbuster that's a, a mess? Yeah, well, well, no, Rob, this is, again, this is the malignant men, women, and children dilemma. <laughs> Whereas, yes, but I don't, I'm not deriving pleasure from this because oh, okay, it's okay. so, like, that's the thing. If this was – I'm trying to think of just um, a director. Like if this was Kenneth Branagh's Spider-Man 3, I would be like, oh, this is fantastic. I'm like, this is Kenneth Branagh getting the system shoved up his ass, and this is hysterical. Sam Raimi is everything I want in a filmmaker. He's a campy, goofy filmmaker who understands cinema on practically every level – and Avi Arad is taking the studio system and basically sodomizing him. Well, sure, yeah. And I detest, because like I said, going back to the Roger uh, Corman Fantastic Four documentary, ever since that Avi Arad alleges that he burned every print of that film, which, as we know, burning, oh God, any form of art, for better or for worse, is a crime. No, no, like I, I am going to sit there. No, and that's the thing. I can feel Sam Raimi's agony because for years I was always one of those people. If you ever listen to Zang this, and I've become weirdly Zanger's like unofficial like Spider Man correspondent. Anytime something Spider Man happens, Zanger has me on oh, to give some frame of reference for it. And I was always one of those Spider Man three apologists where I'm like, no, it's a dweeb's version of evil. And as I watch Spider-Man 3, I'm like, emo Peter Parker is literally the least egregious thing in this film. There are so many things that (laughs) happen in this movie that are just so unnecessary, superfluous, arbitrary. I'm like, watching Peter Parker, like, try to, what would you even call it, embarrass Mary Jane at the nightclub? I have no problem with that. That's Sam Raimi just saying, I don't care, I'm doing what I think is amusing, for better or for worse. It's... It's, oh God, Christopher Nolan tenant level of just like, I don't care. Fuck the audience. I'm going to have fun right now. Sure. And yet when you bring up the Avi Arad, you know, Avi Arad is the famously the reason is like he, you know, um, Sam Raimi works on Spider-Man 3 and he's like, let's do uh, Harry Osborn. You know, we pick up the thread from the second movie that he learns that, you know, or he thinks Spider-Man's the killer of his father. He learns about the Green Goblin, pick up that thread, and let's do Sandman. Very famously, Avi Arad's the one that goes, no, we need Venom 2. We need to jam everything in, that type of thing. But before and, we and, get any also, further, I got to know. Real quick. We're real quick, real quick. Zach, we're split. We, get, we don't know Ben's thoughts on Spider-Man 3 yet. That's that's what I'm saying. Well, I, well, can I give one, <laughs> one, one context thing to Avi Arad before we, we get Ben's opinion on Spider-Man 3? Uh... I, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if okay. that will impact Ben's, Ben's thoughts. It, won't, it sure. won't impact Ben. That's why I'm, I just want to get in before we, we uh, switch. We give Ben the spotlight. Avi Arad's the reason why Kevin Feige, the person that the internet cannot suck off enough, oh, well, yeah. walked away walked away from Marvel and tried to do his own thing with the brand. Yep. Because Kevin Feige was so frustrated 
with Avi Arad's misunderstanding of these characters. And even though Rob, you and I, I are, are not as enthusiastic about the Marvel Disney thing as others are, we cannot argue the financial success of these. Films. Oh, of, of course, of course, and that's what it, that's why Avi Arad's famous because you know, I mean, even before this, he's he's basically the person that saved Marvel almost type of thing. Yeah, his his wheeling and dealing. Yeah. That's but that's the thing though is that like Sam Raimi, who I think we both agree is a lovely, fantastic filmmaker. Sometimes, yeah, <laughs> we enjoy him at the very least. We don't we we're not insulted by his existence. He's the reason like Avi Arad's the reason why like Sam Raimi's like no enough I'm done. Yes, and yes. he's also the same reason why Kevin Feige says all right I want nothing to do with you and walks away. Yeah, and I just want that in there as just a context point, but. By all means, I, I, think, want, no, I, I also I want, now I have to say I think also Avi Arad. The story is that when they, when Ang Lee does the Hulk movie, Avi Arad's the one who's like, make Hulk fight bugs, and everybody's like, is that a thing from the comic? And he's like, no, 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 just make him fight big bugs. <laughs> well, like I said, Avi Arad is like the John Peters of Marvel, where he's exactly. just this bad man that latched on, and like he's like, if you look again. Ben can tell you in the credits for Venom Two, the Crimes of Carnage Wald, <laughs> his name is in the credits. Like he's well, yeah, still yeah. here. Oh, now I'm just imagining John Peters pitching a Spider-Man movie. Have Spider-Man fight a giant spider. People are like, "What?" and be like, "He just needs oh, to fight a oh, giant spider." Real quick, okay, I, this is off topic, but in okay, I it, you know it has to it has to quasi do with all this. As in the previews for Venom Two. The crimes of Woody Harrelson. Paul Thomas Anderson is making like a seventy. He's doing another Boogie Nights essentially. Okay. okay. And there's a character that is John Peters essentially. Oh, pl- yes, please. But, but no, but real life John Peters, as in like the the hairstylist who's like like working with Barbara Streisand. Okay. I just want to put that out there. I saw that in the in the previews for Venom 2, and we talked about John Peters. Rob, come on. We can count on one hand the amount of times that we talk about John Peters on this podcast. And any excuse to mention him is worth bringing him up. Love me a John Peters. Is the movie you're talking about Licorice Pizza? Yes, yes. Oh, my God. Benny Safdie's in it. Tom Waits yes. is in it? What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this is interesting. I'm sorry, Ben, please, not Ben. Ben, yes, Glenn, Ben is ben rolling his us. eyes. Tell ben is Spider-Man like, 3 stuff. Ben is like, I can hang up this call anytime I want, guys. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but That's, please, um, Spider-Man 3. <laughs> Rob, get out of my head. Um, so, uh, okay, how do I feel about Spider-Man 3? Emo Peter Parker, less bad than I remember as a kid, not great. Okay. Flint Marco's performance, I have to agree with Rob, at least in the scene where he, like, reconstitutes himself. That's a, a pretty impressive, like, I don't know, a pretty emotional kind of feeling scene. But the thing I, I have to say that I hate most about this is a story thing. Um, it's not so much a an execution as it is a plot point. Spider-Man's origin, canonically, is that he was responsible for letting... He, he feels responsible for his uncle's death because he had a chance to stop the man who killed his uncle and did nothing. Yep. Spider-Man has felt responsible for his uncle's death, decides that he will never, through his lack of, of in- intervening, let somebody else be harmed again. And that's like his whole fucking origin story, which we spent, you know, some 15, 20 minutes of the first movie uh, on. And then in this movie... 
for whatever reason, they decided to make Flint Marco the actual murderer of Uncle Ben. Yeah. And 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 put in the fact that he had no interaction with Flint Marco whatsoever and therefore had no chance to actually be responsible for Uncle Ben's death and essentially destroyed the character that is Spider-Man. I, I have to completely agree that I am not on board with the recontextualization of earlier events in the third movie, for sure. And it felt like it was, there was no reason for it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it was almost like it came across, maybe, Zach, from your background research, you found something like this. It seemed like they were like, oh, we want the Sandman. How do we work the Sandman in? And they thought of that. It, I would have been fine if it was like the Sandman's just some bank robber that gets turned into, or, you know, he's a robber because he wants his daughter's uh, surgery or whatever, daughter to have surgery, and then he just ends up being a Spider-Man villain. Why does he have to be tied to Uncle Ben from the first movie? I'm he, with you. He doesn't at all. Exactly, and- yeah. And and I went back and I and I looked up some of the canon about this just to make sure that I wasn't mistaken and missing something. Uh, this is not typical canon for okay. Spider-Man. Okay. Okay. Spider-Man is well is indirectly responsible for Uncle Ben's murder in almost every rendition of him through his inaction, and this is something that they did for this movie. Yeah. And I, I, so from just from that alone, I kind of hate this movie. Uh. <laughs> okay, I think I think I'm totally with you there. I don't uh, this is not my favorite of the 3. This is the most interesting of the 3 cuz I'm totally I, with you. Not only am I totally on board with what you just said about Sandman Ben, I am so against uh James Franco losing his memory for an hour of the movie. Like that felt deeply offensive to me as an audience member. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say that I was offended by it, but I will certainly say that it was unnecessary. Yes. Um yeah. We we like all all that it did was allow the movie to be longer. I guess like mm-hmm. I don't really know what value it brings. That whole first fight between um, Peter Parker and Harry Osborn is some of the goofiest shit. Like him trying to get the ring when he's yeah. like flying through the air. I'm like, this is insane. <laughs> so I, I guess one thing that the am- the amnesia does do is it allows for Peter to potentially believe that Harry's not lying when he says that Mary Jane's in love with him. Because oh. Harry became mm. this, like, you know, kind of puppy dog type character because all the aggression has been beaten out of him. Yeah. Um, I, I guess it does that, um, but I don't think that that's necessary to make the movie as a whole function. And I kind of despise that as a as a plot device. <laughs> sure. Um, and uh, but but to be fair, I also kind of despise the fact that once again Mary Jane is held hostage. Like, mm, mm-hmm. what What are we watching? Mario the movie? Like, did you, real quick, Ben, did you hear this story about how, like, when they were making this film, Kirsten Dunst refused to scream anymore, so they just took her recycled screams they had from the first and second film and just inserted that into the climax of the third film? Can, can you blame her? No! <laughs> she must She must have been, like, by, when they, by the time of making this film, she must have been so frustrated. She's just like... Like you can tell that, like, as a performance, she is just exhausted in this movie. Like, yeah. she is so over it. Sure. And, yeah, so so I guess from that perspective, like, despite the fact that of all the villains in the movie, across the movies, it has my favorite in Venom, it does the worst things to the story out of all of the movies. The other yeah. movies are, like like you said, maybe not as interesting, but in being not as interesting, they at least are not murdering my childhood. Okay. Hey, see, Ben, I think I totally agree with you. Like, like we're on the same page for like for for different reasons. But 
So just uh, those, uh, I'm glad you brought up Sandman arc, tying that in, and, and the, the retconning of Uncle Ben, that's a nightmare. The the James Franco losing his memory, I, I could not stand. I could not stand J. Jonah Jameson trying to keep his blood pressure down. I thought that was some of the stupidest shit I've ever seen. But when I say interesting, I'm thinking like the birth of the Sandman. That's wildly interesting sequence. I Even though I hate the fight and it's so goofy, when Peter Parker and Harry Osborn are fighting for that first time, and you know, Peter Man, uh, Peter, Peter Man, Peter Parker loses the ring, that at least is interesting because it's a fight where Spider-Man is not in his suit. And I'm like, that's interesting to me. That's different, at least. There's a great mm-hmm. moment in the first Sandman fight when they're on top of the armored car, and Peter Parker, like, well, I mean, Sandman, like, throws a huge, like, huge punch because he can make his fist bigs with sand. And there's a shot where Spider-Man dodges, and the way he dodges is by falling off the bus and then webbing it to spin around, and when he Mm. spins around, he spins directly into another bus's windshield. (laughs) And I'm like, this is great! I'm like, I want to see Spider-Man off of his feet type of thing. I'm like, this is so neat! And then when Venom comes into play, when you have the the praying for the death of Spider-Man from Topher Grace, that's what I'm saying is that this movie has interesting things going for it Uh, other than the typical hero arcs that we get in the first two. I'm glad you bring up that scene where where Spider-Man looks kind of like he's out of his element. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because that is one of the things in the first movie. Spider-Man... Like, he was never out of his element. Mm-hmm. Like, one time he, like, swings into a building and doesn't know what he's doing. But then after that, it's like, oh, bam, he's, like, suddenly the most experienced person ever exactly. with these powers. Yeah. And, and I hated that. Like, even even when he's learning to crawl on the wall, like, he, like, he looks at his fingers. He's like, oh, I bet I can climb walls with this. <laughs> like, in, in, the, uh, in every other rendition of Spider-Man, it's like something gets stuck to his hand and he can't get it off. Yes. You know, like, yes. they even make fun of that in Under the Silver Lake. I was just we'll about to say, about. they even do that in Under the Silver Lake yeah, right. with a Spider-Man like, we'll ta- comic, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about how that's unofficially Spider-Man 3 for the Andrew Garfield sequence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Spider-Man's but, greatest villain, the Owl's Kiss. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, or yeah, his so that, landlord. No, that actually, oh my god, Ben, that works perfectly. He has to pay rent in that movie. <laughs> that's right. Right on. Rent. Right on. <laughs> okay, but... So so anyway, like that's definitely another element that I that I just kind of did not like about this movie. Um, watching it again as an adult with all the, you know, new Spider-Man experiences I have, is that Spider-Man seems way too experienced. And you're right in the in in what you're saying about that scene with that fight with Sandman is maybe one of the only fights in the whole trilogy that feels like a Spider-Man fight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because they, I mean, all the others are well. In the first movie, it's him fighting Green Goblin. And Green Goblin's just a dude with tech, and Spider-Man knows he can dodge tech. The second movie, he's fighting Doc- Dr. Octopus, who's a man with tech, which is another thing I want to get into. I think Dr. Octopus isn't the implication that he's still just a regular person, but he has strong mechanical arms? Because there's some scenes in the second no, movie where, the like— the artificial intelligence—okay, so this is, a, this is some other stupid bullshit from that yeah, movie. Yeah. But the artificial intelligence, uh, quote-unquote, in the arms is— uh, supposedly, like, manipulating him. And and there are scenes in that movie where he, like, you'll yes. see he's, like, talking to the arms. Well, yeah, I, I um, totally get that the arms are supposed to be manipulating him because that inhibitor, inhibitor chip breaks, as we see in the movie. But isn't he still just a regular person? Like, if Spider-Man punched him directly in the face, shouldn't he take that like a regular person? <laughs> oh, uh, yes. But the yes, movie, okay. he has, su- he has super that. defensibility type of thing. 
You yes. know, like he gets shit thrown at him by Spider Man. He gets decked left, right, and center. I'm like, ju- I'm like, just shoot him in the face. Like he's 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 does he doesn't have like invincibility. He's just a scientist with tech. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're not wrong about that. But Whereas, that's why I, I think this what I've this whole tangent of uh, me giving these examples was because you're right, Ben. Him fighting somebody else with actual powers in Sandman in the third movie, and you know to the same extent Venom when uh, you know Eddie Brock becomes Venom, that feels like a Spider-Man fight, or at least what I've been waiting for. It's not just him dodging somebody else's technology, it's him actually trying to have to figure out how to deal with these villains, which is right. interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I mean, and that's one of the things that I mentioned earlier about why I love Spider-Man, is that watching him get out of these pickles where he is, in some cases, completely outmatched, but ha- like figures out a way to be smarter than them. Yes. Like, yes. that's the shit that makes Spider-Man awesome. And that that's also what makes it awesome. And I think that's what makes it almost, uh, you know, to tie this into something we were saying earlier, so memeable is that even if it's not a meme about Spider-Man from these movies, like not Tobey Maguire, I know I see every once in a while an old, like from the 60s or 70s or 80s, a comic book cover will pop up and I'll see online and it'll be like, Spider-Man versus the Sandman. This time, Spider-Man brings a vacuum. And it's just like, that's crazy goofy and i love it (laughs) sure and while we're on the topic of the sandman i I just i want to point out i don't want to linger on it because it is a superhero movie and we're we're suspending our disbelief uh but apparently the volume of sand is something that also can change not just the shape (laughs) but he gets a lot of sand at the end (laughs) yeah yeah he is he is sandman in the sense that Ant-Man can control ants, he can control sand, it seems. <laughs> yes, whenever, whenever he uh, is fighting Spider-Man on the bus and makes his fist bigger, uh, w- where did he take that sand from? Like, his legs? <laughs> oh, I, I, yes, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, maybe, I mean, he's like, you know, while I'm fighting Spider-Man, I only need one of my kidneys, so I'll take the sand from a kidney, you know, that type of thing. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Well, you know, it could have been all internal. As far as we know, he doesn't have organs. Uh, also, as far as we know, there's no reason that him eating should make any sense. Yep. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and that's not a criticism of the character. I, I, Sandman is a great villain. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you, I hear you. So on, on villains as well, with Venom, uh, since you said, you know, that that was kind of your Spider-Man villain— I, I really wanted to ask you this. I was hoping someone would know this, and it seems like, Ben, you might. Like I said before, I remembered nothing of Spider-Man 3 other than the scenes that I've seen online, like the, the emo dancing, the finger guns, like really that, that Venom segment, or symbiote segment in the middle of the movie. I kind of think I lost my mind a little bit, because I was laughing way too much that the way Spider-Man defeats Venom is by putting him in, like, a sound chamber. Like, he puts all those bars and makes noises, because the movie establishes that, like, high-pitched noises make the symbiote detach from the host. Is this is this a comic book thing? Is this a Venom thing, Ben? I, I have yeah, never heard. This oh, is, oh, wow, okay, okay. This is, uh, so, one of Venom's weaknesses are certain frequencies of sound and uh, heat. Are, are the things that we know to be ah, for certain uh, okay. weaknesses that Venom has. And there's actually some stuff in, in some of the later, uh, like, stories uh, where they kind of develop the idea that Venom can actually kind of grow accustomed to the things that people tried against him. Sure. So if he survives, he will be less susceptible in, in future interactions. Yes. But, yes, it, it is the case that, oh. uh, that Venom is typically susceptible to sound. Okay. That's um, a comic book thing that totally went under my radar forever because I, I don't think I ever knew that. But man, 
the the shot like the the 360 like camera shot of Spider-Man putting a bunch of pipes in the ground around Venom and then just running around and clanking them uh, something in my brain broke and I was laughing hysterically at the end of the movie about that. <laughs> I I mean I can see why that's that's pretty funny. Um but that that again goes to like it's it's one of the things where Spider-Man actually had to use problem solving to to beat the villain. Yes, where... another good, interesting idea type of thing. Because what I so, mean, the, I think the the biggest example of villain end of a villain arc is the second movie. I hate as much as I love Doc Ock, Alfred Molina, and Doc Ock in that role. I hate that he has to like appeal to his humanity to save the day type of thing. Like that is not mm-hmm. me. I, I hate that type of story. But then even what in in the Green Goblin kill is pretty cool because Green Goblin you know fucks up. He's he's almost too hubristic to see. Um, what's coming his way with the glider stabbing, his own glider stabbing him type of thing. Once again, this is the one that feels like a Spider-Man fight. Yeah, yeah, it does. It feels it feels like a Spider-Man fight, and it feels like a Spider-Man conclusion. And, uh, man, I, you know, the, the more that we talk about this movie, like, in, in almost every metric, except the fact that they fucked up the Uncle Ben thing, this movie is better than, than a lot of the other ones. Like, we, we, get, <laughs> we get Sandman, like, we get Tobey Maguire or Spider-Man, like, realizing that water is Sandman's weakness at one point like he just he actually has to realize what people's weaknesses are yes yeah and i guess that's exactly. something that i that i uh just kind of inherently love about spider-man is is him experimenting until he finds something that works and then and then figuring out a plan as you know based on that information definitely definitely uh one isn't it also kind of cool that topher grace is in under the silver lake so we have two generations of spider-man movies both like coming back together <laughs> in Under the Silver Lake. I, I guess I don't remember him in Under the Silver Lake. He's the but... he's the friend with the drone that him and Andrew Garfield like stare at the naked oh, woman, and they're okay. like, and and like it gets sad because the naked woman starts crying. Surprisingly, it's not played by Sydney Sweeney. She's in a different part of that movie. Uh, but then Topher Grace is like, oh, this got dark, and Andrew Garfield's like, I'm gonna leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That, that's something else. Like Topher Grace is Eddie Brock. Uh, I didn't love that. Oh, I'm glad you bring this up. Can we, can, I, I want to pick your brains on this because I don't know if you guys are going to feel the same way, but I, I think it's so, it was so apparent to me. Eddie Brock's introduction in Spider-Man 3 is so clunky, it's unbelievable. His introduction is when Gwen Stacy is like falling out of the skyscraper and he pops up and he's like, oh shit, that's Gwen. Oh, you're Gwen's father, the police captain. I'm dating your daughter. I'm Eddie Brock. I'm going to be Venom later. Watch the movie. Oh my god, that's Gwen. What? What's she doing up there? I don't know, I just saw her last night. She said she had a modeling gig. Who are you? It's Brock, sir. Edward Brock Jr. I work at the Daily Bugle. And I'm dating your daughter. And it's the Um, clunkiest thing. (laughs) I, I have to agree with you, but in the first movie... Uh, there actually is mention of somebody named yes. Eddie at the the newspaper. Eddie's been trying and to I, get a picture of him for weeks. Yeah, right. And I can only assume that that was Eddie Brock. But then later, like the way they talk about him in the third movie, it's like this is the first time he's ever worked for them. So I so I also don't know. Yes, the first movie uh, also implies the existence of Doctor Strange. I don't know if you guys caught that. When yes, they're trying, yeah. yeah, they're like trying to name these people, and they're like, "What about Doctor Strange?" and and J.K. Simmons is taken. like, "That's good, but it's already taken." And I'm just like, yeah. "Huh, that's a neat little thing." So yeah, I I mean, the introduction of Eddie Brock, I I have no problem with Topher Grace. 
I never really watched a lot of that 70s show, so I don't just know him as Eric Foreman, that type of thing. I think he's good in the roles I've seen him. He's like the head of the Ku Klux Klan in Black Klansman, which is really weird. But I thought he was he was fine. Even at the end, it's cheesy, but I like his little thing where, you know, he's... I think, what, uh, Spider-Man is like, Eddie, get out of it. Like, you can't be attached to Venom. Like, Venom's bad. And Topher Grace says something like, I like being bad. It makes me happy. And I'm yeah. just like, that's all I want from a villain. Just be bad. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that was that was definitely a, a good little line. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Zach, uh, Topher Grace, what are your thoughts on Topher Grace? We haven't talked about him a lot ever on Cinemodities, I think. No. Well, like I said, he, he, he's always going to be <sighs> – for a certain generation, he's always going to be that '70s show guy. Yes, yes. Um, he he will always be Eric Foreman. I know. The last couple of days, they announced they're doing that '70s show where uh, oh god, I forget what his name is, but I know oh god, uh, oh god, what's his name? Rob Robocop. He's the bad guy. Kurtwood Smith. Oh, Kurtwood Smith. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's gonna be in it, reprising whoever the actress's name, who's Kitty. Um, is Kurtwood Smith still alive? Yeah, he's still Holy alive. Holy shit. <laughs> I, 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 uh, well, he's 78. Okay, good for him. Good for him. He, so, he's one of those people. He's like John Carpenter. He looks like he's been like 79 for his entire career. Can you fly, uh, Zach? <laughs> Zach, not to, not to cut you off too much, but in your analysis of Tover Grace, I want you to, to consider or, uh, you know, maybe address if you have any thoughts on the fact that Eddie Brock, historically in the comics, has been a large person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, that is the explanation as to why Venom is so much larger than he was when he was attached to Spider-Man. Oh, I, I agree. Like, no, Topher Grace, I guess I don't blame Topher Grace because it's not his fault that they cast him. He's an actor. He wanted a high-profile gig. I don't blame him. I go, I blame the casting agents that were like, he's popular with the kids. Like, put him in your Speedman movie. <laughs> um like I don't know. I don't blame the actor. Like like I've seen him interviewed like dozens of times and he's a rather articulate individual. I know like even like years later he looks back upon this and he's like I tried. Like clearly I wasn't the best person for it, but I tried. No, he, like even Tom Hardy, like I Tom Hardy I, I spoiler alert for like the Venom movies, Tom Hardy is not a good Venom. He's Tom Hardy. He's only funny because, like, he's a goofy man sitting in a lobster tank eating a raw lobster. Spoiler alert for Rob. Um, no, you you told no. me about that scene before, so I'm aware. I know. Like, that's <laughs> fun. Like, that's the best part of the first movie is him sitting in a lobster tank eating a raw lobster. I'm like, that's great. Everything else is just kind of, like, meh. That's an interesting point you bring up, Ben. I didn't even think about that. You're right. I, I, do, I did know, kind of from my childhood, that Venom's supposed to be a hulking figure. And oh, yeah. Topher Grace is the furthest from that. It's almost like they wanted to play Venom in this third movie as a a mirror of Peter Parker, making him a nerdy, short uh, photographer, maybe with a little more confidence, maybe to draw that Venom or that symbiote type of, you know, characteristic thing. Right. Which is just, it's very strange because, like I mentioned, you know, uh, Topher Grace is the, um, the friend in Under the Silver Lake. There's no real size to that performance in physicality and in the movie. It's just there for some few beats. Like I mentioned, Black Klansman, he's the head of the KKK. I think that works to great effect. Like, the head of the KKK is this really, you know, small, nerdy-looking type of guy. I always have to remember that at the beginning of Ocean's Eleven, Brad Pitt is teaching Topher Grace how to play poker, and Topher Grace is playing Topher Grace. Like, I think there's a line about that 70s show or something in the beginning of Ocean's Eleven. We, we can't forget, we cannot forget, which I think both of you did not know, he is in one episode of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone. He is in 
the episode where it is revealed that he is going through Groundhog's Day, basically. Like, every day he wakes up, it's the same exact thing. And his decision of what to do with this is to go on the same date with, like, a girl. Like, he, like he meets up with this girl at a museum, they go on this date type of thing. It turns out he's been doing this, like, thousands of times. He's the villain. The, Bla- the, the I almost said Black Mirror. The Twilight Zone episode where he is going through repeated time loops trying to date a girl, it's played as the villain. At the end of the episode, he reveals that he's been going through a time loop to this woman, and the woman's like, oh, so you're a rapist. You've been raping me every day. Like, you are literally putting your life to just study me. And she beats him up, and that's the end of the episode when he's, like, sad because he has to go through it again type of thing. It sucks. The Twilight Zone sucks, Ben. There's one good episode out of 20. It's one of the best episodes of Twilight Zone, period, and it has nothing to do with Jordan Peele. This is not that episode. <laughs> Zach, have I told you about that one before? I No. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's I'm glad the, we're still the, getting the new Twilight Zone info. Of Jordan yeah. Peele Twilight Zone. <laughs> what, what? I don't understand the conclusion that the lady comes to. Well, it, it's literally, Ben, the message of every single Twilight Zone episode except the one good one is be woke type of thing. So literally the message is this woman is like, this is weird. You've been living your life day after day. And she believes it too. It's not like she thinks he's just crazy. Like there's things that happen in the episode that give her the indication that he actually has like predetermined knowledge of what's going to happen during the day, just like in a, in a groundhog's day scenario. But he literally is like, you know, I've been on a date with you like a thousand times. Like, I know your friends. I know you. We've had sex. We haven't had sex. And she's like, oh, so you're a monster. Like, you've put a lot of work into making a relationship with me. That makes you a monster. That's the message of the episode. It's stupid. You should think it's stupid. (laughs) That's fucking baffling. I can't. Oh, yeah. Every episode of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone is baffling. (laughs) I don't even know. I mean, Ben, there's an episode where a meteor hits... A, a small town oh, and it makes all the men rapists but the twist at the end of the episode is that the meteor didn't do anything literally all men will try and rape you that is literally the point of one of these episodes i find it fascinating that pretty much every like episode of monstober <laughs> including the goosebumps episode is rob breaking down <laughs> the the rapist meteor <laughs> Because it's so offensive. It is literally the most offensive piece of media I've ever seen. Time out. Time out. I love the idea that like in the Goosebumps episode this year, we break it down. (laughs) Then the very next week, we break it down again. (laughs) Yeah. I Um, I can't stop talking about it. It's so wild. (laughs) That that is incredibly offensive. Do you think that the is Jordan Peele? Is that that's what you said? Yeah, he's the he's like the executive producer of the the Twilight Zone. Do reboot. you think he's projecting the fact that he's a rapist? Like, are we going to find out that he's the next Bill Cosby? <laughs> that would be a huge media story if that was the case. Um, I, I'm not saying I hope that happens, but if it does, Ben, you've just like this will become a clip for the ages if you're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be the Hannibal Burris of, of uh, <laughs> yeah. Why are you booing me? I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So that was that was a quick toe for Grace. I had to mention because he's in an episode of the new Twilight Zone, which is a war crime, which maybe we'll do someday. Or I will just keep tangentially describing all of the episodes. I feel like just slowly, Rob, you're gonna, like we're going to delve into every single episode of that without ever devoting a, like a singular episode to it. Someone on the Reddit's going to post something like, "When did they talk about the uh, the Twilight Zone episode where the octopus hacks a computer? Which episode was that?" And be like, "Oh yeah, that was like the Shining episode." 
(laughs) (laughs) But Ben, that's another episode. An octopus hacks a computer. Now, your question might be, well, what does it do with the computer that it hacked? It sends its DNA to other octopuses. Because that's something you do with a computer, right? Right? Um, <laughs> you never I, done I that? Almost, you never, you I never put your DNA... in my DNA via my computer. <laughs> especially all day long while I'm at work. I, um, I also don't have any fucking clue what that even means. Exactly. The, neither did the writers. But somehow they made a whole 50-minute episode about it. Also, in one episode, Christopher Maloney says we should call the government in response to aliens invading. It's wonderful. <laughs> okay, wh- I, we came off a of Topher Grace. Well, uh, that was a huge tangent. What else? Oh yeah, what Z- else? Zach's opinion about Topher Grace, I think, is where we were headed. Topher Grace shenanigans. Um, I I I liked Topher Grace Venom in two thousand seven. Um, Venom is one of those characters, much like Ben said. We have not seen him, I don't think, ever done properly because even like in the once you go beyond the 90s animated series, he just becomes like some weird just like amalgamation of what Topher Grace is supposed to be in this movie. I know in like not to jump too far ahead, but even in the Tom Holland movies, what Eddie, Eddie have we seen? Oh, not Eddie Brock. Um, It's Flash Thompson in, in that. They just they have this weird like bullies aren't what bullies are anymore in in in, in Hollywood, um, and that's what Eddie Brock is to Peter Parker in the comics. Even though he's not in high school or, or even college at that point, um, bullies can no no longer be these like hulking behemoths that just like want to like rub your nose in the dirt. They have to be misunderstood like monsters. Oh God, I just I just googled who Flash Thompson is in those movies because I had forgotten. And you're totally right. Like, Flash Thompson's supposed to be a jock. Yeah, but, like, again, I'm surprised Rob hasn't brought up Joe Manganiello. Manganiello yeah, I had to – I did like not 45. realize that until I looked it up. Yeah. <laughs> that That's the thing. So, like, no, I, I, I don't think we've ever gotten an appropriate Eddie Brock yet in the same way that we haven't gotten an appropriate, like, Logan Wolverine like, like it's not it's not unique to me in saying that like the best Wolverine would would have been Tom Hardy because he has that perfect stature for it. It's just Hollywood being Hollywood. It, it's like I said, it's not. I wouldn't even say that like Venom's not even the character in Spider Man Three. It's just Eddie Brock wearing a black suit. That that's correct, and and that's um like they don't even do the royal we. I don't think at any point. They, well, they they do like at that point where we have the newscast of Spider Man Three. And the camera pans up, and it's like, "Try to stop us now, Spider Man." Oh, and yeah. I remember well, he back, could have been talking about Venom and Sandman at that, that point. Right? Exactly, that was the thing in 2007. I remember like going on like message boards. Everyone's like, "Well, is that like we as in Eddie Brock in the symbiote, or is it as in Eddie Brock in the Sandman?" It, it's ambiguous, I think, for better or for worse. I guess I, I, Spider-Man 3 is one of those movies where, like, everybody has such an anger hard on for it. I don't think it's worth that level of scrutiny. I just think – I think in one of the editorials I watched regarding the Raimi trilogy, somebody phrased it quite poetically that, like, if you look at the first and second film and you take it under the lens of with great power comes great responsibility, the first film is about great power. The second film is about great responsibility. And the third film is just there because franchise filmmaking. And I think that's why Sam Raimi struggled with that film and why he let the studio just 
weirdly enough be like the symbiote the peter parker just cling to him and just become this monstrosity and even further devolved with the fourth film that could have been whereas sam raimi was just struggling so much three years later as to like what do i do with this i already told the story that i want to tell and i really want to kind of just shift now to spider-man 2 because i feel like we haven't really delved into it that much because the ending of Spider-Man 2 has the perfect ending. It has the graduate ending of, like, Mary Jane coming to Peter being like, it's like, all oh, right, I'm here, Tiger. And then, like, we see Spider-Man do, like, that, like, choreography he does at the end of Spider-Man 1, like, web sling through the city. And the final shot is this, like, Mary Jane, like, resting her head against the doorframe. And we got to give Kirsten Dunst credit. Because she's not particularly great in any of these films, but in that final shot of Spider-Man 2, she has that perfect shot of Dustin Hoffman. And I forget, oh God, I forget what the love interest is in that. Elaine. And she just has that look on her face of like, oh God, what did I, what did I just do? And I love that. I'm like, that's perfect. I'm like, that's everything you need to know. It's like, oh, Peter Parker finally got the girl, but at what cost? And I'm like, that's perfect. Like, even though I knew everything about this franchise, I'm sorry, this trilogy inside and out, I I think I just adored that second film on a such a different level than how my nostalgia had conceived had um what's the word thought of it up until that point. Okay, I I want to respond to that and get on Spider Man too, but I did not know this because I haven't seen these movies. Tony Revolori plays Flash Thompson in the MCU Spider Man movies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, one, I agree with both of you. This is not what I think of as Flash Thompson. But Ben, Tony Revolori is the guy that Kira Allen calls to figure out what pills her mother is giving her in Run. The guy who's on the phone. Oh, shit. Yeah, nice. like, so Flash, so basically, and since we know that when Kira Allen Run picks up the phone and dials a random number, she gets a number in Brooklyn, th- she might have gotten Flash Thompson, who's in Queens, I know, but New York is New York. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I had no clue Tony Revolori was in this. He's great. He's also zero in uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. But yes, Zach, Spider-Man 2, definitively as a film... It's probably the best out of the three. I think I'm with you there if that's what you're putting down. I think it's the most cohesive of a story, even though it might be played out now of the, like, oh, second installment, you have these uh, these impotence problems with the, the superhero's powers. I think that's been done a lot. I think it still works overall. Spider-Man 2 is probably my favorite, like, objectively of the three, while Spider-Man 3 is probably subjectively my favorite, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I, I understand your point, yes. Yeah, and I love Alfred Molina in general, and him as Doc Ock, I think is pretty great. I think that there's a, it's not really stated, I, I think to the benefit of the movie, it's almost implicit, that the reason Doc Ock becomes a supervillain is just because that inhibitor chip breaks. Like, Doc Ock is not the villain, the arms are the villain, basically. And I love the fact that, you know, Otto Octavius creates these arms to create and control this energy machine, and then it fails. When the arms come back to life, what do they go? The, the AI in them says, let's make this machine again. Like, I love how clean the motivation for Doc Ock in the second movie is. And like I said, Alfred Molina is just a great actor. <laughs> uh, Rob, I agree with everything you just put down, but I do want to point out that there's something really stupid in the uh, opening scene where we first see the arms. Okay. Doc Ock says that they connect to his brain. Sure. And one of one of the reporters or one of the other people in the room says, like, with the artificial intelligence you just described – Aren't those arms dangerous, essentially, is what she's saying. Yeah, yeah. And and I was just like, 
he described zero artificial intelligence. <laughs> he said literally he controls them with his brain. Yes, yes. Abs- oh, yeah, this movie plays fast and loose with uh, some scientific terms. All these movies do, to, to some extent. <laughs> yes, that's true. And, and yeah, like we said, you know, what is how does Spider-Man stop the machine? He unplugs it, you know, and that's... And then how do they stop the machine at the end with the great intellect of Dr. Otto Octavius? Well, I don't know. I'll put it underwater. <laughs> yeah. But, this is, but that's the thing, though, Rob, is that both the first film and especially the third film are so clunky in that regard. Yet in that second film, it's, a, it's another one of those examples of greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Because at no point watching the climax of the second film are you trying to dissect. Once you're caught in the visceral nature of just the movie – there's no point where you're like, oh, this is a glaring just problem. Yes. Because I, I completely between the performances, Alfred Molina, you buy, you're buying all of it. Even if after the fact you're like, huh, maybe that was a little bit clunky. Maybe there's a little bit of an aftertaste. At the time, you're like, you know what? This works. Because you have that conviction of Alfred Molina where he's like, I will not die a monster. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it works. Like, it's everything at that moment, like, Pretty much, I would say, like, there are some moments in Spider-Man 2, even though the internet likes to make it out, and even I did this previous to re-watching all these as as the perfect superhero film, and it is leaps and bounds beyond, like, what we have currently in the superhero genre. It, it, it's, it, it works. And I think that's the thing with these movies, is that, like, it's just, it's weirdly, it's everything kind of finally coalesces or maybe just gels, Whereas the first film is still trying to kind of find its footing, so it's not adhering – it's not fully baked yet. Yeah. And then by the third film, it's just kind of – it's so – it's just – it's so baked, it's just starting to fall apart again. Mm. It's overcooked. Yeah, I I see what you're saying. And I think that 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 brings me to something else I was thinking about these movies solely for the reason that I've seen these other movies so so recently. I think that for as much as a bad rap that they get – the Joel Schumacher Batmans have a huge influence on this trilogy from the look of a lot of stuff, from the choices of uh, the decisions of the villain characters. I don't I don't know when the last time you guys watched either Batman Forever or Batman and Robin, you know, the um, the, the Val Kilmer and Clooney Batman movies. But I saw a lot of connective tissue between them. And somehow these movies get considered great or a cult classic you know the like you were saying earlier zach like people know toby Maguire as spider-man and they always will these get praise while the joel schumacher movies batman movies get regarded as the worst things in existence which i i don't think they're the worst they're bad don't get me wrong but i saw a lot of connective tissue there i don't know i don't know if ben the last time you saw those movies was but zach do you know what i'm saying well no okay um there's one word for this rob or maybe two words okay Media narrative. Well, exactly. Exactly. The media, and that's what I mean, though, is that like the media has poisoned the well on Schumacher Batman. Sure, it just has. And I'm talking about like not just now, but the '90s. And then, like, even if you think about Spider-Man Three, was like Spider-Man Three is the most successful film of this trilogy. Mm -hmm. Yet the media, like I said, I think it's objectively subpar. But audiences clearly liked it, and the media just drove that film just into the ground to the point where they've convinced God. Look at all the goddamn YouTube editorializing like videos. It, it they, the media just kept pound, much like Sandman yeah. pounding Spider Man. 
<laughs> on the metal girder just did that until everybody just said, yeah, it's bad. Like, and we talked about how many times Rob on this podcast where the media has just pounded an idea into everybody's head, regardless of the fact it has any yeah, God yeah. foundation in reality. That, that's, I think that's the bigger point because that's one of the things is like I said, even though I do think the Joel Schumacher Batmans are bad movies, the one with Jim Car- uh, Batman Forever where Jim carries the Riddler, I was actively screaming at the television for the last 30 minutes because that is not a story. It is a, uh, a wood chipper of a script or what a script was taken to a wood chipper type of thing. But I think you're totally right, Zach, is that where, you know, we say, oh, the Schumacher Batmans versus the Raimi Spider-Mans, the Raimi trilogy. The media, which has now been, you know, doubled into or folded into the internet, they've just kept pounding down on Joel Schumacher's Batmans. Like, I know there's even, like, a subreddit of, like, just memes of Joel Schumacher's Batmans. Like, that's how popular it is to hate on this movie. But at the same time, I'm sure there's subreddits of memes of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man that's in a positive light. It's like, you know, we're at the coin flip of the internet, whether or not they choose to to give it a positive or negative review, and that's what it comes down to. I think this also goes into what we said before, is like, why is Tommy Wiseau's The Room so popular? And it's because Adult Swim would play it. That's why we don't get popularity of a lot of other things. So yeah, the, the internet as an echo chamber is probably the right answer to to this but I think, discussion. But, this is, but I think it, this is something I really am kind of like... I want to know Ben's thoughts on is if you look at like your cornerstones of the superhero film genre, if you look at the most important superhero movies ever made, you have Superman with Christopher Reeve. Mm-hmm. You have Keaton Batman. Yep. Both game changers. Yep. You have Spider-Man 2002. You have the, you have the dark Knight, mm-hmm. And then you have the Avengers. Yes. Yes. Not Iron Man. Everybody likes to say Iron Man's like the birth of a new generation of cinema. No, no nobody could think about it. Everybody copied The Dark Knight. Like next week's episode, The Amazing Spider-Man is going to be very much a conversation about how Hollywood misunderstood the lessons to pull from The Dark Knight. Nobody copied Iron Man. The Avengers is what eventually led to everybody copying what Robert Downey Jr. Do- doing. The idea of having like a smarmy, smartass who, who's infallible – but those are your five superhero movies that just, after that, dictated the landscape. They Absolutely. became the pillars of it all. And this is what I was saying. I think this is why, you know, the first Spider-Man, probably Spider-Man 2 as well, and to another sense, Spider-Man 3. This trilogy is well, so influential is, for that reason. It, it, it is and isn't, but you have, this is the thing about, there's a reason why Sam Raimi's god power over this franchise diminished after 2. The second movie made, like, Two to three hundred million dollars less than the first one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And guess what? The studio looked at Sam Raimi and said, well, guess what? You lost that much. For the same reason why we dipped 20 to 30 percent in our revenue. That's how much power we're going to now take away from you. Exactly. And that's when we were talking about before Avi Arad, you know, demanding Venoms in this movie, that type of thing. You get more studio control. And eventually why Sam Raimi, Raimi decides to leave. He's not interested in Spider-Man 4 and all this stuff. I mean, one reason Spider-Man 4 doesn't happen, but it's Raimi going like, oh my God, like, why am I doing this to myself? The, the person who's probably most well-known as an independent filmmaker, Sam Raimi, you know, with those, with that, with the Evil Dead. Him getting studio control, it's like, yeah, well, of course we, he's going to walk away. Can we just, like I said, this is, I don't even want to discuss this as a major point, but just something that should be like kind of sprinkled into the conversation. 
He is directing. I think about it, you had Scott Derrickson oh, that directed no. the first Doctor Strange. We're we gonna talk about this. Oh no. no, no, no we're not. We're not gonna talk about. It. I just. I want it there in the background. Just the fact that we brought it up. Yes, he's coming back to Marvel. He's the credited, or he's listed on uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Well, that's that film's already like more or less in the can. Oh, okay. Like, that's that's a film that's that's coming out. Like that's their that thing about it. That's their first summer film of the pan like since the pandemic okay i don't know any of this stuff because i hope that these movies just don't come out because if they don't come out (laughs) zach doesn't have to talk to me about them (laughs) rob is baked into the pie right now oh god Um, it's part of the cinema it's the fabric of the restaurant rob um (laughs) but but you're right in in your in your list of superhero movies like the 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 they transcend genre defining like i was saying you know it's like these movies are almost culturally informative it's like when you know like you said christopher reeve's superman that's a huge deal tim burton's batman is a huge deal and i think you know a lot of that has to do more with jack nicholson as the joker than it has to do with keaton as batman but still a huge deal then this then the dark knight changes the world and then the avengers changes the world again and we're stuck in this mold type of thing that i think that's kind of why i thought like i'm not as against these movies as i think i'm going to be with the next two episodes like i am not looking forward to the andrew garfield spider-mans because i've seen them before and i know more recently than these and i know i didn't really care for them i've never seen the tom holland spider-mans because i don't want to see them so it's really interesting that it's like you know this mid mark of superhero transition this is where i'm the most okay with it because it's standalone it's a contained story like we mentioned, there's the thing where J. Jonah Jameson says, oh, Doctor Strange is taken. That's a little nod to the rest of the universe. But there's nothing in here where it's like, oh, we need an Iron Man scene. We need this, that, the other scene to build this universe. I think this is the the era of superhero movies I'm fine with. <laughs> I don't think I like any of them because okay, I don't like this, the Keaton but... Batmans. I don't like the Christopher Reeve Supermans, especially the one with Richard Pryor is a nightmare. I think it was Superman 3 or 4 or something like that. This is the this is the era where I'm like this is fine because this but, is in the but, era of the X Men movies which are fine. But 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 take the, this is the whole point of the series though, Rob, is that Marvel, much like a cancer, is with no way home, and what is alleged with Doctor Strange two is going to retroactively now just cons- much like the symbiote to Spider Man, it's going to cling on this and not going to let go. Well, they. I'm not happy with that, but they have to do it. I think no, that, they don't. They can leave. They can leave like sleeping dogs lay. Well, no, like, they uh, don't. Uh, yeah, they, they can could, leave this well enough alone. But I they're think they're this because this is they're creatively bankrupt, and they know Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man is one of the last vestiges of nostalgia they had that is left untapped. But that's exactly why I say I think they they think they need to do it because I don't think there's any way, shape, or form that at any you know recent future. Anywhere near where we are now, we're going to get another Spider-Man reboot. You know, we get the Tobey Maguire, we get the Andrew Garfield, we get the Tom Holland. Tom Holland is now in the MCU. I don't think there's any way that we're ever going to get a reboot that is its own thing, like we did with the, you know, this episode, Sam Raimi trilogy versus the Andrew Garfield trilogy. I think that they, since they can't reboot it, they have to drive on nostalgia. That's what I'm saying when they think they need to do that stuff. But but, but I think there's a difference between... Like I said, Marvel is so much its own thing right now. We're but we're in a weird place with the culture. Whereas, like we said, we talked about this with uh, Schumacher, Batman, and the fact that the internet loves punching down Spider-Man Three. We're at a point where even things that are detested 
are now being reincorporated into the contemporary yeah. pop culture landscape because nostalgia. Like if you if you listen to the internet, well, you I, I never, think nostalgia touch- and because they can, nobody because of the MCU, no filmmakers, no studio can take these superhero properties, wipe their hands, and say let's start again, like they did for thirty years. I don't think it's an issue of let's start again. I think it's like like the alleged roster of No Way Home for the villains is we know definitively it's Alfred Molina, Doc Ock, which, oh God, I hope they don't ruin him. Like, like as exciting as it is to see Alfred Molina come back, it's a different incarnation of the character. Even though it's the same actor playing the same character in quotation marks, it's going to be a different character. Like yeah, that, well, it terrifies yeah. me. There, there, there's a very good possibility that, much like my contempt for James Bond and no ta- no time to die, that they could shit on something that is considered almost perfect, relatively speaking. That is well, isn't but isn't that though the modern equivalent of wiping their hands and starting over? They say, well, we can't just reboot Spider Man again, so we have to just reboot the nostalgia that we have. Like, it's all getting sucked in to this MCU, which is what I'm disappointed by. As much as I hated Joker, it was standalone. That's a positive for that thing. Now nothing's standalone. No, no, you're both right and you're wrong in that, like, for a third Spider-Man movie, why can't we have Spider-Man fight Kraven? He's, like, one of the very few, like, major Spider-Man villains we have not seen in live action yet. Why can't we have a Spider-Man versus Kraven movie? Why? Like, like, why do we need to go dig up 20-year-old nostalgia? Because that's like on said, Slate for 2025, and they know that after Endgame and, and, the, and the non-success of Black Widow, that they need to do something to ramp this stuff up. Oh, no, you, you are right, but this is where my argument goes into the idea of, like, again, going back to the roster of No Way Home, you have Alfred Molina, Doc Ock, yeah. Willem Dafoe, Green Goblin, you're going to have Jamie Foxx, Electro... And this is where it gets more questionable. You have Rice Iphen's Lizard, and you're going to have Tom and Hay- Tom, eh, Thomas Hayden Church's Sandman. And that's the thing. Like, Spider-Man 3, like, we've all said it, is when it comes to internet culture, is toxic. It's radioactive. Yet we've come to a point where the nostalgia just thirst is just so deep. We'll delve into things that people don't like just so we can say nostalgia. I, I know what you're saying, as you mentioned a few times with the – you're diving into the nostalgia, but it's things that people don't like. We could go on a whole tangent about how I think that Spider-Man 3 and Shrek in their meme culture are equivalent, where people don't really like them. That's why they're making fun of them, but it's become so far removed of why we're making fun of them with memes that now people like them again. But that's that, a, but that's, we did that in our whoa, Shrek whoa, episode. Whoa, 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 pause on that because that, that's that is probably – the most concise explanation for any of this. Oh, yeah, and that, we did it, it that. Like I said, we matter. did that in our Shrek episode, yeah. But that's the thing, though. It comes down, like, we live in a culture right now where it doesn't matter if something's objectively good or bad. It just has to get people's attention. Well, I guess then the question becomes, I think with what we're saying, you and I, Zach, we're, we're, we're drawing on nostalgia. We're drawing on these Spider-Man topics that people love. Ben, as a Spider-Man fan, do you want them to draw on nostalgia, or do you want them to just keep playing with Spider-Man universe in a, in a fresh way? Uh, I mean, maybe that's not the best way to word this question, but are you, as a fan of Spider-Man, are you for or against this, like, oh, well, we're going to boost up our new movies with the, the old type of thing? 
I have no issue with them exploring the idea of the multiverse where different Spider-Mans exist and have diff- slightly different backstories and slightly different, uh, um, you know, experiences and interactions mm-hmm. and personalities, etc. So I, I, whether or not it's um, clout chasing or, or, or nostalgia chasing or whatever you want to call it, I'll probably enjoy it just the same. Sure. But I would okay. probably also have enjoyed it if they had just made up two completely new Spider-Mans. Instead of Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. So. Uh, oh, that okay, that's interesting. But I think what Zach is saying is that they never would have done that because they have this well to go dig back into. Sure, it, I think, this is easier, I, for sure. I think it's the thing of, like, this is the... What happened, like, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but, like, with Into the Spider-Verse. Is that, like, mm-hmm. I, I would imagine... This was a couple years ago. Remember the whole controversy about how like Marvel and Disney, I'm sorry, Sony and Marvel slash Disney were fighting over Tom Holland. It was like, oh, Sony announces that like Tom Holland will no longer be part of the MCU and all the goddamn brain dead people on the Internet get mad. It's like, folks, you're pawns. You shouldn't care. It's like Kraft telling you they won't make like yellow singles anymore. They're just doing white. It's like, who cares? It's all processed garbage. Like it makes no difference at the end of the day. But at least with, like, Into the Spider-Verse, they're like, okay, we're going to have schlubby, like, Peter B. Parker, and the quote-unquote, like, ideal Peter Parker dies in the first five minutes of the film, and that's, like, the Chris Pine-voiced version of him. They at least tried something different. And even though that movie wasn't, like, a barn burner box office-wise, it won them an Oscar. Oh, and Which everybody not, I know when that came out, well, not everybody I know, but the people who saw it when it came out could not speak more highly of it. Everybody I knew that watched it when it came out loved that movie. And that's where, like, is like it puts, I know, like, we've talked, it's a hallmark of this podcast where I, Rob's heard me say it a million times, Ben maybe only half a million, is, like, I would rather have a Batman v Superman over a Captain America Civil War. I would rather see an audacious disaster then let's play it as safe as humanly possible. Yes. And I yeah. and I think like and like I said, I don't I do not like okay, I only saw it into the Spider-Verse once in theaters, and like I've said numerous times, I call it ADD in the movie. I would rather have an audacious film than we're gonna dig up 20 year nostalgia because we know it'll track well. Mm-hmm. And don't be wrong, like I'm excited to see like it's funny, I'm less excited now after rewatching all this trilogy of films. <laughs> but like the first time a like there has not been a like I know it's been floating around the internet now for a couple months. There's a leaked image of like Andrew Garfield in the Spider-Man suit. But like once that like promo image, I'm not talking about leak, but that promo image of that or that trailer money shot for the No Way Home like trailer that should be coming out sometime like in the next month for the Eternals. When you get that first shot of Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire, and Tom Holland in one frame. I think we all can agree the internet's going to have a meltdown. Like, it's just going to sit there like – because it's going to be, God, the first time I can genuinely think you're going to have three different eras of nostalgia all interlaced. Like, can you think of any other image that can have 2000s nostalgia, 2010s nostalgia, and 2020s nostalgia, if that's a thing? (laughs) <laughs> all in one, all in one image, without it being like a like a artificial mashup. That's interesting. Nothing comes to my mind, but my same thought when you say all this isn't this what they're doing with the Batman? Isn't Keaton coming back? 
Well, yeah, and Marvel stole that idea. Like, it's the same thing that happened with Civil War, that, like, Marvel heard that, like, DC was doing Batman v Superman, yeah. and they fast-tracked Civil War. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is that the, the power of that shot that you described, for me, is very weak compared to the power of that shot for the internet. Because you are absolutely right. That is going to oh, be no, everywhere. I, well, yeah. well, again, Rob, I think it's fair to say that the podcast hosted by the, the Cinematic Oddities podcast <laughs> host are not going to be uh, as endeared to the uh, blatant nostalgia rip yeah. as as the internet at large is that lives off this garbage. It, it it reads to me as to to relate it to some, everything we're saying about this this new Spider Man, which we're going to talk more and more about as we get closer to the Tom Holland Spider Man's and the new one. It all reads to me as like you know. They're jamming so much stuff in their movies, and then their advertisement is the exact same as a billboard you can see when Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire in Spider-Man 2002, is first using his web abilities. There's a scene where he's trying to swing around, and you see a billboard that says, Traffic is fun! That's what these movies scream to me. They're throwing in so much that they're just like, isn't this great? It's busy. It's a mess. But there might be one or two things you liked before, right? Go for it, you know? And it's like saying the same thing as like, yeah, you might be stuck in traffic. You might not be moving. You might be accomplishing any goals. But at least something's fun. Maybe there's a good song on the radio. Like, it doesn't It doesn't read to me at all as interesting. <laughs> no, it does, I, it does I, for I, the internet. That I guess that's the other thing. It does for the internet. It does for the people who want this traffic type stuff well okay and this is like i said no i agree with you but like okay i'm not sure if either one of you can see my screen right now but i found this in my research for this for the series and, and this is the thing when this and this is fan creation this is nothing official but when you get and i think we can all agree in the mark at some point in this no way home movie we are going to get this image sure i yeah and that and, and Rob, I know you. You, I, I don't know how much Ben knows about this, but when you get this shot in the No Way Home movie, this is going to be the equivalent of, of Captain America picking up Thor's hammer. Yes, I know you. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. It's going to be that moment where idiots are just going to clap because they've been conditioned to clap, and not to say that it's not anything. Think about it. Like we, we've never had another moment in cinematic history. Where you have three it's, – it's the equivalent of having like Sean Connery, George Lazenby, and Pierce Brosnan and, and Daniel Craig in the same frame as James Bond. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, like, I, but it's the idea that like this isn't happening because they have a, they, they have a genuine story they want to tell. This is happening because a movie studio has the ability to write as many checks as it can and knows that – Despite that these checks will cost them tens of millions of dollars, the take will be infinitely more than what these checks will cost them. Sure. And I think that's, that's the thing. That's a rather cynical viewpoint. Uh, do you have anything to back that up? Ben, is nostalgia profitable, yes or no? Sure. As of 2021, is nostalgia profitable than what it was 20 years ago? I mean, nostalgia's always, always has been, and always will be profitable. But what's your point? But no, but, but that's the thing, though. In nineteen, in the nineteen eighties, there's a reason why you your highest profitable films were E.T. Um, oh God, um, Bever- I, I know you guys hate it though, but <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop, yep, um, Back to the Future. These things were all, even though they had some traces in pre-existing time periods, they were for the most part wholly original creations. There's a reason why that in the 80s they weren't reviving Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and Dracula. You didn't have new people being cast as Abbott and Costello 
or the Three Stooges. And things like the Twilight Zone reboot of the 80s more, loud, more or less just kind of dimmed out because that's not what people wanted. We live in a culture now where nostalgia is everything. That's the reason why we're – that's why they're bringing Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield back. Andrew Garfield was thrown off of these movies. They Think about it. Sony was so desperate to be in the Marvel Disney game. They said – like they threw their hands up in the air and said, all right, you win. And that goes into some like I, I I know I want to talk about the business side of this a little bit more, but pretty much ever since Disney bought Marvel in 2009, Sony had been making deal after deal with the devil with Disney trying to prolong this until eventually in 2015 they were like, all right, we'll we'll make that deal with you. And then in 2019, where they had to make that really really audacious deal, we're now spoiler alert for Venom too. Venom Tom Hardy is now in the MCU. Yes, yes. I have I have read about that post credit scene. And I think Ben and I talked about it a little bit the other day. Yeah. <laughs> that, but that's the thing. That's that's where my background is in this, Ben. That's the reason why the after Ghostbusters 2016 and the disaster that was, we're getting Ghostbusters Afterlife, which from what I can tell from the reviews, is is nothing but just jerking off people who love the 1984 film. We live in the world where nostalgia is the currency of everything the movie industry that's why we're getting top gun maverick it's why we're getting all this stuff is for no other reason than it, it, it's just it, it's the easiest way to a buck and i don't blame them like is it the cynical way you're absolutely correct ben i will you're 100 percent right and i don't blame them in a world where new ideas rolling the dice are very risky as much as rob and i laugh at mortal engines Yes, that is an adaptation. It at least tried to do something new. Right, Rob? How many question marks do I have to put at the end of that sentence? Hey, I can tell you that when I uh, when I read the book, Mortal Engines, for that episode, I had never seen a an airship called the 13th Elevator before. Not the 13th Floor Elevator, the 13th Elevator, so that was new. <laughs> That's... You might be right. You you might it might be the case that there is not that, that they are doing these things not because they have a story to tell, but because it's safe and and as kind of a counterpoint to, well it's not it, maybe it's not even a counterpoint but it's just like an assessment of of the feelings of things not being safe. Can you really blame the uh, the industry so Hollywood where cancel culture like thrives in in a sense like. Celebrities are all about canceling people to some degree or another, uh, with the exception of like a few stand-up comedians. Can you blame an industry for not wanting to take risks right now? Yes and no for two different reasons. They could very easily stop taking headshots on one each on one another. Um, they're weirdly can like I said they're cannibalizing each other. It's like I remember when Disney bought Fox. Like what was that? God, two three years ago now. And um, this was on the Star Wars podcast. Force Ghost Jim, like I asked him, I asked him some question. His response was, they're only buying Fox to deprive the other studios of the catalog. Like Disney has enough film films in its catalog. It doesn't need any more. But it's buying them to deprive everybody else of them. And so, no, you're right, Ben, in that regard. And don't get me it's, wrong. I'm not saying that it's the – right or good thing to be doing i think the right thing to be doing is what dave Chappelle is doing which is basically saying like fuck you guys i don't care i'm taking all the risks i want but this um, is but this is but the, the thing, consequences no, but, are are but this is the thing 
But this is the thing, though, Ben. This is how the studio system, like, ever since we, we lived in the age of blockbuster entertainment, worked. And this is my favorite example. You have Paramount. Paramount is responsible for the tra- Michael Bay Transformers films, which anybody can tell you are kind of brain dead on a good day. And what would happen is that these films would make a billion dollars, and then... Fox is hot, Zach. What? But Megan Fox is hot, Zach. Yes! And what, and what, oh, God. What, and what's her name? Who's the one from the third film? Rosie oh, Huntington-Whitley? Rosie Huntington-Whitley. Uh, just want to yeah. say, uh, it hasn't come out yet, I think, but there's a new Netflix movie soon where Megan Fox and Sidney Sweeney are vampires. Just wanted to say that. I'll be <laughs> watching it. <laughs> I will, too, probably. <laughs> My prediction, um, but- Sydney Sweeney's going to be naked and or crying in a scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, the point being is the Bayformer films would make a billion dollars and then they would take that profit and they would allow other projects that were much less likely to happen to, to, to go ahead with the potential of them either being new franchises or at the very least making them a profit. Like, everybody laughs at Bay former movies, but because of those, you got things like Rob's favorite, Pain and Gain, or my favorite, The Wolf of Wall Street, because they would take the proceeds from these brain-dead blockbusters and pump them into new properties. But then what happened was, and this is kind of Disney that started doing this in the early 2010s, whereas they would have The Avengers, Iron Man 3, that would make a billion dollars, Instead of taking that money and pumping it into a new venture, they're like, well, we're just going to make more Marvel films with this. There's no reason for us to branch out because the people want Marvel. They want Pixar. It's that thing of how Disney blames Treasure Planet for being the film that killed hand-drawn animation. And it's like, no, if you make a good story, people don't care the medium. A good story will resonate with people regardless of the technology and the talent. It's that notion of they just want a scapegoat for things that they so can make things easier and more cost effective. And I don't blame them. It's it's show business. Business is in the title. But it's like you, it's that thing of just it becomes incestuous. It becomes so homogenized that all you do is get the same thing, rinse, lather, repeat. Like I'm pretty sure I, I, you and I, Ben, said we both enjoyed Shang-Chi. If Rob were to watch that, Rob would be like, guys – you're fucking dumb. This is the exact same thing you've seen at least a dozen times by now. But we live in a world where we're so conditioned to this anything. It's just slightly, slightly one standard deviation away from the norm. We'll be like, yeah, that was pretty good. And like I said, I am just as guilty of this as the next person. But I, it, it's just frustrating because you are absolutely right, Ben. But they ha- like Disney, of all people, has the money to take creative liberties with things. And then when they do, they do it either in the most – oh, God. Think about it, Rob. It's crazy to think that in today's world, Army Hammer, Johnny Depp, the Lone Ranger would be considered ambitious. Yeah, yeah. It's sad to say that like that would be considered ambitious by today's standard. <laughs> And again, is, that, is that Gore Verbinski? I think that's Gore Verbinski. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, again, but again, that was that was Disney taking Gore Verbinski and being like, "Make us another Pirates of the Caribbean, you asshole." Yes. And yes. and that's the thing. So like, maybe that isn't the best comparison because it was just a different variation of even what we're getting now. You bring up then you're right. You you bring it's up cynical. an interesting point in you mentioned Blockbuster earlier, and that gave me the thought that you know, 
back in the day of Blockbuster, when people were watching watching slash renting slash purchasing movies based on word of mouth and box art. I, I know what you mean. I mean, I'm sure, you know, anybody who's been to a Blockbuster, Blockbuster remembers being to a Blockbuster or anything like that. You would go and it'd be like, oh, it's like, you know, I, I've seen Terminator 2. That, that poster's really iconic. Or, you know, the, the cover art for, like, Romancing the Stone or Back to the Future is really iconic. You go to the Blockbuster back in the day in the 80s or 90s, and you'd see a million movies with covers exactly like them. Like, same color palette, same positioning of characters, and it's all in the attempt to get somebody to go, oh, oh, you know, maybe maybe this will be good because it looks so similar to the thing that I liked previously. Is nostalgia baiting and dredging up the past, like we're saying in Spider-Man uh, Home So Far Away, whatever the hell it's called, with all these different past Spider-Men, isn't this just the modern equivalent of trying to trick the audience into watching it? Like, I, isn't it, isn't okay. this the equivalent of making your, your art similar to a famous movie no. so maybe and- someone will pick it up? No, to answer your question, no. To answer your question, this is like I said, this is subjective. I like I said, I know what you mean. As somebody who is a blockbuster kid, I know what you mean. But this reminds me of the early 2010s, Rob. Remember the Inception thing where like everything had to have those like blue and orange pastel like hues in like marketing yes. for posters? Yes. Which is probably still going on today, at least with the, the Disney Star Wars trilogy. They all had that same color palette type of thing. Sure. And the Avengers, yeah. Borrowing a color palette and a motif in an abstract sense, yes, is it derivative, but it's not specific. It's the fact that we're deliberately – like if they were to sit there like it's – oh, God, I can't believe I'm going to make this. Like it's that notion of you're playing on very – oh, God, a formula versus uh, – like and I'm probably not even explaining this properly. I, I know I'm not. But it's like using – like you said, a motif in marketing – is a lot different than like, oh, imagine if, oh God, like in Arnold, like, okay, you have Terminator 2 that comes out in 1991, because like you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And then like in 1996, someone's like, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, we're going to have you play like, uh, forget about like, like Bicentennial Man with, instead of Robin Williams, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, because people know you as a robot, we're going to have you do that. Sure. Because it's so specific. And No Way Home bringing back all these previous characters is even more egregious than that example, which is kind of – that example is kind of clunky. Audience – cinema audience, Ben Rob, please forgive me. Because we are specifically plucking these very specific incarnations of the character out. Like there's no reason why that like – and that's the juxtaposition between what No Way – and like I said, we haven't seen No Way Home yet. So if they don't do this, once again, maybe we're we're picking a fight with something that doesn't even exist this way. But again, it's that Into the Spider-Verse thing juxtaposed to No Way Home. Very easily in 28 – whatever that film was being made, Into the Spider-Verse in 2017, someone could have made a phone call to Tobey Maguire and been like, hey – We'll write you a check for $10 million to come in and do some voice acting for us and for you to list, use your likeness. And they chose not to and said, let's just make a very generic, handsome Peter Parker. And we'll have Chris Pine, who's also a very generic looking, handsome man, voice him. And then for this, they're like, nope, we're going to use the very specific nostalgia of Tobey Maguire and pull him out. 
And I think that's my, like I guess it's not even a problem. Like I will be there opening night for No Way Home. It's the impetus for this entire series. Yeah. So I don't want anybody to think I'm a hypocrite. It's just like I'm gonna be the first person there when they reveal the Tobey Maguire 2021 Peter Parker action figure. I'll be the first person. Think Kramer from the episode of Seinfeld of the contest. I'll be the first person to <laughs> slam my money on the counter and be like, "Give it to me now! I yeah. want it." But I think even though I am culpable in all this, I can't help but just point out that like this is what they're doing. Sure. It's it's like. It's it's the Eric Andre Hannibal Burris thing of shooting him and being like, why would Disney do this? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm putting the money in their coffers that is allowing them to do this. I'm not going to be boycotting it. I will be there day one. I'm oh, just no, you're, you're bringing right. attention to it. I, I know what you're putting down, and, and you're right. We were there. We uh we swiped our credit cards to help the Avengers stop Thanos. We we were yes. part of that. Absolutely. I I just I just find it interesting as the, the the marketing throughout the years going from art to trailers to nostalgia. I, there's something there that we probably will have to parse out through this entire series with Spider-Man since we have, you know, two more versions to go through and stuff like that. But, but yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. It, it's, it is wildly interesting, though. It is wildly interesting. I think Franchises are watched, strange. <laughs> well, that's one thing. But this is something I would love – like I said, I, I, I think Rob would agree with me. Like sociology is like a BS, like, division of like – oh, God, or subdivision of like psychology <laughs> – I don't know. But I think like, I think Ben could defend sociology. Ben, don't you like when they de- they redefine words to make them more offensive? <laughs> Hold on, Zach. What did you say about sociology? Like sociology is like a BS, like a BS subsidiary of psychology. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. <laughs> Thank you. So, sociology is uh, psychology applied trying trying to apply psychology to populations as large as like a city. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so I would, I would love to see a sociological experiment just explaining why it is that like we've become so dependent on nostalgia as a culture, whereas nostalgia really didn't exist like in the way that it currently does and has existed for the last ten like years or so until about like the mid to late two thousands, like where it became such a potent force in everything. Like, there's a reason. Well, okay, there you go. Like, there's a reason why, like, Dunkaroos are coming back. And it's like, like, all these things, like, like, who cares? I'm well, like... No, there, I mean, I have, there. so there's part of it's the internet, the fact that we have memes and shit where we're being exposed to these older things. Yes. Makes people nostalgic. Like, that's part of it, hands down. But then there's other parts of it where it's like, we live in such a, such a um, comfortable world that anything that deviates from comfort might be too uh jarring for people like i i wouldn't be surprised if that played a role like there, there's any number of things about the way that the world is now that are different from the way it was you know 10 15 years ago yeah i would completely agree with that ben in in the sense of that you know you're seeing people just to use star wars as an example or even what i joked about earlier like you know this is not my star wars this is not my spider-man you know it's like this was a, a rehash of a thing I loved when I was a childhood, and it wasn't what I wanted, so it ruined my childhood. That that type of mentality. Well, and it's it just kind of goes to, to show that like the easier life is, the more things will upset you. Like, sure, sure. Uh, you know, it's 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 all relative, essentially. So, like, if your life is primarily difficult, and then you get something like a, a random comedy that can take your mind off of it, that's fantastic. 
but now it's like that might be too far away from what you're comfortable with uh, because they're because life is is other so otherwise comfortable, you know. And then yeah. what what if what if you know I don't like it, whereas I know I'm gonna like Spider Man, even if I don't like this movie, I'm gonna still like Spider Man. Yeah, that I think that's another level of this nostalgia factor that we've been talking about, which I think all three of us are, you know, familiar with, if, if not, you know, uh, we've, we haven't done this in the past, but like, like you just said, Ben, you know, you like Spider-Man, you seeing a new movie that doesn't really sit with you or gel with you is not going to make you hate Spider-Man. I think Star Wars fans, you know, they might not like the Disney stuff, but that's never going to take away from the original trilogy for them. I'm like that with music. Like, I can't stand the last few 21 Pilots albums, but I'm never going to say I dislike 21 Pilots. That adds this weird, once again, psychological layer to this idea of nostalgia that makes it that much harder to pin down. Well, it's, it's, uh, in some sense it's safe yes because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't matter like th- there's so little invested in whether i like this rendition of it but but again like that's that's kind of a different analysis because they well and then you have you have to go you also have to look at the fact that people do love to hate things yes and so going to something that is nostalgia gives you that opportunity to have safety in your beliefs and feelings about the thing you love and simultaneously act superior about something. That's the best – that's another great thing to add to this is that people love to hate stuff. I mean if you want a good example, check out the majority of Ben and I's non-Adventure Time Patreon episodes. I think we've done more movies we love to hate on than we actually enjoy watching type of thing. So there is Definitely. that level of catharsis of being like, oh – Maybe there's something in, in this modern era. It's easier for people to describe their dislikes than to defend their likes. And with well, the internet, I think that almost creates that exact culture of isn't it better to jump on the bandwagon of hate than to be the the lone defector? Definitely. And and there's also not beyond just the bandwagon of hate. There's also the unearned superiority aspect of you get to feel superior because. Hashtag that's not my Spider-Man yeah. means I know Spider-Man better than they do. Yes, yes. So I like, think we saw the, that a lot with the DC movies when they were getting dark and gritty with Nolan. You had all those people going like, this is what it's supposed to be. None of that other bullshit. Like, you're bad for liking comical DC. We need it dark and gritty, that type of thing. Sure, right. And it's it's all, you know, so, so anyway, Zach, being that I am not a sociologist or a psychologist... Uh, but I occasionally pay attention to people. That's my take on on what you had to say about about this well, need for nostalgia. But this is the thing, though. It's like, no, you're absolutely correct, and I don't disagree with you in the slightest. It's the idea that, like, usually when as a culture we surrender to nostalgia, it's or at least maybe on the Hollywood, like on the uh, conglomerate corporation level, when they surrender to nostalgia, it's because something went wrong. Usually, you usually don't surrender to nostalgia unless there's an ulterior motive. And this is what I was kind of thinking about when it comes, like I said, with Disney. And Rob obviously has heard parts of this from Star Wars, but this even goes back to like what currently Marvel Disney's doing with the Trump what if. got elected. Zach. That's <laughs> well, that's what yes. went wrong. Yes, Trump yes, got Trump. elected, and yes. then. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Hey guys, you know that Trump dude? I don't like him. Let's talk about that for fifty minutes. <laughs> so no, I, 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 I'm my opinions about Trump are irrelevant, but things like that where people were able to look at something and be like, "This is the downfall of humanity," and that's been happening probably before Trump. Trump made it super cool, I guess. 
but like that level of something is going wrong in society like i i don't know if that's exactly what you're getting at but i think that that's a candidate for something that well no but wrong. this is but this is but this is the thing though is that like you look at tom holland spider-man and if you look up the imdb ratings for these because we all know imdb is the bastion of knowledge and truth right rob oh i mean of course yeah both of the tom holland movies are rated higher than spider-man wouldn't too so you would think that like and not to say it there i think we all can agree culturally speaking there is some level of like va- like a oh, what uh oh god some of the like there's some like varnish on the veneer like wouldn't you say that like it's exactly like these films are rosy still right the raimi films I'm not sure that I'm understanding you. Can you elaborate elaborate a little more? The Raimi films aren't held in like 100% esteem. They're not seen as infallible. They're not seen as like the Star Wars original trilogy. Or the, or the original Lord of the Rings as in Fellowship, Two Towers, and Return of the King. Correct? Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, I think okay. also, especially in, you know, not just in general culture, but in the meme culture we've been talking about. If I see a Spider-Man 3 meme, it's derisive you know it's uh, it's either like making fun of somebody type of thing if i see a lord of the rings meme it's positive 100 percent of the time like they're using it to a positive effect and so i think you're absolutely right with that okay you know the, the, this the, is the, the rust on it absolutely yes there's some tarnish on it this is the oh, thing tarnish yeah i know i i, I slip of the tongue Okay, yeah, um, you said varnish, which is like a finishing thing. Yes, so tarnish <laughs> on the varnish. Are we still uh, talking about Trump gotcha. and how he's orange? Am I missing something? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's where the varnish. But this, but this is the thing, though. We all agree that Rainy Spider-Man has some tarnish on it. Yes. And you have Tom Holland Spider-Man, which is con- by by the masses, maybe not us, but by the masses, is considered like I don't want to say immaculate, but there's really no complaints about it. No mainstream. There's no emo emo Spidey. There's no Topher Grace Venom. There's no ubiquitous complaints about those films. Well, I mean, I don't want to jump the gun, but the characters are written better in those movies as well. Well, but but I mean, Ben, we're talking about the culture, the the cultural hegemony of the mid to late 2010s. They, the, the culture at large has no complaints with the Tom Holland films as they do with the Raimi trilogy. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, in in general, I definitely think that that is the case. Or are we yes. getting into some issues well, of time, awesome. though? That's awesome. what you bring up. Okay, okay, go for it. Well, no, but this is the thing, though. This is the thing I find kind of perplexing about the notion of No Way Home delving so far into the nostalgia well. Is that, and it goes back to that thing I said earlier, why not just do another Tom Holland story? Like, clearly, mass audiences are on board with his interpretation of the character, Disney, Marvel, Sony's interpretation is because this is a collaborative effort. John Watts is the director of this. His whatever his involvement is on all this. Why go back to something that does have that level of tarnish on it? Isn't the nostalgia of Rainy McGuire so potent that they want to bring that in for just like why? Why go back to something that does have that level of tarnish on it that your new contemporary thing does not? That's an interesting question because they could have they could have achieved nostalgia uh, just by including Doc Ock or Lizard Man or like any of the like iconic like I mean they kind of got there with Mysterio Mysterio is one of the like kind of iconic villains from the '90s animated series like they could have achieved nostalgia at least for some audiences without 
going back to those to those movies. You're you're right, Ben, and I think the answer to Zach's question is possession. The MCU, upon doing this nostalgia baiting and including these, now gets to say all those other Spider-Man movies that weren't in the MCU are now ours. I think that's a big part of it. They get to own Ooh. the Sam Raimi trilogy and the Andrew Garfield duology, whatever it would be called. I think that they, they want to use these exact things to say, oh, now they are ours. Like, they weren't mistakes. So it's, they so weren't it is, rusted. Now they're ours. So, it is, so in that sense, Rob, this is a cancer. Well, yeah, I would totally agree. <laughs> this is a cancer, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's an interesting idea, Rob. The the idea that they want to take ownership of those movies, and then I mean, who knows what they could decide to use from them in the future? It almost doesn't matter. Exactly. I think it's the same they, Star Wars thing when when Disney bought Star Wars, they were like, oh yeah, all those other like thousands of hours of like you know TV shows and books or audio books that stuff that's Star Wars Legends. We're gonna pick and choose what we own with Star Wars now. I think that's exactly what MCU's doing. They're saying, oh, people liked Alfred Molina Doc Ock. Yeah, that that wasn't Sam Raimi. That wasn't a mistake. That wasn't like a bad movie. That's ours. Like it's almost retconning reality to some extent well, and, and that's actually an all I, I don't know for certain how much we know but we have seen doc ock uh being spoiled we've seen jay jonah jameson i don't know how much we've seen from the garfield uh i think in one of the i think the second andrew garfield when they show off like the sinister six costumes and things like that okay um so like if i'm remembering correctly I, i'm just while. thinking with with what you're talking about like they are in a sense adopting all of the material from those movies, but they only have to highlight the material that they want to. Yep. Absolutely. And the material that they think is, is valuable. That's an interesting point. Cause they, so they can, they can come along and say like, Oh, Doc Ock is a beloved character with, you know, whatever reason people liked him, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. So like, that's, that's a character we want to bring into the universe. Um, but maybe Sandman we're going to leave behind for this reason or that. Exactly. They, it allows them to, to like give, partial ownership and say all the good stuff is ours but all that bad stuff yeah that was what we're leaving out it it gives them control to to bolster themselves with nostalgia yeah that's interesting that does make some sense as to why this is the route they're taking as opposed to uh like i mentioned earlier and kind of like what they did with into the spider-verse just creating uh, new or using characters that were not um previously in in you know the the uh, cinematic universes yeah Exactly. I don't know. Does that make some sense, Zach? The ownership? It does. Oh, no, because I think it because it was a point that I've been thinking about. It's the idea because even um, I know, Rob, you don't follow this. And Ben, I'm not sure how much you've looked into Marvel's What If, the, the animated oh, thing. That's supposed no, to be like I haven't an, watched any of it. Well, this is the thing, though, is that like I, I know Rob knows, but like how they sold that show was like, oh, it's going to be like an anthology series yep. of like what could have happened. And what eventually happened was the show morphed into, oh, this is all part of the Marvel continuity. It just, it just, it, that's what happened. It's no longer like an anthology of like, oh, what could have been? It's no, it's part of, it's part of continuity now. Um, Wait, but how? Because isn't Star Lord Black Panther or something like that? But and... it's, but it goes back to everything else. It's the multiverse. It's all okay. connected. And, and so... how in the season one finale of that is Jeffrey Wright's The Watcher. Who's what? And we saw him at the ending of Gardens, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, like in one of the post-credit scenes with like Stan Lee, and that's the thing. It's just one universe amongst the many, and that ties into the ending of Venom Two, or the post-credit scene of Venom Two, where it's like it's just 
it, it's all even though it's what happened was instead of it being just like this thing that's this like oh god removed from continuity prior it's now just one branch of the massive universe of continuity okay but and i don't know if this is as true with marvel but i suspect that it is but like every every so often dc just reboots their entire universe do you know the official story like are those other universes or are they just like wiped out and they never happened and what's what's happening now is canon well, like it's, I, not, it's not that it's not that it's wiped out. It's the thing of if you remember from Avengers Endgame, where I think it was what um, Tilda Swinton's the the ancient, not the ancient one. Is it the ancient one? What's Tilda Swinton's character name? Maybe. In, in, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> she's she's the Sorcerer Supreme before yeah. Doctor Strange. That's yeah. all that matters. Yes. And she explains to Mark Ruffalo the idea that like time just bra- you have like one main continuity. And you have all these different branches into like different like what ifs. Um, that's the plot of the animated show, and that's the thing. Everything counts. Nothing ever, even though it not it, it might not directly directly inf- influence the plot of the major thing. It's still part of the continuity, and that goes back to what Rob was saying: is that they're trying to possess everything everything now and that's the rumor with doctor strange too is doctor strange like uh no way home is going to bring in the sony continuity uh doctor strange 2 is going to bring in the fox continuity whereas uh, what's the fox continuity is that the x-men x-men, x-men and, and fantastic four i imagine they can't bat that away with uh, uh, a a big enough uh stick <laughs> um but again who knows so they're, no. they're bringing in the X-Men continuity? That's the plan? That's the rumor. Is that okay. in Doctor Strange 2, a very, very uh, prolific character from the X-Men continuity will be in that film. Uh, so, But that's goofy because, like, no, okay, for one, I don't think Hugh Jackman's doing Wolverine anymore. Oh, he will. Oh, he will. Uh, okay, he, wants, yes, he said it numerous times. He wants to be an Avenger. He wa- he, and, trust me. Guess, okay. Give it a couple years. That, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to see it. I love Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Oh, even in their own universe, they retconned their continuity. <laughs> Numerous times. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> because they were like, oh, wait, that actually sucks. Yes. But this is the point, though, I'm trying to get at with Marvel's What If. Is that when they play, like I said, and it's not even playing around, but when they tell these, like, like What If stories, pardon the pun, it makes people, and this has been the Disney entire business model with Disney Plus, is that they like referencing these other things that happen. So then you go back and consume the other media. Like the major plot point of What If is what if Ultron, instead of being destroyed in Age of Ultron, beats Thanos, gets all the Infinity Ga- uh, the Infinity Stones, and tries to conquer the multiverse. And then Jeffrey writes the Watcher has to assemble a, a, a oh god a mix and match bag of all these different heroes of the multiverse to fight this super duper Ultron. Okay, and guess I didn't, what? I didn't realize that the What If series had like a storyline that 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 uh, persisted across episodes. I thought yeah, they were like one-offs. that's but but that's the thing exactly that's what we all thought until guess what two thirds of the way through. It was like, nope, it's all part of the same continuity. And that's what I think they're trying to do with No Way Home. Because Sony and Disney made a deal like a year or two ago 
that said once whoever has the streaming rights for the the first five Spider-Man movies, once that deal ends, Disney Plus will be the home of all the Spider-Man movies. Okay. Like the the Raimi and uh, Mark Webb movies. I think it's Stars that has them right now. Yes. And once that deal concludes, Disney will. And I think this is Disney and concerning Disney's been doing this with Star Wars now forever and Rob can tell you because he's been like at gunpoint forced to watch <laughs> what? Mandalorian, Clone Wars, Rebels. Um, it's the idea is that like none of this stuff can just be its own thing. It's there to be a sampler platter for some other TV show, movie, whatever. So you start to delve into other things. It's meant to be like this symbiotic circle, pardon the pun, of you just can't, you can't, it's kind of like the Lay's potato chip edge of bet you can't eat just one. I think what you're trying to tell me is that this is the Wikipedia of the movie world. Yes, yes. And and that's the thing. And, that, and that's the thing. Like, they know there'll be six-year-olds that go into No Way Home having no idea what any of this is. And they'll be like, oh, I really like that Doc Ock character. Oh, I really like that Green Goblin. Oh, I really like that particular Spider-Man. And then mom and dad will be like, oh, I remember these movies, little Janie and Johnny. We should watch this. And then it just leads to this never-ending circle of just staying in the Disney pavilion of entertainment. It's, Traffic it's is fucked fun. up to me <laughs> that you would assert that anybody would name their kids that. Um, no, no, that, that's that's How totally what's going to happen. Little Johnny's gender, and, and so that's that's actually oh that yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Don't do that. You'll get fired. Um, but no, that that's actually something that that's kind of interesting with regards to this nostalgia thing, is like. They are. De- they have definitely tapped into the fact that the generation, um, my generation, now has kids that they're taking to the movies. It's like they're they're putting out movies that are content that that existed when I was younger, when we were younger. You know, that that is geared towards children. So it's like, oh, I'll go. I I will be okay with watching that with my child, and I and maybe even t- want to take them to see it, like that kind of thing. You're 100 percent correct. That is, uh, Rob. Do you disagree on any of it? Considering that you're the one that's most removed from this, um, do you disagree with any of these assertions? No, I, I can't say that I do because I think it makes perfect sense when you're looking at, like Ben, you just said that generational aspect of this stuff. I think that's exactly another reason that they're pulling on this nostalgia, um, where you have another entry point in this. You know, just to use the example of the um, the Far From Home that we've been dealing with. You have an entry point for you know our generation going oh this is what i grew up with now i have a kid let me show it to them type of thing it's a, it's another way to get those viewers type of thing which is which like you said show business at the end of the day but, that's what well, it comes down to but they're also like they're also leaning on something that's like psychologically relevant which is the fact that we in some way shape or form want to impart ourselves on our children yes uh, yes so I guess good on them for realizing that that was like a way they could manipulate people. Sure. Um, And it's been done before. I mean, I think that a great example is star Wars, the force awakens, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, I can show my kids. It's the passing of the torch. I think is the the phrase it all boils down to. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe, you know, I said taking advantage of it or, or whatever the hell I said, but, but perhaps, uh, or no, I said manipulating, perhaps they're just taking advantage of it. Like perhaps this is a thing that like it's going to happen anyway yep. someday someday your your star wars fanatics are going to show their kids star wars regardless of whether they have a new star wars movie mm-hmm. so 
now they're just taking advantage of the fact that this parent is going to do that and giving them like simultaneously making money off of them, but also giving them that entry point that they need with Jar Jar Binks, which was the, you know, so I don't know. That's, that's kind of interesting. And I think to some degree, um, people might actually even be grateful for that. Sure. I mean, as a, as a, on a personal level, you know, a family gets to say, I mean, it hasn't happened. Who knows if it'll ever happen? I mean, it probably will. It's just years away when they make a back to the future four. You're going to have the same exact thing. It's going to be the, oh, wow, Back to the Future. Those movies are great when I was a kid. Now I got my kid. We can see it. You know, let's do it. And they're just going to keep doing it with as many ideas as they can. It just so happens that right now, I think in the era we're in, Star Wars and comic books are the biggest, like, elements of that notion. Right. And it's – in the case of of the comic books, it's it's, they're making – movies to match the cartoons and comics that we loved as kids exactly whereas with star wars they're they're making movies for the movies but yeah i don't, I don't know that's that's um it, i i don't know i so i i guess i'm torn between the words manipulative and, and uh opportunistic sure sure and ben is there a difference uh, where's the line between those two Absolutely, there's a difference. Well, I think de- I think definition-wise, there's a difference, but I think I know what you're saying, Zach. And what I was about to say, Ben, is that I think that they Hollywood or the industry is trying to make these the same word. Like they can manipulate people into this type of mindset, which I think has been well, somewhat successful. I mean, opportunistic in the sense that, like, like I had mentioned, like perhaps they're just taking advantage of a thing that already exists, whereas yes. manipulative is is forcing the thing to exist. In in at least some sense, so so yes, there's a difference, and whether I I can't say that they're not trying to make them the same, uh, because that very well could be true. Yeah, uh, they very well could be, uh, or or rather, it it could be the case that they're so intertwined at this point that that they're hard to distinguish from each other. That uh, that's another be- good thought, and even the idea of maybe it started as opportunistic and is now turned into manipulative because they've seen how successful it's been. Right. So they're going to keep creating until people tell them with their wallets that they have to stop. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, or that they have to do something different. Yeah. So that's. Well, okay. You have, you, but okay. I want to get back to the movies. Cause like I said, I, I, I warned everybody this would get philosophical <laughs> for a while. Um, but like you, like you're saying you have opportunistic manipulative. Then you also have conditioning. Sure. Yeah. That, that's, that's the right word for what I was thinking. Yeah. And and that's where we are now. We're like, okay, nostalgia was opportunistic. Then it became manipulative. Now you've conditioned not just our generation, but the next generation to just nostalgia is the bedrock of everything. Unless it's like, it's like what Rob said, like you would go into like a video rental house in the nineties. And yes, there were very familiar elements like in the box art. But behind that box art was a videotape that wasn't 100 percent derivative of something else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It at least had some creativity and imagination that was steeped some level in originality. Now, like we joke, but like you go through the whether it be the streaming like Netflix title cards or whatever it is, and every like, for the most part, it's just like everything's trying to emulate what is the most popular thing po- possible, not just in like the cover but down to like the essentials of the whatever form of entertainment it is and that's just the thing that's frustrating because like i said you you wouldn't get these properties you would not get like your your jurassic parks your star again it goes back to the thing with dune and star wars there's a reason why like there's probably like why david lynch's dunes died so hard 
is that like because things like Star Wars borrowed the best parts of it and tweaked them to the most god palatable level of the mass audiences. So one of the things that threw me for a loop when I was rewatching these movies, and like I said, I've seen them all once back, you know, probably right around when they came out. How many people are in this movie? Like, recognizable faces. And I'm not just talking about the main cast. You know, of course, our Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco. We all know them. Willem Dafoe, even Alfred Molina. I'm talking about these one-scene performances. Some of them just absolutely had me just, like, just shocked that we were seeing these people. I'll run through these quick, because I know we have even more talk about Spider-Man. Octavia Spencer shows up as the wrestling administrator in the first movie. Macho Man Randy Savage is Bonesaw McGraw, who is... I always love seeing Macho Man Randy Savage. Are you ready? His, that voice, his performance is wonderful. I got you for three minutes. <laughs> Jim Norton, the comedian, is one of the people that gets interviewed in the Spider-Man fighting montage in the first movie. Elizabeth Banks in all three movies is J. Jonah Jameson's secretary. That mm-hmm. I was shocked. I was like, I didn't, I didn't remember that at all. And then, I mean, of course, you know, as we'll get to all of these, I have some more to talk about. Bruce Campbell has his cameo in all three of these. I know I'll, that might be our segue to get into Zach's questions. In the second movie, Asif Manvi is his boss at the pizza place, Peter Parker's boss at the pizza place. That was shocking to me. Donnell Rollins is one of the guy guys in the opening Spider-Man 2 montage who goes, he stole that guy's pizza. Very famously, you know, Donnell Rollins being the guy who says, I'm rich, bitch, at the end of Chappelle's show. Emily Deschanel is the receptionist at the law firm that Peter Parker delivers pizza to. The famous pizza timeline is given to, uh, delivered to Emily Deschanel. I, I mean, it just goes on and on. Daniel Day Kim is one of Dr. Octopus's assistants in the, the first uh, – the scene where he gets his origin, of course, you know, from Lost. Peter McRobbie is the guy at Dr. Octopus's demonstration that says, you know – uh, this is beyond your father's wildest imaginations. He has one line. He's been a judge in Law and Order forever, type of thing. You got Joel McHale who shows up as a bank teller, which was wild to me. You have, uh, I think, Steve Valentine shows up as the guy mm. taking pictures of Gwen Stacy um, in the third movie. Speaking of Gwen Stacy, I would, I never would have gotten it right at trivia if you asked me, you know, who played Gwen Stacy. It's fucking Bryce Dallas Howard with blonde hair, which was the craziest thing to see. I mean, Phil Lamar's in one shot of this movie and Spider-Man 2. He's one of the people on the train. I mean, there are so many background people that I recognize. I was kind of shocked. <laughs> Hal Sparks in the elevator Hal, with him in the second film? Yes, Hal Sparks in the elevator was great. I love Hal Sparks. I mean, I know him from VH, VH1's I Love the Blanks. Yep, yeah, yep. exactly. There was just so much, like so many of my notes as I was watching, you know, this six plus hours of movies. I was like, oh my God, I know that person. I know that person. I know that person. <laughs> like, it was kind of wonderful. And before we get to Bruce Campbell, because we have to talk about Bruce Campbell in these movies. He's so much fun. The other person, he's not a, a an actor or anything, but I don't know if you guys noticed, the music for the first two movies is done oh by boy. our good friend, oh boy. Danny Elfman, the singing voice of Jack Skellington, the, the mystic knight of Oingo Boingo himself. But he does not do the movie for Spider- uh, the music for Spider-Man 3. He actually he turned offended. it down. He, he got offended during the making of the second one. Yeah, apparently Danny Elfman and Sam Raimi are not 
they don't work together well, I guess is the way to put it, which I didn't know until my research for this, which I thought was pretty fun, because it just seems like as we go through cinematodies, we're just talking about Danny Elfman and all the people he has trouble working with in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to think Danny Elfman's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great to interview Danny Elfman and be like, "Are you the problem?" <laughs> what, what's that I mean, saying? He's the he common goes... denominator. Yeah. What, what's What's that saying? If, like, if you meet an everybody... asshole in the morning, he's yes. an asshole. <laughs> if you meet assholes all day, you're an asshole. <laughs> yes. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so my my favorite cameo, of course, the the obligatory, the one I the one thing I probably did remember is that these are Sam Raimi movies. We're going to get Bruce Campbell in here somehow. So Bruce Campbell in the first movie is the ringleader, I, I think that's, or the MC, I guess, of the wrestling. Um, yeah, he's, yep. he's the announcer guy. The announcer, yeah. He's the one who gives Spider-Man his name because, you know, Peter Parker wants to be, what, the amazing tarantula? The human the, spider. The human spider, that's it. Uh, Bruce Campbell is the dickish usher in the second movie who doesn't let Peter enter Mary Jane's play. Oh, and, shit. Yeah, he is. Yeah, and I find it absolutely hilarious that there are, like, three or four distinct moments. Like, Peter Parker comes in, Bruce Campbell's like, you should fix your tie. You should tie your shoes. You should straighten your shirt. And then he goes, can I help you? You're not allowed in. It's really funny. I found it hilarious. And then he is also the maitre d' with the corny French accent who is trying to help Peter propose in Spider-Man 3. So Bruce Campbell is in all three of these movies, and I love Bruce Campbell. Of course, watching, you know, the Evil Dead movies so recently, all three of them, it was great to see him in these Bruce Campbell gives wildly funny performances. I think even in the last one as the maitre d', just watching him with the French accent is unbelievable because it's so over-the-top and cheesy, corny, you know, that type of stuff. But I figured you'd have something to ask about Bruce Cam- or say or ask about Bruce Campbell, Zach. I knew we'd have to get to Bruce Campbell in this discussion eventually. Peter Packer. Peter- <laughs> pa- Parker. That's what I said. That's what I said, Harkar. It's like that scene in with Belleville when they're like, Ambargar, no money, no Ambargar, you know? He's actually the same character in all three movies. I think, Ben, you just hit the nail on the head of what Zach wants to talk about. That's the thing. Okay, so that's the thing that, like, in the... In the concept art that has been like posted online for Spider Sam Raimi Spider Man Four, was it like it was going to open with Peter like getting all these like sea level villains, and one of them was going to be like an overweight schlubby Mysterio, and when Spider Man pulls the fishbowl off his head, it was going to be Bruce Campbell. And it was going to be the joke that like Mysterio has been here since the get go, like thwarting his plans. I think I love the idea that Bruce Campbell is the same character in all three of these movies, and I think I kind of would have actually loved a reveal of Bruce Campbell being, like, the the, the, the puppeteer of these events. <laughs> exactly. And I, like I said, like, Spider-Man 4, like, I nobody knows for certain, like, what the plot of that movie was going to be, but from what has kind of, like, leaked out tangentially – it was going to be very much another, like, Spider-Man 2-esque story in that, like, Spider-Man was going to fight with, like – I'm sorry. P- um, Peter Parker was going to, like, have more domestic issues with, like, Mary Jane. Um, he was going to sit there, like, like apparently supposedly break up with Mary Jane and Felicia Hardy was supposed to come in and be That's his new love interest. Black Cat or – well, this okay, Ben. I'm so, again. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I think you're right, Ben. Canonically, in the comics, yes. Felicia Hardy is Black Cat. Yes, <laughs> but in Spider-Man Four, the pri- like primary antagonist was going to be the Vulture, 
And Felicia Hardy was not going to be Black Cat. She was going to be the Voltress working with the Vulture. Yeah, I don't. I have no thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Ben's just like, what? Like, no wonder why they threw this out. Well, they should. That would have been hashtag not my Spider Man. (laughs) Hashtag not my Felicia Hardy. That's, yeah, well. We'll get that next week with uh, Felicity Jones as Felicia Hardy for uh, 14 seconds. Is. Oh God, she's in that. Felicity Jones is Felicia Hardy. I, I will um, have to. I will have to do my research when I watch Jean those Urso, movies. Her, Rob, if you think it's bad in these movies, like all like the actors that play nobodies, you wait until the next two movies. <laughs> you are gonna have just as much of a field day, if not more so. Oh, that's good. Um, that's good. Especially Chris Cooper playing like the disembodied head of Norman Osborn. Yes, no, like so. Like that's the thing about Spider-Man Four is that like Spider-Man Four was gonna be a mess. Like, if we thought Spider-Man 3 was bad, 4 was more of just them flailing around. And from what I can tell, like I said, there's only there's only a handful of notes out there about, like, why that film collapsed. But once again, apparently was Sony wanted that film to come out the first weekend of May of 2011. And by, like, April, May of 2010, Raimi went to the studio and was like, this is his own words. He's like, I, I, he's like, I can't do this. He's like, I don't have enough time to fix this script. Never mind. Get it ready for you. Get a complete film ready for you in less than a year. And this is the thing where I'm curious to see how much research you guys have done. Just in the sense of like, did you find any corroborating evidence to this claim? Apparently this is coming from Sam Raimi. He says, Amy Pascal, who's the one that's been stewarding the, uh, the Spider-Man franchise ever since then said, thank you for not wasting the studio's time and money. And that's the thing I find the most fascinating regarding this is that notion that like the studio, Sony was pushing Raimi into abandoning Spider-Man four. I want it's Raimi has said on the record that the studio wanted after Spider-Man three, they wanted to reboot the franchise. Yeah, I I found some stuff similar to that in in that almost um uh, the Amy Pascal thing definitely. I think there was some level of they wanted to wash their hands and do something different with Spider-Man because like of course this is all hindsight, but it seemed like they had roped themselves or cornered them into unsustainable growth. Like with the with the amount of storylines and villains in Spider-Man 3, they they knew that they would have had to go bigger and bigger and bigger. And it would have just collapsed in on itself eventually. That's at least the, the 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 idea that I got from looking into it. I didn't look into it. I, didn't <laughs> really, I don't even think I knew that there was a Spider-Man forever in the works. Yeah, they wanted to go all the way to six with Sam Raimi, <laughs> allegedly, of course. Well, that's the thing. Like, if you look at the interviews with Sam Raimi, like, I know he's he's done even like God. Like, one of my favorite examples of a filmmaker like distancing himself from a project is Spielberg and Temple of Doom, where Spielberg's mm-hmm. just like, I want nothing to do with this. Like, I I was in a bad place when I made this movie. It's not how I feel then. It's not how I feel now. Yeah, but anything um, goes. I mean, anything goes. <laughs> yes, but like Raimi is like over the like ever. I would say ever since the press tour for Oz the Great and Powerful which is in its own right another cinematic like he like every chance he gets to talk about spider-man he's like i'm so thankful for sony like taking the chance on me they did like in 2000 but like i i i was just drained he's just like i want like like spider-man 3 killed me as a filmmaker yeah he's like 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 i craved going back to like smaller independent pictures 
And that's when he did Drag Me to Hell, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is another just like a schlocky horror film. Like I remember seeing that and being kind of disappointed after like the watching the Evil Dead movies. And because like it, it just it was a little too what polished. Rob, have you ever seen Drag Me to Hell? No, I well, I think I've seen part of it because somebody had it on once. But I've the only Raimi movies I've seen are the Spider Mans, the Evil Deads, and I actually have seen Crime Wave. <laughs> okay, you ever seen Dark Man? Oh, oh, Dark Man, of course. Yeah, I've seen Dark Man. Yes. Okay. Love me a Dark um, Man. <laughs> that that's the thing because like in Raimi, like right after Drag Me to Hell went to like Oz the Great and Powerful. Yes. Which was uh, that was Disney trying to again back when they still tried to do something slightly different. And that was another example of, like, they just wrote Raimi a blank check. Everybody forgets, like, that movie made, like, over half a billion dollars, except it cost, like, a half a billion dollars to, like, make between, like, the production budget and the uh, prints and advertising. And, and like, ever since, Raimi has been more of a producer than anything else. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, the Raimi that I love is the earlier Raimi, I mean... I, I wish we could have gotten to talk about it, Zach, but, I mean, I love Evil Dead 1 and Evil Dead 2. Army of Darkness is a little too goofy for me, except the uh, skeleton marching band scene. That's one of my favorite things ever. I I can totally get that when he's doing something this big in the studio system that he's going to want to go back to having that control over a small scale that he got used to. I totally get it. But this is, like I said, and I agree with you. And that's where, like, like watching these movies, and I think it's very evident that Spider-Man 3 is the film that he had the least amount of control over. Because watching the first two, there are so many elements that feel just like knowing Sam, like, Raimi's filmography, you can point to and be like, oh, that is a Sam Raimi shot. Yeah, yeah, Like, absolutely. from, like, conception to execution, that is his. His fingerprints are all over it. I mentioned it earlier, but I think the best example is when um, the mechanical arms of Dr. Octopus wake up, you know, in air quotes, because they're robots, they can't wake up, they just are there. Um, Kills all the the doctors, the surgeons in the hospital room. Like, that Mm -hmm. is so Sam Raimi, it's unbelievable. Like, it's a a well-lit surgery room, but somehow we get a shot of one nurse being dragged into shadows while her nails are (laughs) grinding on the floor. And I'm like, that's such a Sam Raimi horror thing, but why is this happening? Shredding the steel floor. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) It's so over the top, it's so Sam Raimi, and it's like... It's like, why is there a corner of darkness in this surgery room? It's just so goofy. It's fun. <laughs> but even like I said, even that whole sequence, like you have the fact they have like a chain, like an industrial chainsaw that can cut through metal. <laughs> yeah, which uh, isn't I, really, which I thought which was isn't a really huge, a thing. Like I, if you think about it, I thought that was a huge Evil Dead reference where we have somebody pick up a chainsaw, you know, to fight Doctor Octopus, and I was just like, I, I know what you're doing, Raimi, and I love it. <laughs> but even like you have all of that. And even as the se- like the final shot of that sequence is like Otto Octavius lamenting his existence between the fact that like he's got this contraption like melded to his back, he's lost his wife, and like he's like does like that yell to the heavens, and we see the tentacle arms like mine that exact <laughs> movement. <laughs> it's so like campy and schlocky, and I'm like, this is brilliant. But like the thing that like and then like this is the thing that kind of like was bittersweet about that sequence. I can imagine that like after like they like Spider-Man two had done its run theaters, which is probably sometime like in October, November of 2004. And they went to him. I can imagine like Avi Arad pointing to that sequence and being like, this is the reason why this film made $200 million less. You ruined this movie because mm. of like that. And that's the thing that makes me like hate Avi Arad so much. Oh, sure. Yeah. Cause you can't get a toy out of that scene. 
Yeah. Yes. And that's the thing. And I, and I know for a fact, like, as somebody who, again, bought the merchandise for all these movies, is it like I bought – like, there weren't as many toy opportunities in Spider-Man 2 as there were in Spider-Man 2002. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're talking a lot about Spider-Man 2. We talked about Spider-Man 3. But, Zach, Ben, we're missing something important. The original Spider-Man and its relation to 9-11. How have we not gotten to this yet? <laughs> Because uh, you haven't brought it up yet. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good answer, Ben. So, of course, this movie comes out after nine eleven. Uh, changes to the movie are made. I think that might be one of the things Zach wants to talk about. But most importantly, I think one of the things that I read and I've known for a while is that a scene that was added into the movie, because of course they had to digitally erase the twin towers in a lot of these shots because they filmed prior to nine eleven. But the whole ending with the New Yorkers standing up against Green Goblin and throwing shit at him and say, like, you know, if you want to fight Spider- If you mess with Spider-Man, you mess with New York, which I think is totally cheesy. That is- You mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. Yes, it's exactly for the purpose of being in the shadow of 9-11, is what I read, is that it was like they wanted a moment of New York coming together to fight a villain in a movie, which makes perfect sense. I don't know, Zach, did you see that at all in your research? Oh, oh 100%. <laughs> yeah, because it, it kind of screams. It's, it's, it's well, yeah. Well, one, you know, when Green Goblin, he does the whole thing with, um, he, he takes takes a page right out of Batman Forever, because if you remember the end of Batman Forever, Joel Schumacher's first Batman movie, they do the, we're going to drop, you know, Robin, and we're going to drop Chase Meridian, I think is Nicole Kidman's name. And yes, I've watched that movie way too recently. And it's like, I'm going to drop them both, and Batman, you have to choose one. And that's exactly what Green Goblin does. But see, Batman didn't have the city of New York on his side. The city of New York is throwing a water bottle at Green Goblin, and that messes up his plans. But I, I don't I know. That stuff came up as so cheesy to me. <laughs> uh, I actually – so despite how cheesy that scene is, I actually really, like, had an emotional reaction to it, I guess. It was just like this we're standing up together kind of thing. Okay. Um, so it worked for you? Like in the uh, the sense that, you know, Spider-Man is now the hero of New York type of thing? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and – it, I, I don't think I ever connected that to 9-11 in any way in my mind as a, as a youth or even now. Sure. Uh, I definitely see it now that you've said it. But, I, uh, yeah, it, I think it worked for me fine. Right on, right on. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, you know, 9-11 looms large over this podcast. And uh, that scene is showing it or showing a positive effect of 9-11 is, is something we don't usually get to do. Because a negative effect of 9-11 is... Sony Shrek. had to – well, I mean Shrek, of course, but that, that's the cause of 9-11. Now we're talking after, like post-9-11. This, this is a whole new territory for us. Sony had to pull so many posters and a whole teaser trailer post-9-11. I don't know about you guys, but I, I found and watched this teaser trailer. It is literally of bank robbers getting away from the scene of a robbery. Like they just robbed a bank. They get on the roof. They get in a helicopter. They're seemingly going to get away, but then they get stopped by something. They, they get stopped by a web, and you see Spider-Man's web kind of like pulling the helicopter, and they eventually come to land in a giant spider web that Spidey has spun in between the Twin Towers. Oh, damn. And this, this was pulled after, you know, the, the uh, September 11th attacks happened, but you can still find it online. And I think that's something, Zach, you were, you were trying to get at is – there is some conflicting information on whether this was just for the teaser trailer or was actually also footage from the movie. 
What well, did you find about that? Well, th- that's the thing is I I never really thought about this. This was like, God, it has to be like anywhere from five to like ten years ago. I think it was a nostalgia critic or maybe like the angry video game nerd. One of them, like like the early days of YouTube, like pop culture people before um, that sort of like quote unquote industry became ubiquitous. Um, they did like a video on that and they're like, this teaser trailer is like way too like refined. Okay. Like in, and it just feels too polished because a, it's not in the film itself and B it's, it's just, it's peculiar. And if you look at like, where would you place that moment? Like if that were an actual scene in the film, the moment you would place that in the movie would be that sequence where you get that montage of all the New Yorkers like talking about like the new appearance of Spider-Man. Yeah, with the with the the scene being about, you know, low life criminals, like just bank robbers, like nobody recognizable, like no supervillains. It would have had to have been just a oh Spider-Man coming into his own fighting crime type of thing. Like, exactly. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. You don't like you look at the Spider-Man the movie 2002. You have him confronting the guy who we at that point think killed Uncle Ben in the like docks warehouse, and then you immediately move into that montage. Then next thing you know, it's like the unofficial Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yep, yep. Um, there's never that moment which you get in any superhero movie where you see the character have that triumphant moment of them wearing the suit doing their thing. And so, like I said, I don't remember. I, I'm pretty sure it was Nostalgia Critic. I'm pretty sure it was him where he's like, I have nothing to base this off of. And according to everybody involved with the production of the film, they say that teaser trailer was very much its own thing. It, had, it was never going to be in the film. Okay. It was solely a piece of marketing. It just, it just feels too polished. It just – if you look at all the other marketing for Spider-Man and other Sony films of that time period, they didn't do anything else like that for any other film. Sure, sure. And so it's like – and I get it. Spider-Man was a really big get for them. But this is also a time period where comic book movies were still kind of weird. Like DC had gone into hiding after the Schumacher films. Yep. yep. Yes, you had Blade and X-Men, but they were very – like think about it. Like they were very much – they were popular but not on the same level that Sony was trying to make this film. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So I, again, I guess it's, it's going to be one of those things until we get a marketing executive or a producer, like, again, maybe Avi Arad, <laughs> as much as the, the deep sea, the contempt I have for him. He's probably one of the very few people who could tell you one way or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I know for a fact that like the idea of the uh, it was the first teaser poster for this film that came out like in the uh, late summer of 2001 of Spider-Man looking up toward the skyscraper horizon, you see the reflection of the Twin Towers in the um, lenses of his eyes, I guess. Um, That's always been kind of like a holy grail for poster enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where I would love to know the context to it because I feel like there's a piece to it that hasn't been explored. Um, I guess we all know uh, national tragedies and movie marketing are one of those like weird intersections that not many people tend to cross. Um, I would just love to know it because it feels like there's a piece missing there. And this goes back even to like you were saying, Rob, that Green Goblin sequence on Roosevelt Island where you have people just chucking bottles at uh, Norman Osborn. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it feels bizarre. And then even that entire climax between Green Goblin and Spider-Man, it like it feels very small. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and, um, and that's a very and restrained. Have, yeah. But that's the thing, though. We don't have any frame of reference for this because if this was made today, you could very easily be like, oh, this is way too small for a contemporary blockbuster. But back in 2002, we really didn't get these bombastic endings with a blue laser shooting into the sky. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I but think that goes just, what you were saying. This makes makes this movie, these movies, a little more quaint in retrospect. It, yeah. Yes, but like I said, it feels like that entire climax outside of um, Peter saving the kids in the cable car and Mary Jane. It feels like they shot that all like in a month. Yeah, I the guess, whole thing yeah. just like even if you look, like, I know people complain about these movies, special effects. Um, but if you look at Green Goblin in that sequence where the New Yorkers are chucking things at him, he looks very, very, like, rushed when it came to rendering. Okay, okay. And then you have that sequence where, like, out of nowhere, because, again, you have that sequence where Green Goblin, I'm sorry, after uh, Spider-Man lowers the cable car, he lowers Mary Jane, she's like, look out! And we see Goblin, like, carry Peter, and it's very clearly a CGI shot. And the next we know, Peter's being thrown through, like, a soundstage, like... (laughs) Little yeah. like fake church, like abandoned derelict church, and it just feels very small. But like I said, I can't tell if that was done because Sam Raimi liked the quaintness of it, mm-hmm. or because they needed to do something really, really quick, like in the fall winter of two thousand one. That's interesting. I I wasn't I didn't dig into it that far, but you're right. I should have thought more about that when I was watching it before I did my research to see if I thought there was like a like a segment or, or multiple segments of nine 11 post nine 11 reshoots. Um, I, I I don't think I'm ever going to watch this again to look out for that. So I'll take your word for it. But do we all agree the design of the green goblins mask is really weird in the scenes when Willem Dafoe and Peter Parker or, you know, Tobey Maguire are just talking in their costumes. Like there's a few monologues that the green goblin gives about like Spider-Man come join me. And you are just watching like full frame, this green goblin mask, hearing a voice come out of it, but seeing no emotion. Like the the mask does not articulate. There was something really weird about the green goblin in the first movie. Every time he talked, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I can agree with you uh, about that. Uh, like even when the lenses lift up and you see Norman Osborn's face, like yeah. eyes a little bit, like it just looks very strange. And then also, Zeg, you actually I, you reminded me of something when I should have looked for those post nine eleven reshoots. The design of the mask, the finer details of the design of the mask, change from scene to scene. Which I'm, I mean, of course, I'm not saying it's like a goof of the movie. It could totally be, you know, chalked up to the Green Goblin getting better with his technology. But, like, in the first Green Goblin scene, his mask has, like, no no filter on the mouth. Like, you're actually able to see Willem Dafoe's mouth behind it. But then in the later scene, there's, like, mesh, so you can't see his mouth. And then I think the eyes change between two fights or something like that. I don't know, the whole thing was just really weird. Like, every time I was looking at... Um, Green Goblin, I was like, just make him take the mask off. Willem Dafoe's a scary enough looking person that we don't need the mask. (laughs) I think that's the thing about this movie, though, is that if, again, this, the comic, like we've already made abundantly clear at this point, the comic book genre, the most successful comic book movies of the last decade by the time this film was released was God, Batman and uh, Robin. Yep. No, Batman Forever. Batman Forever. Excuse me. Batman Forever. Um, everybody lo- – I, I know it's this new thing now, and I, I, anytime I hear this argument, I reach for my proverbial gun. Everyone's like, no, Spider-Man's not the beginning of Marvel. It's Blade. And it's like 
it's like no blade blade was a flash in the pan at best x-men made like x-men was like a surprising hit but if you look at the inflation for this film like this film had like a 130 million dollar budget in 2002 mm-hmm. and you do that now what that be worth it's a 200 million dollar budget and so sony always expected this movie to do like boffo numbers they just never expected to get near a billion dollars which was nearly like outside of titanic was unheard of Oh, Movies yeah, yeah. never got that close. Like this film made like eight hundred and like forty million dollars in two thousand two. Like it, it made was all the money in two thousand two. Uh, well, it, it actually didn't because there was a uh, a Harry Potter and a Lord of the Rings movie this year as well. But it made almost all the money. <laughs> exactly, and that's the thing. Like I can still, like I said, going back to how I started this discussion. Like I remember, like reading in like in all the entertainment weeklies, the star logs, all these. Being like, oh, like the biggest, everyone, like it was a really big thing. Like, it's like, oh, biggest movies of 2002. And it was like, well, like we do have Star Wars, but like Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring just came out and that was a huge success. Harry Potter just came out and that was a massive success. And then you have Spider Man, which is like really like have this, has this level of just, Oh God! Yeah, intensity that like people are just so primed for this. I remember like in April, like there was kid like little like nine year olds I hung around with, and like everybody was excited for this film, and I was just like, "No, Star Wars! You're stupid, Star Wars!" <laughs> and then like like Star Wars came out, and then like Spider Man came out three weeks earlier, and all everyone kept doing was talking about Spider Man, and it was like it was the idea that like, I remember even by the end of that year, it was the notion of a Star Wars film wasn't the most, like, the biggest movie of the year it came out. Yeah. Like, that yeah. was unheard of. And it wasn't just the fact that it wasn't the biggest. It wasn't even, like, in the top three biggest movies of the year. Mm-hmm. And that was when you had Spider-Man, um, Two Towers, like, Chamber of Secrets, Secrets yep. then Attack of the Clones. Yeah. And it yeah. was like, wow. Like, everybody kind of took a step back, and that was, and that's a thing. Spider-Man fundamentally, again, we're not getting back into philosophical. I promise we'll segue back into more um, of the movie. But it was that level, like, where everybody took a step back and said, oh, I guess things are changing. Sure. It's interesting. I looked at that same exact thing because, you know, when you read about this, you know, I mean, the original Spider-Man, of course, is is very famously the the first movie ever to gross over $100 million in its opening weekend. So it has that financial um, record. But then you keep reading and you go, oh, but it's only the third highest grossing movie of that year. And it's like, how could that be? And you look at it and it's like, oh, we were in sequel territory with The Lord of the Rings, with Harry Potter. And of course, as you said, it it made more than Star Wars, but with Attack of the Clones. Like, it's kind of crazy that, you know, we think back to this era of Hollywood, of the early 2000s, and we we might say, like, we might be nostalgic for it, as we've been talking about. That's But we were still in—we were just as much as—not maybe as much, but we were in franchise territory way back then, like we are now. It, it's almost—what it, I'm, I'm saying is I'm, it was shocked to go back and look at those stats for me. Oh, definitely, because I can still remember, like, in 2002, like, my, like somebody in my house had the Today Show on and Gene Shallot was on— and he's like, it's the summer of 2002, and it's the summer of sequels, it's the summer of twos for 2002. Yeah. Um, he had some, like, cute little headline like that that he was spouting. Um, but that's the thing, though. But, like, if you look at the, like, top ten highest grossing movies of 2002, and, like, spoiler alert for Rob, like, it won't be a fort year, 
but it's definitely going to be an entire month sometime in, in the summer of 2022. Oh, <laughs> but, we, but we are going to be doing blockbusters of 2002 at some point. Again, like I said, it won't be six months. It'll be one month. It'll be eight it, months. Be... <laughs> Even I won't do that. 2002 isn't that great of a year when it comes to blockbusters. Um, there's really there's not many great movies that come out in the summer of 2002. But no, it's the idea that like it, it was the like you said, Rob. It was the beginning of it. Yeah, yeah. Like it was the beginning of the franchise wars, and it, it was a bellwether, and nobody took note of it. Yeah. And that's kind of – and like if somebody – like I said, like we talked about how 2000 – this is the whole point of the fourth year. The I was start – that was the beginning of me paying attention to all this. And then the following years when I started really like – especially with Star Wars, and I, that, was, that was the first time I could actually get quote-unquote hyped for a Star Wars film. I really started to pay attention to all this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that was the point that like – and now like juxtapose it 20 years later – I'm like, oh, this is where we are. Like, this is this is the point of all this. It's not just simply an uh, old man yelling in a cloud. Yes, yes. And I think on that that same idea of like the franchise that you're bringing up, this this is a good segue into. I think, I think this is. I'm pretty sure this is the last thing I have to say about these movies before our questions. And so I'm I'm at the end of my list after this. The Stan Lee cameo. When we talk about the franchise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, <laughs> we got to talk about the Stan Lee cameo. Of course. In Spider-Man 1 and 2, it's almost useless. It's like the, the cameo he had in Ang, Lee, Ang Lee's Hulk, where he's just there. You can Man see that him. that pushes people out of the way of rubble. Yes, you can see him if you know who Stan Lee is and you are watching the movie. Like, that's what he does. Of course, as they get, as Marvel Cinematic Universe becomes what it is today, they get more and more egregious. I think we've had, what, one or two now? Maybe even more? Uh, posthumously, uh, because of course Stanley passed away. There's like one, there's like one or two that are posthumous. Okay, but I have to say, uh, as someone who has seen a good bit of these Marvel movies where Stanley's had a cameo, n- I have not seen all of them, so I, I can't say for certain. I think out of all the ones I've seen, also the caveat should be said, the ones I remember, Spider-Man Three is a great Stanley cameo. It's when he gets, he goes to Peter Parker, like you have a frame of, you know, Tobey Maguire on the right, Stanley on the left, and Stanley says, I guess one person can make a difference. Nuff said. I don't, there was something about that that hit me harder. I think, you know, combination of maybe not my love for comic books, but my respect for them and Stan Lee and him, you know, having died. I thought that was such a good thing to put in where he's just like, yeah, this is kind of. Like, he, he basically gives a one-sentence summary of what he was going for in making comic books for years. That maybe one person can make a difference. Maybe, you know, you don't have to have powers to be a hero. Like, it all boils down really, really well. I don't know about you guys, but I love the Spider-Man 3 Stan Lee cameo. I don't think he's had anything from, like I said, what I remember, as poignant as that cameo. Usually it's just, like, goofy nonsense, like, oh, hey, we see Stan Lee again, right? Yeah, no, I think he does have his moments. Uh, no, that is the most poignant, where it feels like an actual, like, human being. Yeah, yeah. Um, not just some, like, wink toward the audience. No, I, I think, oh, God, there's there's some better, scan- like, obviously, Stan Lee cameos than others. I know in The Amazing Spider-Man, not to jump too far ahead, but, like, there's that's a pretty fun one. Um, like I said, it's not poignant. You are absolutely correct, Rob. This is the one where it's like it feel like it, it, it's great. Um, it was a little yeah. emotional for me. I have to say, I, when that scene happened, I was like, 
once again, another Spider-Man 3 really interesting concept to have Stan Lee say that, that sentence, followed up with, Nuff said, you know, that, that Marvel, like, his, his catchphrase, basically. I thought it was perfect. I loved it. Yeah. Um, and it's also, too, if that were done today, he would have said, because that became his catchphrase later, Excelsior. Like, oh, that's the thing. It, fe- yeah. it felt like a real person. Like, that's the thing about, like, Raimi Spider-Man. Like, and maybe, Rob, you have, like, summed it up in a perfect, like, bite-sized, like, encapsulation, is that these films feel like, and I don't want to say realistic, but they feel like actual people. Whereas, like, we've talked about, like, God with Avengers Endgame. It's just, like, it's a, it's a, like, it's, we're not, it's like what Martin Scorsese keeps saying. And what was even, what Denis Villeneuve has said it, too. He's like, this isn't, they're like, this isn't cinema. It's just, it's a thrill ride where mm-hmm. the seat doesn't move. And, and they're not wrong. I know the internet, like, has a hard-on for these movies, but, like, th- there's no heart to them. They're just, it's product churned out. Again, it's the big, it's the swipe, swipe your credit card to help the Avengers stop Thanos. Yeah, yeah. And as much as Spider-Man is a, I think it's a genuine mess, it does feel like actual people made it, and it wasn't, like, a computer algorithm that generated <laughs> this into existence. Yes, yes. <laughs> So that was everything I had for the Spider-Man movie. I mean, of course, like we said at the start, we can't go through moment by moment. I mean, what I'm saying is right now, for me, for one-third of the hosts on this podcast right now, my notes are scrolled all the way to the end for our questions. <laughs> I'm on page seven out of seven for my notes, so I'm ready. But I'm Ben, Zach, what else do we have? I, I'm good. That's uh, Even if I wasn't good, my brain's so fried from how long this conversation has been. <laughs> I can't remember why I'm not good, so I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Zach, your, your final, final uh, I, I don't know, uh, dialogue, monologue? <laughs> I, I, I want this to come through in the recording. I am just rubbing my hands together because now oh, it's fine. <laughs> oh, God, I'm so excited. All right, I'm going to try to go through this as fast as I possibly can. Spider-Man 2002. Um, Willem Dafoe is fantastic. Oh, like I am so excited. This I, I, I the rumor is for No Way Home that he's in charge of the Sinister Six. Allegedly, he's the one that's the mastermind of it all. Um, there's been some. I don't know if they're true or not, but there are some leaks of how they've modified his costume. Okay, considering that the uh, there is a really the only. Oh God! Criticism to his performance in this film is the costume, which is something he had no control over. Um, it's funny in preparation for this recording, I I found my like I said all my toys from the first Spider-Man film, including the Green Goblin and his glider. And he's act- the toy actually has a really cool feature where like the entire like back of his helmet is yellow. So if you hold him to his like up to the light, he has like piercing yellow eyes, and it's a really cool oh, effect. Yeah, that's cool. That, that you don't get in modern toys anymore. But as I was looking at this. And I know there's been a lot of, like, really derogatory, like, jabs, like, oh, he looks like a Power Ranger. And they're not wrong, but I know why they designed him this way relative to how he looks in the comics. As a toy, he looks spectacular. Oh, wow. Okay. And I think it's one of those early instances, much like George Lucas and, like, oh, the toy people kind of got to look at everything first and then everybody else. But as a toy... The Green Goblin's design from the 2002 film, it's perfect. Like, I, it, it just – it works brilliantly because, like, I even have – because I have my Tobey Maguire figure, and they look great next to each other. 
Um, like Rob said, the idea of him having like a little piece of like mesh over his mouth yeah, yeah. Um, is kind of goofy. It works in the context of these movies, but just objectively speaking, it's a little peculiar. Um, I have to but, say, I, I don't know if we highlighted, I think we might have briefly mentioned it as we have probably briefly mentioned most, th- most scenes in this movie. Willem Dafoe is one of my favorite actors, and to see him just chew up the scenery and go ham in the first Spider-Man is wonderful. I know at the start of this episode, I the quote I used was, you know, Tobey Maguire saying, I had to beat an old lady with a stick to get these cranberries. Before that line happened, I was so convinced I was going to go, I started this company! You know how much I sacrificed! <laughs> like, like Willem Dafoe just bitingly screaming at people is awesome. <laughs> Oh, yeah, like, everything, even, like, it's a couple of moments in this where we see his, like, eyes roll back in his head, um, and then, like, even, like, like, and this is one of those things where I know Rob's talked about a couple of times, like, where his parents, like, quote lines from movies, whether it be, um, a, a Kung Pao, Enter the Fist, or from Goosebumps, <laughs> Monster Blood, where, yeah. like, I know at the end where, like, he's threatening, P- like, when Peter's, like, on his, like, last, like, straw, and he's, like, I'm gonna pick the flesh off her bones, peace, bye, peace. I want Rob to insert the clip. You've spun your last web, Spider-Man. Had you not been so selfish, your little girlfriend's death would have been quick and painless. But now that you've really pissed me off, I'm gonna finish her. Nice and slow. MJ and I, we're gonna have a hell of a time. Please, bye, please. And, like, how many times I would just quote that as a kid and just sit there and do that? Because it was just, he's so, like, I, I know I've talked about numerous times. I love villains that are so hammy and just, like, deliciously evil. Um, I love him in that sense. Like, even, like, Godspeed, Spider-Man. Like, oh, I yeah, love yeah. that. And the glider just, like, is about to impale him. And he's, like, in the film, this is more to Sam Raimi, too, and the editors. Like, Spider-Man, like, leaps over the glider and, like, we freeze frame on like Norman. He's like, "Oh, flack!" And he gets impaled. And I'm just like, "Oh, oh, it's so deliciously campy." I'm yes. like, this, like yes. "It's perfect." Um, that's what I want. I really hope Sam. Like I said, when it comes to Multiverse of Madness and Doctor Strange too, I really hope they give Sam Raimi the leash that he's earned at this point as a filmmaker. Sure. Um, I really hope that like they, they, as long as he plays within the bounds that they give him for like MCU nonsense, he's able to have like any like creative decision he wants. Um, speaking of that, speaking of performances, I agree with what you said, Zach. I. Now I'm going off the dome. Ben Ben's going to kill Zach and I. I think Ben's happy our next recording schedule is not for a, a week from now. But we haven't talked about J.K. Simmons as yes. J. Jonah yes. Jameson. I cannot express to you guys. It, it's one of those moments. I know I've said it to both of you. I've said it on this podcast. Like When something is so funny to me that I... I appreciate it. I don't laugh at it. I'm almost in awe of how funny it is. I have to admit that Spider-Man 2 at the end hit that nail on the head. At the wedding when Mary Jane doesn't show up and J. Jonah Jameson says to his wife, call Deborah, the caterer? Tell her not to open the caviar. I lost my mind. I'm like, that's it. I'm like, I'm like, J.K. Simmons is a national treasure. That's one of the funniest things I've seen in a movie in a long time. I love that performance. <laughs> it's great. It's 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 like, and I think like <laughs> we were kind of naive at the time in 2019. But like, is there another human being on the earth that could do J.K. Uh, sorry, J. Jonah Jameson as well as J.K. Simmons? No, I don't think. I don't. No, I mean, 
J.K. Simmons is one of my favorite actors ever. I mean, you know, even before seeing like Whiplash, he's just been getting better and better to me over the years. Bob, um, what's 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 his best line of dialogue ever from Terminator Genesis? Oh shh. Is it God like, is, is a goddamn God time traveling robot? Robots covering the goddamn tracks. Yes, that's it. There's a great. He's like mumbling under the goddamn time traveling robots covering their goddamn tracks, and it's like, <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I feel about watching Terminator movies. Goddamn time traveling robots. <laughs> no, J.K. Simmons is like, like. There's no shortage of love. Um, just lauding him. No, he is. You know what this fun thing is? Though, oh, Rob? that that whiplash scene when he's like, you know, and you on the trumpet, don't come in early on me. I'm not your boyfriend, that type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, J.K. Simmons. But this is the thing, though, Rob. Like speaking of Whiplash, if if his performance in this movie was made within the last five years, this would be the outside of Heath Ledger. This would be probably the first time that a comic book actor would be nominated for an Oscar. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because I think this yeah. performance is just so pitch perfect and so good. This is one of those times. Again, like. It's weird to think of Spider-Man 2002 not getting the credit it deserves, but this is one of those instances. Because it, it's because it's so it's so fast. It's so it changes the like climate of what we've been seeing. Like in the first movie, when J. Jonah Jameson comes in, it's like I said, it changes the climate of the movie. We're introduced to a speed that we haven't really seen yet, which, you know, the speed that we've seen has been fast. It's in Spider-Man swinging around, like, the, the great, you know, cinematography of they had to, like, put a camera on a rope extended from a helicopter in this movie. I think it's Bill Pope who does the cinematography, and he's like, yeah, yes. let's just fucking hang a camera oh. from a helicopter. And then J. Okay. Jonah Jameson does something that is a different speed of the movie that works so well. It's wonderful. And I have to, I don't want to, I, I, I kind of am because we're going so long, but I'm pushing us to snacks. Meat! A nice box of Christmas meat. When J. Jonah Jameson delivers that line, he's like, uh, he's like, I can give you a hundred bucks, a uh, hundred fifty. Uh, I can't give you a job. What do you want? Uh, I give you a meat, meat. A nice box of Christmas meat. That's the best I can do. Get out of here. <laughs> give this to the girl up front. She'll see you get paid. I'd like a job, sir. No jobs. Freelance. Best thing in the world for a kid your age. You bring me some more shots of that newspaper-selling clown. Maybe I'll take him off your hands. But I never said you have a job. Meat. I'll send you a nice box of Christmas meat. Best I can do. Get out of here. Bring me more photos. It's wonderful. I'm so glad you mentioned the DP, Bill Pope, because this also is a nice transition into next month's series. Guess who did the Matrix movies? Hey, Guess who did the Matrix movies? Bill, Bill Pope's a fantastic, fantastic, I cannot stress enough, fantastic cinematographer. Um, he has done so much good stuff. I'm sure a bunch of stuff we've talked about on this podcast, but literally just the concept of him saying, well, we have to film Spider-Man swinging for the first time ever. And Sam Raimi's so anti-CGI, that type of thing, because he's a, uh, you know, an independent filmmaker. So Bill Pope's the one who goes, well, let's just put a fucking camera on a rope under a helicopter and swing it through New York. And it's just like, it's a stroke of genius how simple that idea is. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Like, that's one of those things, too, that this movie doesn't get the credit it deserves for is that, like, we take Spider-Man swinging through New York for granted now. But at the time, like in 2002, what did that look like? Nobody knew what that yeah. looked like. Yep, 100%. Like, what was that going to be? And that was one of those things where, like, in the behind-the-scenes featurettes, like, they talked about Sam Raimi kept saying that anytime, like, Spider-Man would, like, web-sling through the city, he would call it, like, Spider-Man's dance. And that was the thing. Like it was something that had to be choreographed. You couldn't just do it because there was no yes. 
there was no template for it. And that's something that like the, the, the Garfield and the uh, Tom Holland movies have, and they kind of just expected is that we know what that looks like now. There was no level of just like, okay, what does this look like? And this mm-hmm. is something that even goes to um, uh, Justice League with like Ezra Miller's Flash. And then, like a lot of people didn't like the way the Flash ran because he has this weird sort of like these little like – think of like Seinfeld, Elaine, like mini kicks sure. that he does. And people are like, this is just like weird and off-putting. Why is he doing this? And that's the thing. Like, we've never seen someone run that fast like in a superhero movie. So it had to be designed and it had to be palatable. And that failed because I know even in the Hack Snyder version, it's the same like little kicks he does when running. And again, we take these small, minute, like things that we think are minute, but are actually really big things. And once again, like we said, like you said, Rob, they knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's that's actually a good question. I'm I'm glad we got to this eventually because. I know when we get to next week and, and the following week's episodes, I'm going to be definitely doing some comparisons of Spider-Mans. But one of the things that we didn't, uh, or I didn't, you know, ask earlier of you, Ben, is the the swinging, the aesthetics of the movement of Spider-Man. Um, I know you said you had some problems with how Spider-Man was written in this movie, but the visuals of Spider-Man, how did they, how did they stack up in this trilogy? Oh, I, I think they they mostly look great, uh, with the exception of when Tobey Maguire's like running and jumping over buildings when he first gets the powers, oh, yeah. and he's just like, "Let me look straight up into the sky for some reason." <laughs> um, that all looked really weird, but the swinging looked great. Right on. Yeah, I forgot about that. That whole that whole first sequence of Tobey Maguire tr- learning his Spider-Man powers when he says like "Shazam" to try and get his web to work. I thought that That's was beautiful. pretty funny. Yeah, that is so beautiful. <laughs> Fly up, up and away, up and web. Away, web. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, that, that's delightful. some that's some great stuff. Yeah, I can't. This is this is where I'm interested. Is like I can't wait to now watch the next ones and and compare and start to. Maybe this will be the thing when we finish this month of Spider Man. I'll actually be able to say what is my Spider Man or something like that. So that's pretty cool. I, I'm just trying to rationalize why you know we've been talking now for a little over four hours about Spider Man. <laughs> oh, so if there ever like, to be fair though, these are three movies. Like, and they're not exactly like fluff there is something going on in every one of these movies absolutely yeah yeah if there ever was an episode that's gonna break the record that's not the shining or dr sleep it's gonna be this this might do Um, it this might do it yes (laughs) but no and this is one where i kind of want to group it more into actors um oh god rosemary harris and cliff robertson like uh, of course aunt may uncle ben yep that I, I don't like I said I don't think Tobey Maguire's my like I said he's my Spider-Man the same way that Pierce Brosnan's my James Bond. It's more just he was the first one. He's just going to be indelible for that reason. Sure. But Cliff Robertson and Rosemary Harris, that is Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Like they like especially Rosemary Harris. Like there are so many heartbreaking sequences with her that just like she conveys this level of just intensity of just being this woman that's lost her husband has lost her financial footing and it's consistent across. She's probably, I would say the only thing that's consistent across all three films, whether it be the first film or the third film where like, after like Peter's like given up the symbiote and she comes to see him and ask him like how the proposal to, um, to uh, Mary Jane went. And he's like, has this little moment with her where he's like, like, you taught me that a husband has to put himself before I put his wife before himself. And he's like, I don't think I've lived up to that. And he gives her back the ring. And she kind of has this talk with him. 
and she doesn't even really like, talk to him. She's kind of more almost talking to the audience where she's like, sometimes you guys stop beating yourself up. Sometimes like, yeah. yes, we set goals for ourselves, but we have to realize that we're also human. And I'm like, it's beautiful. And then like, even in the second film where like, she, she has the moment with him, like after, like when he tells her that he was there for uncle Ben's death and mm-hmm. somewhat culpable to it all. And she just like, like doesn't speak at all and just walks away. And like that, it's like it's so heart wrenching. I I um, have to totally agree. I don't have an image of in my head like I like I said I don't really have a my Spider Man. So I I think by you know almost transitivity I don't have like a Uncle Ben and Aunt May type of thing. But I have to say I love Rosemary Harris in the second movie that Sam Raimi and the script just grinds to not really grind to a halt, slows to a crawl to give her like a three to four minute monologue to Peter about what it means to be responsible and it's awesome <laughs> it really that's is when like, she, that's when like, she's I mean, moving is the scene on when like yes, the, the neighbor outside. kid is uh helping her box stuff up like that scene they the movie like i said doesn't grind it slows down and they're just like yeah you know the first movie everybody knows spider-man everybody knows uncle ben dying is like the impetus of spider-man and like you were saying earlier ben the the um the choice to not react to to a crime type of thing it will will hurt somebody the second movie goes, yeah, that's important, but Aunt May is just as important, and I love that focus on her. Exactly, and that's the thing where you you have those moments where they like they make, oh god, and that's what makes it so frustrating about like contemporary Spider-Man, whether it be Sally Field Aunt May or Marissa Tomei, and that's I remember when they cast Marissa Tomei because like she got cast back in like 2015. Yeah, for yeah. Uh, Captain America: Civil War. And, every, and obviously, we all know the headlines from that. Like, whoa, Aunt May's hot. And I, I got so angry about that. Nothing against Marissa Tomei, but I'm like, oh, this is stunt casting. This is just stunt casting. Like, oh, that, yeah. What, what like, is, wait a minute. What do you mean original Aunt May was hot? That's is that what you're trying to say? You no, I. 2002 I, Aunt May was hot? Yeah. <laughs> well, well. Back in the day, like Rosemary Harris is quite the uh, like gorgeous lady, but uh, she ain't no Marissa Tomei. Yeah, Zach, remember um, the time you like tweeted out a screenshot, and it turned out that you know you had like in one of your open tabs, they didn't realize it was like old Aunt May hot gilf porn type of thing. <laughs> Whoa, like gilf! I don't think I've ever heard that term out never loud gilf? before. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I've seen that term on the internet. I've never heard it out loud before. Um, that I think was we're a all saying we're all. Stuff. I think all three of us in agreement. Aunt May is a gilf. <laughs> <laughs> is she even a grandmother? I don't think so. that's. I don't know. I might not be the applicable term. Isn't she technically an elf? An aunt? I'd like to blank. <laughs> an elf. It's elf with an extra vowel. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but no, I, I think that's the whole like thing. Though is that they lost track of what makes Aunt May such a potent character in Peter Parker's life. Well, sure, because Um, the only Spider-Man appearance in the MCU I've seen is Civil War, because I have seen Civil War. And I totally agree with you. From what I remember, the Aunt May scene, you know, uh, Robert Downey Jr. talking to Tom Holland in his, like, apartment room or whatever it is, the whole Marissa Tomei casting is solely for the joke to Robert Downey Jr. go, that's your aunt? She's hot. And it seems so vacuous to me. Oh yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's stunt casting, but like, and that's like I said, that's their choice. Whatever. Um, Marissa Tomei has like between oh god, 
Civil War and uh, what was it? Homecoming and Far From Home has nothing to do. Like in Far From Home, her, we'll get to that. Though, okay. but her entire plot is just she runs a charity. Yeah, I was about to say, I, since I haven't seen those, I don't know if she does anything more. But she's I, she's in one scene. She's I can't wait to see it. Scene. You know, now now that we have this grounds for comparison, I can't wait to see it because this Aunt May has a good, not a lot, but a good bit of stuff to do. For sure. And like I said, in that second movie, they give her the focus, even in the third, and they show how important she is as a character, which I think sometimes from the Spider fandom, Spider-Man fandom that I've talked to gets diminished. It's all about the Uncle oh, Ben yeah. death type of thing. Well, even, is, that, like, is that fair to say, Ben? I don't want to speak out of the, the at a turn with the fandom, but is like Aunt May, does she really get her like her due in, in the comics or, or what you're familiar with with the Spider-Man mythos? Um, what do you mean by get her due? Like, is she an important character? Because I've always felt like she gets put by the wayside, where she's like, oh yeah, Spider-Man, his, his, his guardians are Aunt May and Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben's his impetus, he's the important one. Like, are there moments when, like, Aunt May is, is useful to Spider-Man in not just the sense of, oh, I have to save her? Not that I recall. Okay. There, there, it's, it's typically like... You know, I'm I'm late, or I'm letting her down, or I need to help her with bills, or something like okay, that. Okay, okay, okay. Which is why I think in Spider-Man Two, when she has the the speeches that ta- tell Peter about responsibility, it makes it all the more meaningful because it's like, yeah, like Uncle Ben is not just you know the only person Spider-Man took influence from. He still has to deal with Aunt May. She's not just like an old helpless lady. She has wisdom to impart. I like that the movie showed that. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, I she, she definitely. I, and I'm sure that she had wisdom to impart at times in the old series, mm-hmm. but I I can't say that I remember any of them offhand. Sure. So sure. Okay. Um, okay. I can't wait to talk about Aunt May and uh, the Amazing Spider-Man series, where she her entire plot. The second one is her getting a nursing degree. <laughs> I don't remember anything about the Andrew Garfield ones. So that uh, yeah. the actually to be a trip. To be fair, the only thing I do remember about the Amazing Spider-Man series, which I will talk more about next week, is that in the flashbacks of uh, Peter Parker's parents, his mother is M. Beth Davitz, who is Mrs. Honey from Matilda, which I find wild. But I'll get to that next week. <laughs> um, but no, getting to Cliff Robertson, um, his Uncle Ben, once again, that's when you think of Uncle Ben... Um, I remember when they cast Martin Sheen, the Amazing Spider-Man. I'm mm. like, this is this is so again, it's stunt casting. I remember because again, it's Sally Field and Martin Sheen in the Andrew Garfield movies. Oh no, um, I gotta watch another Sally Field movie. No, yes, Rob, two two of them. Um, and I remember just being like, yeah, no, Martin Sheen is not Uncle Ben. Like Martin Sheen's done everything. Like he's kind of like a Tom Cruise. He can't melt into anything because he's just Martin Sheen. It's like when um, they cast um Michael Douglas as Ant Man senior i was like no 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 he is he is never going to be a superhero or any way tangentially related to superheroes for me <laughs> i just want to hear michael douglas like yell at like paul rudd about like cunnilingus causes cancer <laughs> like, I, just, I just want to see that i want to see that outtake um oh, one of my favorite michael douglas moments of all time um but no going back to uh, cliff robertson is uh, uncle ben um obviously I would say the entire Spider-Man, Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire franchise is built on that moment in the car outside the public library. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the entire franchise is built on that moment, and it, it sticks to the landing, and then it just, like, knocks it out of the park. Um, and I think what really, like, that moment is the foundation for all of this, 
But I think going back, going to Spider-Man 2, that moment where we have, like, Peter having that moment of realization where he's replaying that event in his head, like, in the, oh, God, in the void. Because all we see is, like, the white void outside of the car. Yep. And he's talking to Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben's, like, having the exact same conversation with him. And he's like, I'm sorry. And, like, and this is where Tobey Maguire can act. Um, he's actually emoting in this sequence and he's like getting teary eyed and you can see like Cliff Robertson starting to get like on the verge of teary eyed. And he's like, I'm sorry. I, I hope Robin starts the entire clip of the Spider-Man two sequence where he's like, I'm just sorry, uncle Ben. Like, he's like, no, like I, I can't, I, as an individual, I can't do this anymore. This is breaking me. Like, like, don't I deserve happiness? All the things you've been thinking about, Peter, make me sad. Can't you understand? I'm in love with Mary Jane. Peter, all the times we've talked of honesty, fairness, justice, out of those times I counted on you to have the courage to take those dreams out into the world. I can't live your dreams anymore. I want a life of my own. You've been given a gift, Peter. With great power comes great responsibility. Take my hand, son. No, Uncle Ben. I'm just Peter Parker. Spider-Man. No more. No more. And I love that, like where he holds his hand out to shake it, and he's mm -hmm. like, "No, I'm sorry." Like, and there is yeah. that level of just like, like it's just like, like I apologize, but no. And I love it. Like that was like one of the most touching moments between that and the Rosemary Harris sequences in this film. Like that's the part where, like, again, it goes back to what Sam Raimi was saying in Spider-Man, the first film, where he's like, it's the characters. He's like, yes, is this film going to like commercially live and die on the special effects? Yes. But it's the characters that are going to make this resonate forever. Yeah. And he's and he was absolutely right. Like that's where like God, like talk about somebody who understands the game. Um, Sam Raimi's kind of if Joe Dante figured out how to navigate the Hollywood system. Um, sure. I, I mean, I, don't, I, I think Joe that, – this might be a conversation another time. I think Joe Dante figured it out and chose not to play the game. <laughs> I think if he figured out how to play the game, he wouldn't have made Looney Tunes back in action. Hey, that's a great um, movie, okay? <laughs> tell that to Joe Dante. Um, I've told it to our – Patreon listeners, because when we did Space Jam, I said I talked about that movie for a good three minutes. So, <laughs> um, but no, but it's like I said, like I'm almost done now wrapping up. What I want to say, uh, just finishing my points on Spider Man Two. I think the action sequences in Spider Man Two, especially um, after Doc Ock, uh, God, the whole bank heist, oh, him yeah. having Aunt May, um, then especially the uh, everything. I'd say when it comes to Spider Man Two, the movie, everything after when he throws the car into the cafe window and Peter catches Mary Jane and they spiral out of the way of the car. That scene is coming up in my snacks. I'll have you know. <laughs> I bet. Um, that entire sequence is great. Even though it kind of, like, even like I love how after he takes Mary Jane and we see him moving with his um, tentacles. I love that. I, I have to say I, how his I, body moves is great. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, 
I don't know if anybody, if anybody has not seen it, go on YouTube. There is like a deleted scene, I think either from Spider-Man 2 or from something else, where Alfred Molina in Doc Ock costume, like we see him in this movie, is singing If I Was a Rich Man from Fiddler on the Roof. It is one of the most amazing things you'll ever see because he has all the puppeteers doing the arms with him, and it is awesome. Alfred Molina is one of the greatest actors, and he has been in a Law & Order franchise. Just want to throw that out there yes, as well. Yes. Law & Order Los Angeles. I yes. remember my mother used to watch that, and I'm like, she's like, Doc. It's funny. My mother, <laughs> as a Law & Order fan, is Rob knows. After seeing – because, again, my, like, oh, I didn't talk about the context for Spider-Man too. We've missed My a book. lot of things in this episode. Chad. I know. That doesn't this, mean this we have to longer. do them now. <laughs> well, I was going to get a text message like sometime tomorrow afternoon and be like, Rob, we got to add more on to this. Um, I'm, just, I'm just imagining like a few months from now, I'm going to like hit up Ben and be like, Ben, we're doing a revisiting of the Spider-Man trilogy. And he's like, <laughs> we didn't cover that shit in five hours. <laughs> this will probably be a five hour episode. Like, I, I'm pretty sure this could, this, I could I, easily we could drag this out. I mean, you've only to. said put the clip in, Rob, like 17 times so far. <laughs> Insert the entirety of Spider-Man 2 into this I think into this the, discussion. I think uh, before I made these jokes, um, you're right. The train sequence, the train fight in Spider-Man 2. And I'm not even just saying, you know, when they're on the train. Like, the lead up to them on the train. Because, of course, you know, this is after the coffee shop sequence where Spider-Man has to meet Doc Ock. And Spider uh, Doc Ock's trying to take him out. When they're fighting before the train, when they get on the train, when Doc Ock, you know, gives him a little salute and leaves him to stop, he's like, got a train to catch, and, you know, gives him a salute or whatever he says, to the whole, like, Spider-Man doesn't have the mask on, the New Yorkers are reveling in what they're seeing, you know, he's he's just a kid, he's no older than my son. I was so on board for that entire sequence. I thought it was wonderful. And I also love the little button at the end where all the New Yorkers, just like in the first movie, say, if you want Spider-Man, you're going to have to go through me and me and me. And Doc Ock goes, okay, I will, and just pushes them all aside. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. Nice. I it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it is. And, you have, and the first person that says that is Big Pussy. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, like I said, no, like the, the entire train sequence, even like the part with the clock tower is perfect. Even like how we see that, because like that's a part two where I think about it. We have the the cafe sequence, and sp- at that point, it's just Peter Parker. And we have like after that happens, we see Jonah Jameson after he's purchased the Spider-Man costume, and he's kind of lamenting what he did to Spider-Man. And then we see like he turns his back to it, and we see like this breeze like wave yeah. through the room, yeah. and it says your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And then he's like, I will have that mess. Like again, Rob will insert the clip. It's all my fault. I drove Spider-Man away. He was the only one who could have stopped Octavius. Yes. Spider-Man was a hero. I just couldn't see it. He was a, a thief, a criminal. He stole my suit. He's a menace to the entire city. I want that wall-crawling arachnid prosecuted. I want him strung up by his web! I want Spider-Man! <laughs> I'll have that menacing, like, like two-bit web-slinger strung up by his own webs! Yeah, the, another like, alt from my, my opening uh, line of dialogue was, I want that wall-crawling erect and brought to court! I was gonna say that, too. <laughs> and then we see, like, the headline, like, we see the Daily Bugle headline that says, like, he's back, and we see Spider-Man, like, 
like literally swing through the front page as we see him web slinging through the city. And then we track to, we see again, there's a lot of reflections in this between like in the first film with the mirror and Norman Osborn and the green goblin. Yep. Then we see like the reflection in Doc Ock's sunglasses and it's so great. Like it's so delightful. Just one thing I do want to say, like, as we all know in the Marvel movies, the MCU characters entrances are a very big thing. 100% how we're going to be introduced to Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire in that film is something, something's going to happen. And we're going to see the little like three by five notebook piece of paper that says your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Oh, okay. Because okay. if you think about any of the other films, whether it be Andrew Garfield, uh, Tom Holland, Into the Spider-Verse, Venom, that is a very specific introduction that's exclusive to Tobey Maguire. Sure, sure. Yeah. I, it's yeah. exclusively his. And I, I guess I'm like I'm 95% certain that's gonna be the way we're introduced to him. Okay, okay. I, I kind of. This is probably a bad decision since we're going for so long. But I have another question. I know Zach is Ben. Five hours, Rob. Forget four hour record. I want the five are, hour record. Ben, are you aware that there is? I think Zach will talk more about this. The other versions of Spider-Man two and three. But are you aware there is a deleted scene? Which Zach might correct me. That might not be what it's called. Where in Spider-Man 2, when J. Jonah Jameson has the Spider-Man suit, he puts it on. Are you aware of this? <laughs> no, I'm not. It, this, this legitimately exists. And Zach, this is probably a transition into something you had in your notes, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, okay, this is the thing. Uh, I'm pretty sure Spider-Man 2002 is just one cut. In April 2007, as a marketing tool... They released Spider-Man 2.1 on DVD, which includes about yeah. eight minutes of deleted and extended footage. This is not um, the version Ben or I watched. Did you watch this version, Zach? I tried well, – I, I texted Rob, and Rob's like, the fuck is this? Oh, I'm yeah. I, there was late night where Zach's like, did you – which version of Spider-Man 2 did you watch? And my response was, Zach, don't come at me like this. <laughs> don't tell me <laughs> there's more Spider-Man I need to watch. <laughs> Um, so like on my Blu-ray, I have like, 2.1 is an additional like thing. I try, I got through the first five minutes of it and it's just like, it's a disaster. <laughs> um, it's, it's a mess. Well, again, it's like every, like, we talked about it a lot, like in the Blade Runner discussion from how many years ago where we're just like, it's just a marketing technique. Oh, it's sure. just like, it, there's nothing to it. That's what I um, got. Definitely. Cause there's also the editor's cut of Spider-Man three. Um, yeah. Which seemed like a which marketing is shorter, technique. Which is shorter than it's the It's shorter, theater. but it's also in a different order with new scenes. <laughs> yeah, they cut things out. They put new scenes in. It's it's. Re but the weird thing about the editor's cut of Spider-Man 3, which is an official release, is that it wasn't released until like 2017. Like you're talking oh, 10 years yeah. later. Okay, okay. Um, And I don't know what the like, oh God, impetus was to this. Um, at that point, you are beyond Tom – like, I'm sorry, Andrew Garfield, and you are in the Tom Holland era of Spider-Man. Yep. yep. Um, I don't know what it was. Um, I, it's a genuine guess. I know that version, the editor's cut, is hard to come by because I, – again, I think it's on Amazon Prime to rent. But if you want a physical version of that, I think it was only released once or twice and I know both of those versions now go for like $200. I, in, in research for this, I went looking for it. And they're both like $200 purchases on eBay. Um, and from what I can tell in my research, there's not much that would make it worth it. It's just there, once again, as an oddity. Sure, sure. Okay, I got gotcha. you. 
but yeah, no, uh, Jane, Joan, Jane, Jane, I'm sorry, J. Jonah Jameson in the Spider-Man costume. Um, ben, by all means, not right now, but at some point, maybe before the next recording, just watch that on YouTube. It, it is kind of really funny just because, you know, like we, we praised uh, J.K. Simmons and his performance as J. Jonah Jameson. If When you see him in the Spider-Man costume and he's like posing and stuff like that, it's – it's really, it's really pretty funny. I think <laughs> it's funny, but it would be a hundred percent inappropriate in this film. Well, okay, I, I guess Zach, how I had this thought. I don't know if you did. How does J. Jonah Jameson thinking of it as a, as a deleted scene? Of course, not talking about this different version, but just watching it as a scene, not in the theatrical version of the movie. J. Jonah Jameson, the Spider-Man suit. How do you think that compares to the Sergeant Candy in Terminator Three? Oh, Jesus. I kind of think they're on the same level of how much I love them, and they should have been in the movie. Oh, God. I don't know. J. John Jameson is odd, but I think Sergeant Candy is, like, just jarring. Like, it takes, like, like you have that entire (laughs) moment of Schwarzenegger with this weird, like, southern drawl. Then you have another sword, like Schwarzenegger in the boardroom, and they're like, and someone else is like, some random person's like, oh, that voice. We got to do something with that the voice. The only thing I don't like is the voice. We can fix it. <laughs> 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 Look, it's me, you know? Oh, God. I mean, to ban in our cinema audience, if you have not listened to our Terminator 3 episode, even if you haven't seen Terminator 3, go look up the deleted scene that explains why the Terminators look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It is wonderful. <laughs> it, 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 it's goofy fun. Yeah, like I said, no, J. Jonah Jameson in the second one, like, wearing the costume, I, I would not, I'm glad they cut that out. Um, like I said, as an, as a deleted scene, it's fun, but, um, no, I would never want that in the film. Like I said, yeah. Spider-Man 2, like, the only thing, like, my only complaint with Spider-Man 2 is, like, the film begins with, like, a billboard of Mary Jane, yes. and it's clearly, like, a CGI shot, like, just matted into, like, real-life footage, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, I'm like, you, you couldn't, like, just oh, get a no. real billboard? Very, very reminiscent of, as Ben already mentioned, something we're going to talk about a lot next week, Under the Silver Lake. I don't know if Ben remembers, there's a scene where Andrew Garfield sees his ex-girlfriend's billboard a lot, or two, two or three times in Under the Silver Lake, enough that it's like a point and like a scene in the movie later on. I got hardcore vibes from that. So, so next week might be an amalgamation of Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and also how I, Ben and I relate them to Under the Silver Lake type of thing. <laughs> Look forward to that, folks. Zach, Ben, is there anything else? Anything else we have to touch on? Of course, there's many things. Like we said, this is going to be a real scary story. No, to... there is nothing else. <laughs> ben, there is nothing ben else. Is like, not, ben is like, I swear me, to there God. There is nothing else from either of you. I will... <laughs> I, I well, we didn't even up. talk about the video games. Like, every single one of these Ben, we didn't talk well. about the video games! Fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> other shit so i can leave you guys can talk forever i don't care i have to work in the morning all right (laughs) ben that is fair we've we're glad i'm glad i don't know about zach i'm glad you've given your honest opinion i think zach it's the better time than any we should jump into our questions let's just do it are we okay with that there's always thank god there's four more weeks of it you and and yes you you love us having the power of editing you can record as much as you want i can drop it in as we see fit or we can just talk about it next week but let's do it let's get to our questions now ben i think this is the first time you've been involved in a cinematic episode uh main feed where we have more than one movie 
And, of course, we don't do restaurant stuff on the Patreon. A question that I always have for Zach at the start of this is, what are we doing? Are we lumping these together to say Cinemati's and Late Night for all three is a trilogy, or are we separating these movies? And Zach always gets to decide that. Zach, what do you think for this trilogy? Are we keeping them together or are we separating them? I keep them together. They're, they're, I, they're, they're, yeah. yeah. I think that is exactly the right choice because uh, I think these are of such a piece together that we should keep them together. So for all three, for Sam Raimi's trilogy of Spider-Man, for the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, for Cinemodities, I am going no. For Late Night, I am going no. The only twinge of difference is Spider-Man 3 might be a cinemodity, but there was nothing enough about it for me to say, like, full-on cinemodity that I wanted to argue it any further. So I'm going to know for all of our questions for both of these movies. What do you think, Ben? They might have been odd for their time, maybe, in terms of superhero stuff, but not entirely because Batman predates them, so I guess no. Late night? I mean, if it's on TV, I'm not going to stop someone from watching it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nice. Okay. So it's like it's like a late night movie by possible convenience. Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, Zach, what do you think about this trilogy? Oh, y- yes to late night and cinematic. Oh, like for shit. <laughs> well, yeah. No, like I said, you have you have the weird thing of the first. Like I said, you have a stoic Spider-Man. Third one's practically unwatchable. Like if, if you actually think about it for more than five minutes. Um, and late night, these are fun. Like that's the thing. Like, you would never be bored through this. Like you, like I said, it would be weird to find someone who's never seen any of these before. Yes. Um, but I think if you found someone who would like who solely just knows Tom Holland, it'd be fun to go back to these. Especially that we know No Way Home is trending into a direction that these definitely will become important. Um, no, definitely. Like I said, Cinemati. Third one's practically unwatchable. Second one is arguably one of the best comic book movies ever made. And the first one kind of set the template for the next 20 plus years of, uh, yeah. superhero, superhero comics. Like you couldn't ask for a more eclectic bunch of movies, um, in the superhero genre. Right on, right on. Well, with that all being said, that brings us to snacks. And I know we've been going a while. I, I mean, I not only commend uh, Ben for sticking with us this long, I commend the audience if they've listened this far as well. This is a doozy. Uh, We'll see how it comes out in editing, but we have to get to snacks. So I have a few that I just want to speed round. I mentioned one already. Meat. A nice box of Christmas meat. Whatever that is, that's on the menu. I also really like the idea of chocolate cake and milk as a dish, but it is made by the daughter of of whoever we pay our restaurant's rent to. We have to be paying rent to somebody. Like, we didn't just stumble on the Mars 2112 property. We have to have at least bought it or or are renting it. I'm not sure if we have recovered that. But I would like for whoever we have either bought or rented it from, uh, their daughter brings us some chocolate cake and milk. And I but think they, the la- but, but do they have nuts? Does she have nuts, though? I don't know, maybe? I don't even remember what that's in reference to. If she, if she has nuts, <laughs> she should go make us some cookies with nuts. Oh, that's right. You know, he's like, he's like, does he have nuts in him? No. Can you make them for me? Yeah, that one. Okay, I remember that now. The last one I want to speed round is from the first movie. There's a scene where Rosemary Harris slaps Willem Dafoe's hand away from stuffing. And we get a shot of Willem Dafoe looking like, I'm going to kill you, bitch, type of thing. (laughs) So my thought was that we have a Thanksgiving dinner on the menu, but specifically Willem Dafoe can never have it. Like, if he orders it, he's not allowed to. If he, if somebody else orders it, he has to steal it. We slap his hand away, that type of thing. The first snack that I have that I really want to, to dive into is one I mentioned before, 
the scene where Dr. Octopus throws a car into the coffee shop where Peter Parker and Mary Jane are talking. I would like, in the restaurant, to have a coffee shop, just like in this movie, one that we can, you know, maybe it's on, like, some type of uh, of set or it's it's individualized from other things in the restaurant. Like, I'm not saying this should be on Main Street or something, but it's where people can go to experience the Spider-Man 2 coffee shop scene. And what I mean by that is, if you want to go into this coffee shop, you can. It's a regular cafe. You might be able to order coffee. You might be able to order some, like, pastries or anything like that, tea, stuff of that nature, like usual fare, like very regular stuff. Like, I'm not saying we put any crazy Cinemati's restaurant things in there. But you have to know that anytime you're in that coffee shop, there is a chance, and you should be ready for it, that a car is going to be thrown through the window and you need to try and survive. That's my experiential idea for from Spider-Man 2. What do you think? Will they get hurt or is it like just like the illusion of like – is it like a stunt? Or? Oh, no, no. They, if they do not dive out of the way of the car like Tobey Maguire does, they are dead. Like okay. it, is, it is a right. life or death cinematic exper- – restaurant experience. <laughs> I mean you, you know how I feel about – putting our customers in mortal danger. <laughs> so you're I'm, on board. <laughs> yeah, I'm for it. Nice, nice. Uh, I think the last snack that I had is from Spider-Man 2, once again, another big one, um, is that in the opening sequence of the pizza, you know, we have the usual trope. I think it's something everybody's familiar with, is the idea of a pizza place that you order delivery from, they say, like, 30 minutes or less. You know, in this movie, it's that if your pizza doesn't get there in 30 minutes, it's free, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. What if we had a pizza on our menu that was the opposite? Like, not at most 30 minutes, at least 30 minutes. Like, if you have a family and it's like maybe like a husband, wife, and a kid, they come in, they're like, you know, we want a pizza type of thing. The pizza on our menu is you're going to be waiting at least 30 minutes for this pizza. <laughs> hey, okay, okay. I Real quick, I, I know Ben's going to shoot us if we talk any longer, but in the beginning of Spider-Man 2, like – they order seven deep dish pizzas, and the thing is like, oh, 29 minutes or less? Yes. Mm-hmm. It takes like that long alone to cook a deep dish pizza. <laughs> that, that's an exaggeration, but to make seven of them, yes. Yeah. That's it. Okay, no, no. If you try cooking a deep dish pizza, like that's at least a 20-minute cook time. You got a like, pizza like oven, a Zach? You got a pizza oven? It's a quiche. At that point, it's a quiche. <laughs> I was more, I was more against the idea that you know his, Asif Manvi wanted him to go forty-two blocks in seven and a half minutes. Forty-two blocks is like a third of Manhattan. <laughs> I am not prepared for the debate about whether deep dish pizza is a quiche. Ben, I'll um, put it on the on the notes for us to start the next episode with this. <laughs> Rob knows how I feel about whether. Uh, you know, all all kinds of questions like this, like, is a piece of pizza actually just a small pizza? Like, Rob oh, knows that yes. I'm in for this. We've had I'm many conversations about right now. how many times you need to cut a pizza for it not to be a pizza. We've had that conversation. <laughs> yes. There. All right. We'll, we'll put that in the spreadsheet for uh, the, the, yes. the extravaganza. Yes. Perfect. That was it. That was all the snacks I had. So you guys, go for it. Throw me some, throw me some restaurant items. Uh, well, we should serve spiders. Like, just... Live spiders, dead radioactive spiders, spiders? Any, any kind of spider that you can Ooh. find, we should serve. We should probably have spiders that like we train to bite our customers. Ooh, um, okay. Like they they need to come down from the ceiling and bite the customer, and then actually swing away like Spider Man does. <laughs> that's that's uh, 
gonna take some effort, but we should we should make that happen. I don't know what it would look like seeing a a spider, like a real world spider as we know them, swinging away on its web. But I can't wait to see it. <laughs> we need ooh, we need to do something with webbing. Like we need to like ice a cake, but with webbing. Like instead of fondant, it's just spider webs. Ooh, I like that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we need probably an area where you can experience what it's like to wall climb as a spider uh but i'm going to be very adamant that the things that hold you on the wall have to only be on your fingertips so you to experience that stress on your fingers sure, um, sure because that will probably break your hand and last but not least we should have an interactive exhibit where you get to put spider-man in the mary jane carousel of kids dilemma Ooh, okay. So it's like you're you're make somebody's paying for the experience to make a choice between who lives and who dies. <laughs> no, no. To make someone else make a choice. Oh, so so people are paying to be the Green Goblin type of thing. Yes. yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like that. That's that's pretty interesting. Could you imagine like paying for this ride and it's like. Yeah, you know, okay, you got the Spider-Man version or part or whatever. And it's like, I wanted to be the Green Goblin part, you know? And then people are just like, I, don't, I hate, like, they're almost rage quitting type of thing. Where it's like, I didn't get to be Green Goblin, I'm gonna let everybody die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, it's so yeah, like that, was it the Friday the 13th game or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. if I don't get to be Jason, everybody dies. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, that was a reference I did not expect. Hot damn. I, I would like to say that uh, just for our audience, because it came up in Monstober just a about a week ago, I hit the trophy for the 100 boat repairs in Friday the 13th, the game. Still you playing that with? Random people. There's still people playing that? It's it it literally like, takes like... 40 minutes to find a game. But yes, when I edit this podcast, I rubber band my controller and set it to Friday the 13th because I need a fucking 1,000 games as a counselor, which is an unreasonable trophy. That We could do a whole episode about that. But That's Zach, snacks. <laughs> oh, jeez. How do you top that? Um, all right, omelets. We need omelets. We need, I want James <laughs> Franco making omelets. When he's not sexually harassing people, you I talk want about the bad flip. You talk about the bad flip from the third oh, movie? Oh, delightful. Okay. That's delightful. Well, like I said, if this conversation go on for another three hours, I would talk about how why there's an omelet making scene in the middle of Spider-Man 3. Um, yeah, James Franco fucks that omelet up. Absolutely. I, I can only hope that's an outtake. Um, I love him when he comes home after his amnesia. And I think that would be great for our suppliers. We walk in, they're like, we need food. And our suppliers are like, what? We don't have food. To go get some. Like I love that. Like, I love just like announcing that you need to get food. Um, that's what we tell our suppliers. It's like go get food. Um, in Spider Man Two, oh god, there's there's not a lot of right. In Spider Man Two, there's not a lot of food outside of the deep dish pizza. No, I just had those crazy experiences that I talked about. That was my my what I gathered from Spider Man Two and the yeah. chocolate cake and milk, of course. Um, I think we should, like, much like Spider-Man 1 where allegedly they didn't use any CGI, but when Peter, like, saves Mary Jane from slipping and, like, supposedly, like, it took Tobey Maguire, like, 150 takes to, like, like, catch all the spilt stuff on, like, a lunch tray. Oh, my think- God! Oh, my God! Okay, we didn't talk about... Oh, shit. Okay. Ben? Ben? I don't know if you're ben, aware of this. Ben. When, in the first Spider-Man movie, when, when Tobey Maguire, like, saves Mary Jane from slipping... And catches all that food on the tray. Apparently, he did that. Actually, 
What? Yes, that's that's the the legend. I won't even call it a rumor. The legend is that it took them a full day of shooting, hundreds of takes, but the thing in the movie, there's no CGI. He legitimately caught all those things on that lunch tray. That's what the legend of that movie is. That's baffling. It is. And that's one of the things I've always been like, is this an IMDb fact? Like, who made this up? But from everything I've ever found, that is actually the case, that they, they spent that much time and he did it in reality, and that's what we see in the movie. How fucking wild is that? It's insane to spend that much time on it. Exactly. <laughs> Imagine looking at, like, like, the call sheet, and you sit there and see that like, they spent, like, $85,000 for that entire day. <laughs> you know how many times Peter Parker dropped, or Tobey Maguire dropped a bowl of cereal? <laughs> all right, so I want that. I think we should make all of our wa- – we should train all of our waiters to do that because we can't waste any food. Okay, that's I like that. Whenever they slip, they have to catch it. Otherwise, we um, put the face hugger on them and birth a better employee. Perfect. Yes. Um, I should also mention that in Spider-Man God 2 and 3, Peter Parker's, like, apartment door is practically, like, the fourth main character in the movie. The fact that, like, it <laughs> sticks and everybody, like, gets frustrated trying to open it. I'll pay my rent when you fix this damn door! <laughs> yes, I want... That should be, like, the door to open, like, get into the restaurant. Like, you have Times Square, and that is the, like, entrance door. So after the people take the ferry to get to our restaurant, they have to fight with the entrance door? Yes, yes, exactly. I, I, I mean, it, it uh... It all all works out in the grand scheme of things, right? The first letter of Cinemonis is in the C. It's F for frustration. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think. Like, like obviously, you have like there's the char- we didn't really talk about her much, but the character of Ursula, who's the landlord's like daughter. I wanted the second movie to end so bad with Mary Jane missing her wedding to go confess her love to Peter Parker, and then Peter Parker goes, "No, I'm with Ursula now." Mary Jane, when's the last time you made me cake? Get out of here. <laughs> well, this is the question I want to ask. In Spider-Man 3, like, once he, like, bre- quote-unquote breaks up with Mary Jane, and you have, like, all that stuff happening, and she's, like, making him, like, the cookies when he's on the phone with Dr. Connors, like, evil Spider-Man definitely boinked Ursula, right? I hope so. I like <laughs> Ursula a lot. She's she's cool. She's a cool lady. <laughs> yeah, I don't see why not. <laughs> all right good we all i'm glad we are in uh unanimous thought on this um and then like uh, i think in the first like i said like i definitely i know he what norman osborne during thanksgiving brings a fruitcake yep yep yeah i think it should be one of our few edible items just a fruit it's norman osborne's fruit uh fruitcake enjoy the fruitcake as he as he storms out yeah <laughs> I think that's it for snacks. Like, yeah, I think that's it. Like, there are some quite a few snacks in this movie. This is a, there are some foods in this movie. Uh, yeah, oh, whoa, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. I got the best snack in the entire movie. Uh-oh. We need the pie from when James Franco and Tony McGuire are eating pie in the third one. And the waitress comes up to him to, like, top off his coffee. And she's like, how's the pie? And he goes, so good. I don't believe this. I don't, <clears throat> I don't believe you. I'm really sorry. I just thought you should know. Can I warm you up? Yes, please. How's the pie? So good. (laughs) That is like, that is, I'm, again... I'm pretty sure when Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi made Spider-Man 3, he went Christopher Nolan tenant on them, and he literally is like, fuck you, Abby Arad. Like, and just, like, the whole cast was in on it. Oh, God. Zach, only you would think of that connection, which is why we love so you. Like 
with all of that being said, we are finally at the end of our Spider-Man Sam Raimi Tobey Maguire trilogy episode. We got a lot more Spider-Man to go, which is why I think we should call this Spider-Month colon Too Many Spider-Men. I I don't know. Why don't we let the Why don't we let the Reddit discuss, uh, decide? Yeah, okay. If anybody wants to chime in on this episode, you know, I I don't know how many we're going to record before this comes out, but yeah, if our if our listeners want to chime in, we can always update the spreadsheet. Sure. Yes, and that's really what this boils down to is what we put in the spreadsheet. <laughs> the thing that only like a handful of people will ever look at. Yes. So at the end of this episode, to run through the important things, of course, Ben, Zach, thank you for being here. Ben, thank you for dealing with us. Ben, thank you for promoting the Cinemodities Patreon. Now you did the start, but we've got to do it the, at the end again here. I don't think we have anything planned to tie into the Spider-Man series. Um, we literally All the have... the outtakes for this episode will the, be on the Patreon. Yeah, yeah the hour That's... I edit out, of, edit out of this will be on the Patreon. <laughs> That's actually not a terrible idea. We could do that as a bonus Patreon episode. Yeah, but at the time of this recording, um, Ben and I have nothing done for this month of November. We're still working on our October releases and things like that. So, um... Glad you stuck around, glad you advertised, and once again to advertise everybody, if you liked what you heard, if you thought it was too long, we do shorter episodes on the Patreon. <laughs> Not much shorter, but they're shorter. Um, so come check that out. It's great fun. I think uh, what Ben and I are working on right now are the new installments of Welcome to the Blumhouse. we got some fan requests coming up, but everybody, if you want to get even more Cinemodities content and support the podcast, keep us going for years to come, definitely check out and subscribe to the Patreon. Anything else you want to say about the Patreon, Ben? No, just as always, you know, for the patrons out there, we appreciate you. For the not yet patrons out there, hopefully you'll see the error of your ways and come join us. <laughs> and for the never-to-be patrons out there, uh, fuck off. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Well, no, I am. You like that kidding. free content? <laughs> yeah, you fucking free content junkies. Oh, sure, sure. I think the other thing I want to say, because I usually throw it over to you for this, Ben, but this is actually the first time that we are recording a main feed episode with you on it where I can say Ben's Magic the Gathering life outer cap actually works. I've used it now. Ben always pitches this for, you know, go on to the Play Store, the Apple Store, and get Ben's Life Counter app. I've actually used it now, and it is dope as he says it is. I hope you like that endorsement, Ben. <laughs> I I did like that endorsement, and I and I am happy to say this is coming out in November. Is that right? So yep. by November, there will be a major facelift uh given to the app so it will look Ooh. a lot more professional and have quite a few new features uh from the time that rob used it but it will still do everything that rob saw it do so it will uh still be at least that good you know you, well if you remember ben when i got to use it the few times and, and even saw it in use for a few times I, I had one complaint is the new facelift does it make it less cluttered <laughs> i can't even say it with a straight face <laughs> an inside joke that no one will get <laughs> uh and you know honestly it actually it, it it creates an option where it can be a little less cluttered. Yes. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Yes. But uh, but no, it's it's not cluttered. And fuck you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Zach, at the end of this episode, I know we have many more Spider Mans to come. You've pitched that already. But um, are are there any apps you want to pitch? Are there any uh designs that you want to sell to our audience? <laughs> Don't you dare edit this episode. I am thrilled. This is possibly gonna. This is easily gonna break the shining by more or less you an want, hour. You want this like just raw release, like even yes. with our our five minute the bathroom break well, and the clip and and the 
and the clips in there too, oh, so it gets the five. I, I want a, this could have been a five-hour discussion. You know how jealous I am of the projection booth when they do five-hour episodes. I will never, we in good conscience, there. leave dead air in one of our episodes. That is a, a golden rule of editing for me. But thank you for being here, Zach. Thank you for picking it. This is a great suggestion, Ben. Thank you for agreeing. Hope you like the Spider-Man. Um, this is, we're going to talk more Spider-Man later on, and I think that leaves us with the final thing. How do we end this episode? Chad Kroger's Hero in Reverse. No. Yes. No, there's that's, no way. That's the theme song from the first movie. Yeah, but Vindicated by Dashboard Confessional is the theme song for the second movie. I don't care. Chad I ca- Kroger. I care. <laughs> Chad Kroger and 9-11 win. Okay, so literally I have these things written down. I wanted the Chad Kroger song. I had the My Nutmeg Fantasy by Macy Gray, which gets performed in the first movie. Vindicated by Dashboard Confessional, because that is the the big song from Spider-Man 2, which is how I learned about that. And then in the end of the third movie, over the ending credits, they play Move Away by The Killers. That is one of the most obscure songs by The Killers ever. So I think what I'm saying is... Uh, whatever you whatever you guys want to talk about about how we end this episode is fine. I'm gonna do what the hell I want. I have plenty to play with with medleys. <laughs> I'm throwing my executive power down with the end of this episode. Are you guys okay with that? <laughs> there be some Chad Kroger in there. Just mix all of them together, overlay them over each other, so that you can't discern anything that's happening. <laughs> It'll be like our Space Jam intro one-liner uh-huh. when we're talking uh-huh. over each other with advertisements. <laughs> oh. oh, that was great. Oh, another plug for the that, Patreon. Yep. That was that was a fantastic artistic idea. Yeah. Pat yeah. on the back to whichever one of us thought of that. <laughs> it was a team effort, Ben. It was a team effort okay. uh, for sure. So with that being said, we finished this episode. Ben, I know you are dying to go to bed. You've you've been on Cinemodities this night for way too long. Any final thoughts about Spider Man? Anything to look forward to next week? Anything like that? Knives are my only weakness. <laughs> Okay, so tune in next week when we will be covering the amazing Spider-Man duology instead of trilogy with Andrew Garfield. Can't wait to talk about that, and you guys better believe I will be re-watching Under the Silver Lake before or in conjunction conjunction with that episode, because I love me some Andrew Garfield. I would expect nothing less. (laughs) Uh, And I I think, for now at least, I'm going to stick with the name that I pitched uh, he's like the spider, oh, but he's a man. Shit, okay, okay, good. I'm glad you reminded me of this, Ben, because we said we should come back to the end of the episode. We have three pitches for the name of the series. Anybody out in the cinema audience, hit us up on the Reddit, email us, let us know what you think. Uh, we will continue to argue this for four more Mondays, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and I'll probably come up with a better pitch next time when I have... Uh, time to think without Zach and Rob talking at me. What do you, what do you think about, because I pitched the Spider-Month colon too many Spider-Men. Ben, what do you think about we take the, the, uh, the idea of J-Rock from Trailer Park Boys? You're saying Spider-Man too many times. Like 80, 90 times. Like, you you should talk about Spider-Man maybe three, four times. Why are you talking about it 80, 90 times? (laughs) That's, I love that as, as all of that. Everything you just said as the name for... (laughs) for a collection of episodes of Cinemodities. Yeah, that's that's great. Right on. We got things to mull over before we record the next episode. Any final thoughts, Zach, from you? If the spider cast will persist. No, no. 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 And, and we can't we can't be copying another podcast's episode naming structure. 
I don't like if it was about the fact that we're talking about different people in the cast, like I could get on board, but for you to be like, no, we're just copying. An At least character. it's not verbatim copying something else. Get it's what it's not. He changed a lot of words to spider. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. What if the name of this series is us doing a, a like harmonization of the Spider-Man song, but we don't say the words. We just keep saying Spider-Man. Like it's like Spider-Man, <laughs> Spider-Man, Spider-Man, spiders, whatever a spider can. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, spider, spiders, a Spider-Man, Spider-Man. <laughs> spiders, I'm a Spider-Man. I'm kind of on board with that. But no, I, I need time to think about it. Okay, uh, yeah, we have some contention in this episode. Okay, perfect. I love it. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, man. I'm going to die now. <laughs>